Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? Savewithconrad.com can help, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at savewithconrad.com. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce. Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am absolutely excellent, eh? Well, I feel like you were uh, probably due for some Canadian speak. You've probably lived in Toronto for a week or so, huh? Uh, basically, yes, man. But you know what really disappoints me the most is I didn't get not even one poutine. 
Well, I don't know what that is, but I know that you get it in Canada and I know that you get your laughs here on something to wrestle. And we appreciate you guys hanging in there with us for another episode. I had uh, a lot of fun on last week's show. What was the feedback that you got, Bruce? Well, first of all, I had a shitload of fun on last week's show and most of the feedback I got was pretty damn good. As a matter of fact. Yeah, I think I like that. I like it when it's those kind of weeks, you know what I'm saying? I feel like, uh, the Jericho episode, the 20 year anniversary is something that has been long overdue. People were always asking, when are you going to do it? And, you know, I sort of jokingly said the date knowing that, uh, that Friday would be the, the 20 year anniversary, but it felt like it would never come. And what do you know? It was here, uh, before it happened. And, and we had lots of good feedback and I even got uh, a couple of text messages from Mr. Jericho about the show. Apparently. Uh, he says, uh, some of that stuff he's going to need to rebut at some point. So, uh, the snot thickens. Well, there you go. By God, he's welcome to it. Uh, if you haven't already follow us on Twitter, we sure would love to uh, have the interaction with you. Let you guys ask some questions. We had a lot of fun with our Jericho questions that we, uh, have in the bank and hope that you guys have some questions for us for our future topics, including SummerSlam 1999 and SummerSlam 1989, which is probably my favorite. We're going to do a watch along for that one. Really looking forward to it. But today it's all about SummerSlam 2004. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of interesting stuff on this show, but when I think about SummerSlam 04, I immediately think about Randy Orton. Don't you? I absolutely do because it was kind of the beginning of that Randy Orton era and the beginning of that anointment that Randy was going to be the future And I dare say that he has been. I think that that was kind of the point of embarkation where he just kind of took off into the stratosphere and didn't look back. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Of course, we're covering SummerSlam because it went down on August 15th, 2004. So 15 years ago yesterday, right there at the Air Canada Center in Toronto. Huh. Something about SummerSlam in Toronto. This is a joint pay-per-view. Uh, not just because Bruce was there, but because it combined. Not both- in Canada. Oh, yeah. Eh? It's the time now, you know, they got this cannabis stuff, a eh, uh, legal. Are you serious? It's legal now. It is legal now all how, over the country. How much fucking fun did you have up there? I never even, I made it between the hotel and the building and that was it. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess since you're working 21 and a half hours a week, but this and hey, four. babe, uh, not a week, Man. a day. My apologies. He hears that I'm not doing anything other the rest of the time. Yeah. I mean, I might have really messed you up because I misspoke and said you work 21 hours a week. And if he finds that out, woo, woo. Yeah, uh, babe. so let's talk about it. We're on SmackDown. It's the routine, I guess, for the big four pay-per-views for us to combine the rosters, both, you know, Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, SummerSlam and Survivor Series would see both Raw and SmackDown. These, um, joint big pay-per-views like this in this era, when there was a true, whatever that means, brand split, is it, uh, is everybody sort of happy to be back together? It feels like some of these guys are probably lifelong friends. And then in a moment's notice, all of a sudden they lose their traveling partner. It's gotta be a bit like a family reunion when you get everybody together again, huh? Definitely. And it's also one of those moments where you really want to be a part of that event because they're you're having your monthly pay-per-views and you're having your monthly shows where they were, I think at the time we were alternating months as to who had a pay-per-view and go raw to SmackDown, raw to SmackDown. And 
when we did the joint ones, it was kind of like that WrestleMania moment. Who's going to be on the joint one? Because obviously you couldn't have as many brand-specific matches on the joint pay-per-view. So it was it was a little more special, and you wanted to be a part of that. Let's uh, let's talk about how we got here to this show. Uh, we're coming off Vengeance 2004, which, of course, was a Raw pay-per-view. And during this time, there was a Diva Search contest going on during Raw. And Wade Keller would report, the AP features a story on the new WWE Divas contest taking place on Raw. And the article says that Raw viewers will vote via telephone and the internet to eliminate a Raw Diva contestant every week until the 13 finalists are whittled down to just one winner said WWE TV producer, Kevin Dunn. It's easy to go lowbrow. That's not where we're going with our product in general, or this search will be fighting our image for 50 years because there's 50 years before us. And we understand that. And uh, contestant Heather Tyndall said, WWE is looking for a host, not a wrestler, but quote, I could easily turn into a wrestler. So a lot to chew on there. We'll, we'll work backwards. I could easily turn into a wrestler. Do you remember whether it was tough enough or the diva search, anybody who's sort of from a, we'll call it a civilian background coming in and saying, Oh, I could very easily be a wrestler. And did it ever turn out? Well, it feels like every time we've heard somebody say that mm, it's not going to wind up so good for them. Well, first of all, it's not easy, but I think coming from the outside in, there was the perception that how, you know, how hard can it be? The ring's a trampoline. That can't hurt. Uh, you know, they think of the business is that horrible F word, the fake bullshit. And the people coming from the outside, yeah, they thought that it looked easy until you get in there and you have to take your first bump or you have to hit the ropes for the first time or actually do something and perform. So there was a feeling. I think that there was a feeling from network executives that feel that oh, come on man how hard can it be it, it's you, you bounce around until they actually get a little closer to it and and feel it but as far as diva search goes um hates a strong word so i'm not going to say i hated them but let's just say that i was not a huge fan of the diva search Let's talk about that. Whose idea was the diva search to the best of your recollection? And, and what were you guys hoping to accomplish? Are you hoping to really just get some mainstream publicity or did you think this was a genuine way to recruit talent? Well, it was a genuine way to recruit talent. Just try to grow from the outside in. And I don't remember whose idea was it, it came to us. I, my thinking and my remembering was it might have been Vince's idea or Kevin's idea, somebody. But I also think it came from one of those research groups that said, hey, what if you did this? And I just – I hated it. I just – I I, <laughs> I said I wasn't going to say the H word. But I, I didn't like it because of the comment you just read earlier about – I could easily turn into a wrestler. Well, no, it's not fucking easy to turn into a wrestler. And when you look at it that way, th that discounts the entire search. It discounts the entire contest because it was 100%. It was a legitimate, real contest that we did leave the voting and everything up to the audience. 
so because there there was a prize at the end, you have all these rules that you have to go by, and, and everything was uh, 100% on the up and up as far as the votes and all that other bullshit. But it's – and that pissed me off too because the business is work. I want to hire who I want to hire. And, of course, we did after the fact, but I just wasn't a fan. And also the, the, the other part about it is – it would get into the the philosophical, and I've talked about this before, man, the philosophical differences of how people watch television and reality shows in particular and how I view it and how I believe that 95% of the television audience views reality shows, elimination reality shows. I... I him of the firm belief that people watch to see who goes. Who's going to go this week? Who's going to be eliminated? You're not watching it to see who stays. Yes, you are, subconsciously. You may have your favorites, but you also have the one that you want to go. You're looking to see who is going to not make the cut this week. And that philosophical difference uh, would, would come down to, no, God damn it, people watch, they want to root for somebody. Once they, they, they lose, we don't care about them. And to me, that was the story. The story was who's going to be eliminated this week versus who's going to stay. Guys, I can't brag on it enough. Chili sleep is a regular part of my life. I've got one on my side of the bed. My wife has one on her side of the bed. We've got a second master upstairs. we got one there. You know, we're remodeling a lake house. we got one there. I travel with one. Chili Sleep is one of my favorite brands in my life, not just on this show, but in my life. And if they stopped promoting and advertising on this show tomorrow, guess what? I'm still going to tell everybody in my life about Chili Sleep. It has changed my life. Prior to Chili Sleep, I would toss and turn. I would fight with the covers. I would fidget with the pillow. I'd crank down the AC and cool off my whole house. And now I do none of that. I have no trouble falling asleep staying asleep and man, I don't wake up feeling tired. I give all the credit to chili sleep, but what about the in-between time? Baby, I got bright, vivid, colorful dreams. That tells me I'm getting high quality sleep. What I'm talking about is chili sleeps Uller. Now they also make the cube sleep system. Either way, we're talking hydro power, temperature controlled mattress. What the hell's a mattress? I, I meant mattress. You know what I mean? It's a mattress topper. It fits over your existing mattress. What's a mistress? Anyway, it's going to give you your ideal sleep temperature. Let me explain. I like to sleep with mine at about 65 degrees. My wife likes to sleep, likes to sleep with hers a little warmer than that. This past winter, she would crank hers up into the 80s. You can even set it to where it's on an automated schedule. So you climb into a warm bed, but then it cools you off during your sleep. But then when it's time to wake up, it'll warm you up to wake you up. Chili sleep is amazing. I love it so much. And if you're having trouble getting through your day, if you're feeling sluggish, you're tired, buddy, you're not getting the right kind of sleep. I'm telling you, I'm more productive. I feel better than ever. And all the credit goes to chili sleep. Uh, now head over, see it for yourself. I'm serious. I want you to just look at it. It costs nothing to look. Head over to chillysleep.com forward slash wrestle to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new Cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for something to wrestle with listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili, C H I L I, sleep.com slash wrestle to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up feeling refreshed every day. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Talk to me about Kevin Dunn's quote. It's easy to go lowbrow. That's not where we're going with our product in general. Or this search. You know. Well, I think that it's, it's in reference to just in general looking at how are we going to present the females and how are we going to, to present them in this contest? And I don't think that anybody at this point in the game knew other than we were going to have a diva search. What did that mean? And we really didn't know. And nor did we really care. Are these going to be, um, are these going to be hosts? Are these going to be, Rustlers, what's going to happen? And I think that the idea was one of, well, let's see what we get, and then we'll take it from there. Let's, uh, you know, uh, your product was definitely going lowbrow, but you're saying just as it relates, I mean, obviously he's trying to say with our product in general, and I mean, I know you want to give him a pass on that, but we're not too far removed from Brian Panty's matches and, and Dr. Heine and the Kiss My Ass Club and Mae Young giving birth to a hand. But that's always sort of been, you know, when when you're doing the, the PR speak for WWE, you know, you've got to sort of spin it a little bit and say, oh, it was all smoky arenas and now we've made it a big product. And there's no doubt that the presentation and the production was stepped way, way up. But inherently, a lot of wrestling, not just WWE, I'm not picking on WWE, but I mean, WCW had all of that same stuff, you know, Viagra on a pole and Judy Bagwell on a forklift and Braun panties and mud matches and blah, blah, blah. So lots of silliness in wrestling, but isn't inherently wrestling by and large lowbrow? I don't think so. Not at all. I don't think so. I, I think that it's if people want to view it that way. Then that's how they want to view it. But I don't think so. No, I think that it's entertainment. And I take, a, I look at it from day one when I was four years old going and loving wrestling. I've always looked at it as that's what I love. And I, I've never looked at it as lowbrow. I've looked at some of the things that have happened in the business, not in the best of taste. Yeah. yeah I'm not saying necessarily taste. I'm saying but it's like, not lowbrow, but like when, when, when Christian would pull out ass cream or, or there would be a beaver cleavage segment or there's the hoe train or Val Venus and, you know, choppy, choppy PP. I mean, there's lots of, come on, this is in, in poor taste. And that's what I mean. I think that a lot of it, that there was a lot of it that you could point to in specific. If you want to go in and point at specific situations like choppy, choppy PP, 
Ooh, choppy, choppy, pee pee. But to um, me, that's that's lowbrow comedy. There's nothing wrong with it. Listen, I enjoyed it. No, I'm I just think ju- it's tasteless. Okay, so what's the difference between lowbrow and tasteless, in your opinion? Well, you're categorizing the entire genre, and I I think that if you want to look at that one, okay. If you want to look at that lowbrow, I just looked at it as bad television. You can't I mean, again when you look at everything that's on TV. What's what's tasteless? Uh, America's Got Talent has a guy going into the finals that comes out and strips down to tassels, and um, is that tasteless? Is that low brow? Does it make the whole show low brow? No, I think that particular act is tasteless, but it's entertaining too to a lot of people. They love them. Let's talk about book sales. Uh, this is something that we've never really talked about here on the show, and I was fascinated in my research to find this tidbit. Wade Keller would write Rick Flair's autobiography sold 9,871 copies during its first week in release, which is more than Hulk Hogan's first week autobiography sales of 8,922 in 2002. However, Steve Austin's autobiography last year sold 12,952 copies in its first week, according to BookScan, which tracks retail, in-store and online book purchases nationwide. To date, the Flair book has sold 32,000 copies, more than half of what the Hogan book sold in hardcover, which was nearly 57,000, and the paperback edition has sold about 10,000 total. Austin's book at this point had sold 112,000 copies, and uh, Keller would say Flair's book won't beat out Austin's total sales, but it should end up ahead of Hogan's. Uh, Mick Foley's autobiography sales remain well ahead of Flair, Austin, and Hogan. Um this is kind of interesting data to me because, well, I guess, frankly, I just assumed there were more books sold. I assumed that book sales were greater and that these would have been much higher numbers. And so when they're not, I'm really fascinated why WWE continued to do so many. These couldn't be a huge profit center. Did, did WWE just take the attitude of, Hey, it's, it's another form of media. And if there is media, we need to have a presence. We're that big of a brand and, and it's good for us to have our brand on bookshelves and, and, and we just need to be in the space because it's not like this is a big cash grab at these numbers. No, it, it, more than anything at the time, at this time, I believe that we still had a deal with whoever was publishing the books at the time. So the book publishers would come in and they would want X amount of books whether they be biographies or uh, features on WrestleMania or whatever they may be. So our deal was usually with the publishers. And I think that everyone was shocked at the what they consider a bestseller and what they consider to be, wow, this is really good for book sales. Because when you look at the numbers and you go, wow, 12,000 doesn't sound like a lot. But in the book world, in that genre, in that category, that's a lot of books. That that shocked me, too, because it was, in my head, I'm thinking millions. Well, I don't know if it, I thought it would be millions, but I definitely thought it would be hundreds of thousands. And to find out that, you know, the first week it's only 9,800 copies, that's just amazing to me, especially when you consider, you know, as a wrestling fan, I thought, hey, man, they're plugging the hell out of this. This is everywhere. Everybody's got to get this, but... Obviously, that was not necessarily the case. Now, it's not a surprise that Foley's books did well, but it is a bit of a surprise that his sales would remain well ahead of Flair, Austin, and Hogan because I think, for the most part, most people would agree that those are probably bigger, quote-unquote, names in professional wrestling. But for whatever reason, 
Foley was the guy when it came to the book department. What do you attribute that to? It was a better book. <laughs> so and what word of mouth? Mick Foley wrote it. So so word of mouth. I yes, definitely. Uh, Mick Foley's was the first to come out, but it was very well written, and it was written by him. The rest of them all had ghost writers or somebody else writing their books for them, and I don't think that they were nearly as good as far as the end product. I thought Foley's was excellent. I thought that Mick did a great job writing the book and I found it very entertaining and it was true to Mick with the other books that came out. They were written by people who were quote, um, bestseller, bestselling authors that know how to write. Um, yeah. Yippee fucking Kaye. They didn't know how to me. They didn't know how to capture the voice in a lot of respects of the guys that they were talking about. This episode is brought to you by CarShield, who makes it easy and affordable to protect my car from expensive repairs. And that's just for starters. CarShield is the number one auto protection company in the U.S. and offers protection plans for around 100 bucks a month. The plans cover more parts than ever before. Whether your car has 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles, let me tell you how simple it is to get your car fixed. When you need a repair, you choose the mechanic, and CarShield's administrators handle the rest. That's it. You don't have to deal with the paperwork or headaches. You're taken care of. Same goes if your car breaks down and you're stuck on the side of the road. Plans through CarShield also include coast-to-coast -coast roadside assistance. CarShield administrators are there for you with rental car options and trip reimbursement at no extra cost too. Get coverage today and you'll lock in your price now and it will never go up. That means as long as you own your car, no matter how old it is, you're protected from the rising cost of parts and repairs for your vehicle. CarShield helps protect my wallet from expensive car repairs, and they'll do the same for you. Go to carshield.com slash podcast to start your plan and lock in your pricing forever. That's carshield.com slash podcast. A deductible may apply. Are you into weird, spooky, and strange history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. We tell the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, unsolved mysteries, the paranormal, and then we look to history to see where the truth actually lies. Want to get spooky with us? Horrifying History, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Let's talk about the flare book for a minute here. The, the flare book has always been a little bit of a subject of, of controversy because allegedly there was a, a first version of the book that a lot of people weren't happy with. And there was maybe an unrealistic deadline that had to be met in order to still pull the thing off. And Mark Madden is, is tapped and asked to sort of come in and back clean up. What do you remember about the book that almost was of the Rick well, Flair autobiography? I, and again, I don't remember specifically because it was the overall problem with the books, in my opinion, was that, A, they would bring in different people to try and get the voice. And I think that a lot of times those that were in charge of it on the marketing end and, and whatever end it was that was getting these folks were looking, just get the book done. Just get it done. 
and there was a there was a problem when you would read it that it didn't fit and it didn't it didn't again finding that character's voice that is so hard to do um and and a lot of them if you read their books and you know them first of all you know what's bullshit what's not second of all you if you get lost in it dusty's book was full of shit however it sounded like dusty right I enjoyed the fuck out of it. Uh, Terry Funk's book, another one, you know, Mick Foley's book. You, you, it, 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 it sounded like them because the author, Mick Foley, he knew Mick Foley. Um, but the author was able to find the voice of Terry Funk and of Dusty Rhodes. And, and that made it easier to read and easier to feel. And we were having a tough time finding authors that, knew the voices of these talent and what we were doing was having the talent sit with them for a while, tell them stories, give them the history, work with them, proofread it. Some guys were more involved than others. And I don't know if this was the case with Rick, but as you can imagine, I'm sure that, that Rick probably didn't sit there and want to read every single word of the book and approve it. So it, it just was a, pro it's a process and it's a painstaking process that, not everybody just embraces. Well, something that was being embraced is Jeff Hardy and TNA. I can't believe that this actually happened uh, because it felt like Jeff Hardy was a lifer with WWE, but he winds up signing in July of 2004. Were you surprised when that happened? I mean, did you sort of expect that he would be back in WWE and, and then maybe a little taken aback when he winds up in TNA instead? I was surprised because I felt that Jeff, as you said, I felt that Jeff had a home in WWE and no matter what issues or what there was on the outside, that Jeff would always find his way back and not go somewhere else. But that wasn't the case. And at the time it was a little shocking for me to sit there and go, holy shit, I really didn't see that one coming. That's one you didn't see. There were ones you did see that one I didn't see. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about somebody else who's going to be making their way out. Uh, Rikishi, uh, this is coming from a wake kill report in mid July. Rikishi was recently released following months of inactivity. He had heat with the office for taking what they considered to be an extraordinary amount of time off to recover from an injury. And he sealed his own fate recently when he worked an indie show for a family member Alpha, without telling the office he'd been under contract at WWE since 1991 making him one of the longest tenured wrestlers on the roster. Rikishi has not been given permission to use his gimmick outside of WWE. So he plans to use the name Fatu on the indie scene, but he may have to make several cosmetic changes if he decides to work for TNA. And there's some speculation that WWE might legally challenge whether or not he can have his hair dyed, wear similar ring gear, or even perform the stink face since all of those attributes belong to a WWE created character and indie promoters who tried to book Rikishi are saying he's asking for a high booking fee that many have found to be too expensive. And I feel like this is uh, pretty common when somebody gets released, they're quote unquote, fresh off TV, even if they weren't really on TV with WWE lately, they're fresh off a WWE run. So they feel like they can command a higher price. And then as you may imagine, eventually that price comes down to be a little more in reason. Let's work backwards here. 
you know, did, did you remember there being a situation where the name isn't really what WWE wants to protect? It's the actual presentation. It seems like perhaps a gold dust, perhaps a Rikishi. There are probably others where you just knew, uh, I don't know if that's going to fly. Yeah, no, because Rikishi, when you go back and look at the gimmick and look at what we had done with Fatu over the years, the Sultan, different things that we have tried with Rikishi. Rikishi was 100% created from, from the blonde hair to the outfit. Everything about that was something that we had created to try and change up the presentation as much as we could to get it away from the Fatu presentation that audience had been used to at this point. So that wasn't something, you know, look, your IP, you have to protect and you have to be able to go out and say, no, this is mine. And we developed it and we have to protect it. And that was one we were going to fight for because uh, that's, you know, Kane, different guys like that, that, that we created and that IP, you spend a lot of time investing in it and that wasn't going to happen. Take me back to when you guys first hear, I guess, let me ask this. Were there rumblings to the best of your recollection when, when he's in recovery and and people say, Hey, what about Rikishi at TV this next week? I got an idea. And then somebody pipes up and says, nah, he's still fucking hurt. And then somebody else says, well, when's he going to be in? Does that become like, fuck, who knows? And you almost sort of as a writing team become frustrated and that just, you know, makes its way through the office or how does that come to be where, where the frustration starts to set in when someone's out too long? Well, it's double-edged sword out of sight, out of mind. So when you are giving a time frame, and, and you've got lists where you can look at, okay, junior's out, here's his projected time to return. So you get to that time. Now you want to plan. You want to think of a way to bring him back. You want to think of a way a story for them. And you start thinking that way, thinking that, okay, well, they should be back in June or July, what have you. And you get there and it's like, oh, he hasn't got clearance from doctor yet. And he hasn't gone in, he hasn't done his tests or he hasn't done this and he hasn't done that. And then you hear that he's working, (laughs) he's working shows. So he's, he's okay. He's okay enough to go and work shows, but He's not okay enough to go and get clearance. So that was the issue. And the issue became, why are we, okay, if that's the case, why are we even thinking about anything for him if he's not going to do on his side what needs to be done to come back and get on TV? And that was the challenging part. Um, I don't know what was going on with Rikishi during that time, but uh, here was a hell of an act, man, and a hell of a talent that we wanted to use. (laughs) We wanted to have him back on TV. And for whatever reason, he wasn't helping that cause by doing what he needed to do on his side to make that return. When you find out that he works an indie show, who makes the decision? Fuck this. He's out. I think it, probably JR at the time. Cause I was so far removed and I was back living in Houston at that point. So that was probably JR or Johnny in talent relations. 
It is July, my friends, and the temperatures aren't the only thing that's rising this summer. That's right. This episode of Something to Wrestle is sponsored by Blue Chew. Guys, listen up. Confidence can take you far in life, and it can also help you in the bedroom, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. And well, you know. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, You'll receive your prescription within days. And the best part, it is all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. I know how much of a pain that can be. We got no time to wait anymore these days. You don't have to do any of that. And Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package and with blue chew men everywhere are excited to see the postman because when your package has arrived well your package has actually arrived so if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform blue chew is there to help and we got a special deal for our listeners try blue chew free when you use our promo code wrestle at checkout just pay five dollars shipping that's bluechew.com promo code wrestle to receive your first month free Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And as always, we thank BlueChew for sponsoring this podcast. How does something like that, that make its way back? I mean, I hate to use the word, but are, are there office stooges sort of just scouring the internet to see what's going on and saying, hey, uh, maybe you need to look at this. How are you stooging something that's all over the, that's all over the place? It's, it just was a fact. If you're, you know, first of all, we have people out all the time that are looking for talent all over the country and shit. And you hear of, Hey, Rikishi's working a show. Well, that gets back. It's sure. That's just, that was just a fact. Something else interesting happened around this same time. WWE puts out a press release announcing their video on demand service. This is way before the WWE network, but it is their first foray into the digital cable realm. And the campaign is illustrating how WWE 24 seven will quote, put a lifetime of heroes to work for you. And this is a, the WWE 24 seven is the name. And of course they're trying to take advantage of this huge video library, which I think in the press release, they're saying it's more than 75,000 hours of programming, the largest of its kind in the world. But way, way, way ahead of the network. Behind the scenes, where was Vince sort of thinking this thing would land? Well, you know, it's 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 interesting because to me, this is, and I'm sure I've told the story here before about the Ring Magazine in like 1932, where there was someone who predicted essentially pay per view for boxing and wrestling. And the way that they worded it was there would be a a time in our life. Now, this 1932, in a boxing and wrestling magazine, there would be a time in our life that a championship prize fight could take place in New York City, Tokyo, Japan, uh, London, England, 
Munich, Germany, and you would be able to watch this fight wherever you are in the world live while it was taking place. And as time went on, I remember reading that when I was 14 years old doing research for Paul Bosch's book. And I said to Paul, I said, wow, this guy predicted closed circuit television. Years later, realized this guy had actually predicted pay-per-view before television was on everybody's living room. So the network, this was in, in, in my, my viewpoint, when I'm looking at it going, holy shit, this is the network. We, we are on all these cable systems all over the country, and it was on demand. So you could join 24-7, WWE 24-7, and then I think there'd be like five to ten different things that you could select every week, new things to go back, and you had a menu and go in and select what you wanted to watch. This was the precursor to the network, and that's how it was a way to monetize and utilize all the hours of footage that we had for all those years. And this was before, you know, they were going out and, and getting a lot of the footage from the different territories all over the country, the AWA stuff. And, and that's when these deals started to be made. Let's talk about, uh, CNBC. Wade Keller says that, uh, they've done a feature story on Christopher Nowinski. Uh, the show, of course, is called The Capital Report, and uh, it's doing a feature on alternative media coverage on the upcoming National Democratic Convention in Boston. And the commentators interview Nowitzki, who says that the WWE would treat the convention as a serious event and would cover the important issues. And he mentioned the SmackDown Your Vote campaign and that he would be writing a column on WWE.com with convention coverage. And he complains about the alternative media coverage, treating the young male voters as children with more attention given to the type of, uh, underwear or computer used by the candidates than real issues. Uh, 34 legislators from 21 States have followed the footsteps here of John Kerry and George Bush in committing to respond to the SmackDown your vote policy questionnaire from WWE. Lots to talk about here. First of all, we haven't talked a lot about Chris Nowinski on this show, and he's gone on to do some great things with uh, learning what we now know about CTE and concussions and head trauma. But he's probably, maybe at that time, one of the most well-suited folks to to speak about something like this. And, I mean, he's at your disposal. When did you guys realize, man, we should just send Nowinski for stuff like this? Well, there were actually quite a few people uh, from Nowinski to Layfield, Ivory. Um, there were there were a few more that were very political and that really enjoyed that side of the news, if you will. So the all the political camps, they're looking at the audience of WWE that was that was their audience that was not going out. And voting. So you take the stars that these college kids are watching and that they're looking up to at this time. Um, they both sides came and, and really wanted to recruit 
WWE to endorse him. And Vince not wanting to get into endorsing one way or another at that time in our life. And, and, you know, worst thing you can do, man, is dabble in politics, in my opinion, but is what it is. But the thing became, hey, smack down your vote. Be heard. At least if you've got something to say, you want to have anything to bitch about in the future, then at least go out and vote. That was the message that we were trying to convey, and that was helping both sides. We covered both sides fairly and just went and covered it so that that college kid that loves WWE, they see Chris Nowinski or JBL or Ivory or whoever else it is out there. It's like they recognize them, and they're going to listen to what they have to say. And they're not endorsing anyone or any one party or the other. They're just telling you that, hey, pay attention. Here's what this side's saying. Here's what that side's saying. Get out and vote. Make a difference. That was the message behind it. And Nowinski being a Harvard graduate, Nowinski, good-looking kid, looks great in a suit, um, very well-spoken. But he he had a presence, and, and he studied, and he knew his shit. Did Linda McMahon have eyes on politics at this point? Do you think, you know, I think anybody that's ever run for any office has eyes on politics. So I would imagine she did, but it wasn't anything that was ever talked about, at least not with me. So I, I didn't know. Cause it, it was always, I was of the mindset of take care. You know, you, you keep your politics private and, take care of both sides, have friends on both sides so that if you need somebody, you've got it taken care of, but whatever your beliefs are that, you know, that kind of shit, I like to keep private. I still believe there should be privacy in this world and some things. Wu Wings, a virtual restaurant concept from the man himself, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with your Uber Eats or Postmates app. Woo Wings is now open in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, Florida, as well as Huntsville and Tuscaloosa in Alabama, with many more locations coming soon. Try the only chicken wings worthy of carrying the name of the 16-time world heavyweight champion. Tell them, Nate. Woo Wings, legendary flavors, world championship wings. Woo! Woo Wings. Yeah. Woo Woo. Did you have any concerns when WWE started to sort of venture into the political realm? Because it does feel like something that you could have safely stayed away from. Why the need to push forward if it wasn't something that, you know, the chairman or his wife were, were interested in personally? Well, because it is, well, because first of all, it is a good message and it is in the middle by telling people get out and vote. You have the right to vote in this country, and you have the right to choose who you want to represent you. So go out and do it. If you don't do it, then you're to blame. Don't You have no say after the fact. But you, you, we actually do have a say in this country. So that is something that Vince and Linda both strongly believed in in general. doesn't matter, Republican or Democrat. Just go out and vote. Make your voice heard. And that was the message he believed in, so we did it. Uh, let's talk about Eddie Guerrero. He's going to be out of action for several weeks. He's got uh, a tear of his hamstring. 
Of course, he's, he's on track for a big match here with Kurt Angle, but he's been pulled from all the house shows until he's fully recovered. Uh, he's been asked to rest at at least two weeks, maybe a little longer, but of course, no doubt he's, he's going to wrestle Kurt Angle at SummerSlam. A lot of people probably feel like in this era, Eddie Guerrero needed to take some time off. Uh, it's even written here by Wade Keller. Uh, friends of Guerrero say he was driving himself nuts with second guessing how things were going and whether he was doing a good enough job as champion. And it really added to his anxiety issues lately. So WWE believed the time off should do him more good than just physically. And Guerrero was said to be very upset, but he was asked to lose the title. He's not making an issue of it in the locker room, but he feels like he's being blamed for the lack of success that SmackDown had through his title reign. And someone told Wade, Eddie's just paranoid of his own shadow. I feel sorry for him. He will always worry. That's just the way he is. I love him, but he is a little manic depressive. Would you categorize that as, as a true statement about Eddie? Because we've all heard that he took this very, very seriously. He thought it was a great responsibility and it is. Uh, but when it didn't go, you know, when he wasn't the second coming of stone cold, Steve Austin, he, he may have at the box office, he may have been a little disappointed. I do. I disagree with that because Eddie knew what his job was and Eddie's job. Eddie was coming in at a very difficult time and Eddie did very well at the box office. And Eddie actually had, had turned some things around when you, you go back and look at it from where it was. And Eddie was used. Without Eddie Guerrero, there would be no JBL. Because Eddie took that as his project. I'm going to get this guy over that we tried a lot of different gimmicks with. The APA was over. That shit was over good. But here now, John, as a singles can he be an attraction? And Eddie looked at it as a challenge, and Eddie looked at it as, yeah, I'll make him an attraction. I'll get that son of a bitch over bigger than he's ever been and bigger than anybody could imagine. Now, to be clear, That's what Bruce, Eddie did. I, I'm, not, I'm not asking, do you think he did a good job? I'm asking, do you think that Eddie had given himself some anxiety issues because he was concerned he wasn't doing a very good job? Eddie would give himself anxiety if, he had, if his sleeves were too long on his shirt, okay. <laughs> um, Eddie would overthink a lot of different things. And Eddie might have felt, if, if anything, feedback from, to me from Eddie directly was Eddie hated being hurt. Eddie wanted to work through injuries. Eddie didn't want to go home. That was Eddie's downfall. Eddie's downfall was, you know, no, I'm fine. I can go. No, Eddie, you're hurt. You need to recuperate. You need to stay home. And you know what? Probably being off TV for a little bit of time could help all of us in the long run. Um, and that is something that Eddie's going to go, oh, shit. Now that's, uh, you can second guess that till the cows come home from the standpoint of, oh, shit, they don't want me at TV. They don't need me. I, I'm a failure. They, they don't want me. No. That wasn't the case. And I can see Eddie working himself up into that. But at the same time, he he also appreciated it. And he knew what the best thing in the long run was for him. 
Uh, do you think he was upset that he was asked to lose the title? I know we'll talk about that another time, but you know, he's, he's probably elated to beat Brock Lesnar, be the world champion. You know, we know how important that is to Eddie and, and most wrestlers, but here when, when he loses it, is it just as devastating? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it was probably more the other way that Eddie felt he was making lay layfield. Let's uh, talk about uh, something new you guys were trying. WB.com is auctioning off items that Eddie Guerrero stole from Kurt Angle, like a trophy, his cast, and even his wheelchair. And of course, you guys were doing all of this for charity, I'm sure. But who first came up with the idea of, hey, man, let's give fans an opportunity to own some of this screen new stuff? In this era, you guys started to do that quite a bit. Well, hell, shit, that goes back to the character I was going to do with DT DTK uh, Enterprises, Doink the Clown Enterprises, and we were going to do the auction site, auctioning off a lot of the hardcore items that were used in matches and ring-used chairs and different things like that. So this was another a, another case where we utilized that a little bit more, and big things that we had as part of the television show, get guys to sign them and auction them off, and it was just another revenue stream. Now, Wade Keller would also report this, and I can't wait to get your opinion on it. Eric Bischoff is producing an event called Sturgis 2004 at full throttle on pay-per-view. The in-demand website states, quote, get ready to experience the loudest, hottest, sexiest motorcycle event on the planet, uncensored and untamed, as half a million riders soar into Sturgis, South Dakota, for a full throttle celebration of life, liberty, and the pursuit of hog happiness. See what really goes on at this legendary rally. I think most everybody listening to this remembers Hog Wild and Road Wild, the WCW pay-per-views. But even three years after WCW goes down in 2004, Eric Bischoff loves him some Sturgis. Uh, you just stole my line. I was just going to say, Eric Bischoff <laughs> loves him some motorcycles. And you have loves him. He loves him some Sturgises. Yeah, I don't know why he, he loved that shit so much, but he, he had to, to go back to it. 96, 97, 98, 99. And then five years later, fuck the wrestling. Let's just get the, the, the bikinis <laughs> on the hogs. That's all we need. Oh shit. Yeah. I, I actually offered to come and help Eric with this. And I, um, I took my offer back, frankly, because I started thinking about, do I really want to fucking go to Sturgis during Sturgis? Um, uh, yeah. And I, a friend of mine went, one of my neighbors went, and saw Eric and saw the whole thing was part of the pay-per-view. But Eric wanted to do this big rock concert and just produce a pay-per-view that brought people to Sturgis, thinking that I, I think that those that are interested in Sturgis are at Sturgis for that week. Not not at home watching on TV. Not a, yeah, they're not the they're, they're not, not the ones sitting there going, Well, honey, what's all pay for you not? Well look, there's Road Wild Sturgis. Let's see what's happening. Like I'm not saying this to be funny, but like I, I don't mean this to sound ugly, but what the fuck did they do? Like there's a camera of people walking around drinking beer, revving their motorcycle. I mean that's it? Well, okay. I asked the same question and and the big the big part of it was uh, a concert 
I forget the name of the okay. band, but it wasn't a big name band. Gotcha. Um, the Miss Sturgis or Miss Road Wild contest. Okay. Okay. So the finals would, would be live on pay-per-view, but then they would do things like, and I, I, I'm going to catch so much shit from all the motorcycle riders out there. Cause the only thing that, that me and a motorcycle can do is probably kill me because I'm just too uncoordinated to ride a bike. I'm not that I can't do it. Um, not my, not my thing, but they like, they, they, they do this thing where they burn rubber and they rev their motors and who's got the loudest motor and who can burn and make the most smoke on their tires or shit like that. And I'm just, I'm listening to this going, okay. Um, if, oh, it's great, man. You're there and the, the gasoline and, and you, you can't even hear yourself think. And there's so much smoke and shit and, and you can't see a thing. I said, then how do you know who wins? I don't get it. Um, but that's what it was, man. It was, it was bringing Sturgis to everybody that wasn't there. But I, again, we'll go back to, I think that the, everybody that was interested in being in Sturgis or seeing what was in Sturgis for that week was in Sturgis. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know this for sure. I'm just going to venture a guess. Is this the last Sturgis at full throttle pay-per-view? Yeah, this was the one, <laughs> this was the one and only, this was it. Yeah. I, you know, Eric, you know, Eric's going to be selling this shit now on DVD or something. Oh dude, we're going to pimp it so hard over on 83 weeks. I mean, come on, we're going to have autographed copies of the DVD, uh, when he, uh, well, maybe not for a long time now. Hey, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe we could, they could, yeah, there, I could see my crystal ball, August of 2020 SmackDown at Sturgis. Here we go. Uh, during this oh, time, God, no. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> Fucking Goldberg. Oh, fuck. That, that, Goldberg that was a delayed and, tickle. Goldberg and Undertaker in the main event one more time. It's going to be a hog off. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you went little shell nut there in the middle of it. Oh, we've got our services there. But anyway. No, I did. Fuck, I was so tickled with that. <laughs> I'm not even mad at it. Just the idea of thinking about there being a goddamn smackdown at Sturgis just tickles me. Okay, during this never time, never say never. Please, can you help us say? Do you have no fucking power up there, man? Don't do it, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> if you can do nothing else up there, don't let there be another goddamn wrestling show at Sturgis. <sighs> Please. Uh, during this time, Brock Lesnar, who left WWE a few months prior is at NFL training camp for the Minnesota Vikings, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Was Vince keeping tabs on this? I mean, it's it's making the news, you know, especially the local news, but there is some national news too because obviously he's a celebrity and and he's really trying something sort of unorthodox. Was Vince keeping up? I, we all were because we were interested in, in whether he was going to succeed or not. And you look at it, here's this is something – which takes balls to walk away from the profession that you've been in for the last few years and into an unknown world in a lot of respects. And, and to say, I'm going to go play professional football. 
Now, I didn't play in college. Last time I played was in high school, but it's a decent high school football player. I'm going to go and I'm going to try out. And he actually made it through all the tryouts. He made it all the way to the damn practice team. So, yeah, we're definitely looking at him and, frankly, cheering him on, hoping that he does succeed so that you can say, hey, former WWE superstar Brock Lesnar on the Minnesota Vikings. That would have been cool to have on there as well and to have those bragging rights. But, um, yeah, everybody's looking to see what's going to happen. When he makes his first tackle... Uh, it actually makes the news. This is just practice, but still, uh, the head coach, Mike Tice would, would address this tackle and the fact that he lost his helmet and says he made his first tackle. So he got his first kiss. He grew up some, we were pleased. Uh, he's been working hard and I thought it was important for him to get a little taste today and see what it's like. And I'm sure his head was spinning some, but he was able to make a tackle and Lesnar explained saying, I more or less just fell into it, but that's how it goes. I was working hard. And he addresses sort of the elephant in the room. I'm 27, which in this league, I'm not a young man. After two and a half days of camp, I feel like I'm 60 years old when I woke up this morning. And being called a rookie, he commented, I wouldn't really call myself a rookie. I'm more like a water boy right now. Which is pretty cool that that he's willing to sort of acknowledge. It's also worth mentioning that even if he makes the final roster here, it's going to be the league minimum of $230,000 which don't get me wrong is a great salary, but way, way, way less than he had been making with WWE. Fair to say. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think that, you know, the funny thing about it is, is when you look back, I think that there is a tendency for people to want other people to fail. So when, when there's that buzz, the guys are, Oh, he'll never make it. God, this is ridiculous. And you know, then there's those of us, you're rooting for him. For that reason, it's like, I, I, you know what? I, I'd like him to make it. I'd like him to make it because he's one of us. <laughs> you know, he was our guy. So you're cheering for him to be successful, just like the guys that go to Hollywood. You don't want to fucking sit here and talk about, oh, goddamn, that movie sucked. You want it to be a blockbuster, make more money than, you know, any, anybody else because it reflects back on what we do. So we were rooting for him. But keeping a close eye on it, and it was a long shot, man, being 27 years old and not playing since he was in high school. But he had the balls to go out and do it and get in there and knock heads with the motherfuckers. It's worth mentioning that just a couple years prior to this SummerSlam, it's really his crowning moment where he has that match with The Rock and becomes the world champion. We just recently covered that on our Rock episode, but... That was just a couple of years prior to this. And now two years later, uh, on August 14th, he's making his NFL debut. It's a preseason game against the Arizona Cardinals. And he's going to come into the game early in the second quarter on the kickoff team, charge down the field and make contact with a blocker from the Cardinals. And he's on the kickoff team a couple other times. And he lines up on the field goal blocking team late in the first half and early in the second half. He's on the D line for the first time in the fourth quarter. And he looked okay against the third stringers for the Cardinals. He doesn't record any sacks or anything like that, but the television crew is putting him over very, very hard saying that he's uh, first on last off, very enthusiastic, very coachable and, and holding his own. And, um, he's also going to announce at training camp that he's now engaged to Sable, which I don't think a lot of people probably saw coming. If you haven't heard 
uh, Mark Merrow's story uh, about finding out that Brock Lesnar and Sable were together. It is one of the more classic lines, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher it. And of course, when Merrow thinks that Sable's perhaps moved on, you know, with their relationships on the rocks, and maybe she's moved on. Uh, he's fighting mad, former Golden Gloves boxer himself, and he's ready to kick this guy's ass, whoever he is, wherever he is. And then he finds out it's Brock Lesnar, and he explains that he very quickly learned the power of forgiveness, uh, which is one of the funnier lines ever. Did, were you guys shocked that uh, Sable wound up with, with Brock Lesnar? No. I mean, I'm not shocked one way or another. It- to people, you know, uh, you have to say God makes them and pairs them. So it's, they fell in love. They did their thing. More power to them. Wade Keller reported something else interesting around this time. Believe it or not, a name we haven't heard around for a long, long time. Bruno San Martino attended last week's raw show at the request of Vince McMahon. Now, if you're not really familiar, these guys weren't exactly on good terms for at least a couple of decades. And when the WWF had some problems in the eighties and early nineties, Bruno was very, very outspoken, uh, not just on things like uh, Larry King live, but the torch talk and things like that. So insider trades and man mainstream San Martino was really very critical of Vince McMahon and here he's invited to raw. Do you remember that being discussed? And were you shocked that? Vince is sort of trying to extend an olive branch. Uh, it wasn't the first time Vince had extended an olive branch to Bruno. I think it was just, and I forget what it was, but there was some, whether it was Kurt or somebody uh, might've might even been Jerry McDivitt, who's the attorney in, in Pittsburgh, but someone had run into Bruno and, and there was some kind of mutual uh, middleman that said, you know, Bruno, yeah. Vince has tried many times. We were in Pittsburgh. Everything's there. Come on down, say hello. And Vince had, had offered that many times to Bruno and it extended the olive branch several times uh, to Bruno and Bruno just wasn't interested. Bruno had his beliefs, man. He was firmly implanted in that and had no desire whatsoever to <laughs> grab that olive branch and, and reciprocate. So this was just another one that you thought would, would come and go. But Bruno actually came out, and, and they were able to shake hands and at least talk, which was a big step. Let's, uh, let's dig a little deeper, because allegedly the reason McMahon wants to sort of mend fences with Bruno is because he wants to legitimize, quote-unquote, the WWE hall of fame. And he wants Bruno to accept this. And of course we know that's not going to happen for nearly 10 years, uh, quite a while, but he also wants Bruno to participate in some interviews and narration for the new WWE 24 seven project. And it's pointed out in the torch that Bruno doesn't really keep up with wrestling. He was hoping that Kurt angle, a local Pittsburgh citizen and, and hometown boy was going to be in the main event, but He's told, no, he's not on raw. He's actually on SmackDown. And when he's told that the main event is going to be triple H and Chris Benoit, Bruno has no idea who triple H is and says he's not a fan of Iron Man matches. So he leaves early, which I don't know, just fascinates me that he was that unplugged 
is that sort of common or would you classify that as uncommon for an old timer to sort of just totally disengage from wrestling completely? I think there's those that do and those that don't. So in Bruno's case, I think that Bruno had his views on the business and there was nothing that was going to change that. So Bruno had his mindset and he saw WWE for what he saw it as. And there was nothing, there was nothing else to it, but he had no idea who anybody was. I mean, it was the business had passed him by that much that he just didn't keep up with it. Didn't care. And, you know, as far as legitimizing the, the hall of fame, the, the hall of fame didn't need Bruno wanted Bruno. And I think that Bruno needed to be there. And from God, you know, I'll go back to the shit second or third hall of fame induction that we ever did when we were doing them in hotels and things like that we had extended the invitation to Bruno wanting Bruno to be a part of the hall of fame. And it was Bruno's choice not to be a part of the hall of fame until he eventually came around to it. But I, I think that the hall of fame without Bruno was kind of empty and I'm, I'm so happy that he finally did come around because he does rightfully belong there. And it was just, you know, come on, Bruno. And it was a way to say, Hey, Bruno, we want to put all this stuff out here on you that we have. We'd, we want to show people what you did. We'd love for you to be a part of it. We'd love for you to, to come back home basically. And, and that's what Vince was looking for. It was all the above to bring Bruno back into the fold, bring him back into the family and for Bruno to feel good about it. And for finally, for people to see that had never been able to experience Bruno San Martino in the garden, working with superstar Billy Graham and shit like that. Um, he really wanted Bruno to be a part of that. Why, um, why don't you think it worked out where Bruno came back here? <sighs> I just, I, I don't think Bruno was ready. It's as simple as that. I just think that when, you reach a certain age, a couple of things happen. You, you dig in deeper and you hold on to your beliefs and nobody's going to change your mind. Or you say, fuck it. Life's too short and let bygones be bygones and move on with your life. And, and just say, people are people and everybody makes mistakes and we all fuck up. Some of us more than, more than others as I raise both my hands. Um, move on and, and get over it because life really and truly is too short. And I'm, I was tickled when, when Bruno finally did, did come back. I wasn't even there. And I'm like, you know, good for him because it's, it's what he should have done a long time ago. In my opinion. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, a hot topic. And I'm sure you have a strong opinion about this. Of course, I'm talking about the dress code that WWE initiated a month prior to this. Uh, Wade Keller would write wrestlers and other WWE personnel are required to wear dress shoes, slacks, and a dress shirt to the matches every night. Coat and tie is optional. One insider says management's goal is to enhance the image of WWE to the outside world. 
And it's been a rule of some major league sports uh, leagues for decades as an attempt to class up the image of their athletes. Wrestlers have been showing up at arenas in track suits and tennis shoes or flip-flops, ratty-looking pants, and worn T-shirts, which management felt was embarrassing the company in front of fans and media. It had gotten pretty bad, concedes one wrestler, who says the policy shouldn't be seen as a big deal, even though only a few dozen fans see what they dress like on their way to the arena. Sure, it's a minor inconvenience, says the wrestler. It's less comfortable on flights and a hassle when changing after workouts at the gym, but it's no big deal. Wrestlers are making a big deal out of this, and it's just plain silly for guys making this good of money. Where did you land on it? Because I know that you're wearing the monkey suit every day, but before you went back, well, that was not the case for Mr. Pritchard's daily attire. Yeah, I'm a shorts and flip-flops guy, folks. And um, In December, in January, in July, it don't matter. Shoes are not necessary. But, okay, but even for the last, what, year and a half at the shows, uh, I started wearing suits just because it was easier. Yep. Fact. So, I mean, when you get old, you flip-flop. Um, but during this time, you know, we had, I think that it was, I think it was overdone to the point of, you know, the sport coat, the uh, jacket, the tie, and the all that other shit. I just think that guys should dress neat, be presentable and have a be presentable. That's all. And especially at that time. Now for me, presentable at that time was usually, um, khakis of some kind. I always, I wore the same shoes like I wear now, Cole Haan, uh, Nikes. And I'd either wear a polo shirt or a Tommy Bahama short sleeve shirt. Didn't matter. Uh, wear sweaters in the, in the winter. But I never wore a sport coat, and man, I was pissed when we changed over. See, two things happened. I'll go back to when we got rid of the dress code during the Attitude Era. I had just spent like $4,000 on new suits and shirts and just a whole new wardrobe. $4,000 is a lot of money to go out and spend at one time for a bunch of monkey suits and shit. I hadn't even got the stuff back from the tailor when Vince proclaims, God damn it, we're attitude. No more dress code. Just be neat. I'm like, motherfucker. So now the flip happened. I had gotten rid of every suit I owned. <laughs> and I didn't have any suits. And now all of a sudden it's like, Got to wear a sport coat. Got to wear a suit. I was like, fuck. So, yeah, I was not in favor of it. I was was not a happy camper about the new dress code. Who are the folks who were who were embracing it? I'm talking about main roster. Who was like, oh, man, I dig this. I can sort of strut that ass a little bit. It feels like we've heard that Batista was one of those guys. And uh, who was the other guy that was a big guy? Um Luther Reigns, he maybe liked it. I've seen a few guys who really, really enjoyed it, but I'm sure there were a few who just absolutely fucking hated it. But see, those were the guys that were already doing it, though. Those were the guys that were were dressed to the nines no matter what. You know, Ric Flair. Yeah, I've never seen Ric Flair not look like he was tailor-made. Best-dressed man in the business, no matter what. 
And you know, th those guys were going to do it anyway. So it, it, it was, um, got it. You know, Randy Orton, as a matter of fact, Randy was like, why can't I just wear nice jeans? And jeans were like on the X list. Uh, Randy didn't like it. And it was, I think that most most of the guys just looked at it like, uh, kind of rolled their eyes and okay, we'll do it. But there was nobody that was, yay, we have a dress code, because the guys that dressed, they they were already doing it. So it might, yeah, I mean, I I really think it came down to seeing the guys that were dressed that looked really good, like Batista and all those guys. It was like, god damn, they look sharp. And then somebody walks in behind them and shorts and flip-flops or a Tommy Bahama shirt and Nike shoes. Um, they go, God damn. <laughs> so I think it was a combination of a lot of things that got us to that point. Well, I mean, that's, that's like an old rule of thumb, right? Like dress for the job you want, something like that. Dress for the job you want, not the one you have. Let's get to SummerSlam. Rob Van Dam gets a win over Renee Dupree on Sunday night heat. Seems a little weird that Rob Van Dam's on Sunday Night Heat. Uh, Spike, Devon, and Bubba Ray Dudley are going to be in a six-man, taking on Rey Mysterio, Paul London, and Billy Kidman. London's going to sell the uh, first half of the match. Then they start the hot tags. Chaos ensues, and we wrap things up with a 3D on Kidman. It gets a star and a half. Uh, what do you think of this opening match here on SummerSlam? You know, I... It was what it was. I'll tell you one thing that I, I do kind of miss and it made me remember was the tag team of Paul London and Brian Kendrick, which I don't think anybody in a million years thought that they would have been anything. And to me, were one of the best tag teams I've ever seen. And that's what, that's what it just reminded It put me back there immediately when you look at this and go, Oh, what the hell? Um, I thought it was okay, but it was just rushed and chaos is the best word to describe it. I'm fascinated when you said, I don't think anybody in a million years thought this was going to be anything. Well, why is that? Because they weren't big single stars. Maybe the office was down on their personalities or work habits or why did no one in a million years see it? Because they, because they weren't big in stature Number one, second of all, I don't think that in the work that they had done prior that you got to see a lot of their personalities. And once you get to know both of them over the top personalities and a love for the business and just their personalities make up for their lack of size, but their work was tremendous. And again, from the outside looking in and what they had exposed to people up until that point. Yeah, I think you'd look at him. Hey, you know, they're pretty good, uh, good guys to have a match with, you know, solid hand. But to me, when we did the tag team with them and actually did something with them, I thought, wow, I thought they were great. Next up, we've got Kane and Matt Hardy, and this has been a little bit of a hot issue leading into this match. Uh, Wade would say it was too short. He only gave it one star. They go six minutes and five seconds. Lita throws the ringside bell into the ring. Hardy hits Kane with it. Kane gets his leg on the middle rope to break the count. Kane stops a Hardy superplex, choke slams him off the top down to the mat. 
and Kane scores the pin. Lita looks stunned uh, and they fit a lot of story here into six minutes. Uh, but the reason that it's cut short is because Matt's hurt. He's got a torn MCL in his left leg and a very badly torn ACL. Chat me up though, about the, uh, the backstory of how we got here, because what happens the next night on raw is kind of interesting. Well, I, you know, the, the story was going to lead to a, a romance story of sorts between Kane and Lita. And unfortunately along the way, Matt had this injury and it, it just kind of had to, to Peter out from there. But again, you, you watch it back and it, for what it was for what you had there, they got the most of what they had. So it, and go ahead. It's a pre-match stipulation here. If you don't remember this, if, if Matt Hardy loses, Lita has to marry Kane. So Matt Hardy loses. <laughs> now Lita has to marry Kane. Uh, Isn't that how everybody gets married? I mean, I know that's what happened at my house. It was loser leaves town, brother. Yeah. You had that one match and yeah. Anyway, she put me over roll tide. There you go. So the next night on raw coach tries to get a comment from Lita, (laughs) but she walks into her locker room where Trish, Gail, Kim, jazz, and Molly Holly all surprised her with a bridal shower. They present her with condoms, birth control. And an ugly picture of what the baby may look like. And oh yeah, a vibrator. And of course, Lita stormed off. That's a good thing that you guys aren't going lowbrow with your programming. And really you never have. How is that lowbrow? No, I said it's good that you're not. Because that was we not did. lowbrow. But you, you did it with an insinuation in your voice. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me that... A woman being forced to marry a demon from hell and being given a surprise bridal shower where they give her condoms and vibrators. Is, okay, first is, of all, condoms, safe sex. So I'm, that's a good I'm with message. It. Birth control, Birth control pill, pills. And, Don't and want any unwanted pregnancies. And a vibrator. There's nothing wrong. Listen, Vibrators, sometimes you got that, that spot in, in the back of your back that you can't just reach. You need a little extra help. And ugly is that's all in the eye of the beholder. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is why Jim Cornette calls my broadcast partner, the artful Dodger. Uh, Motherfucker, <laughs> fuck you. Thank you for that. Uh, next up, Todd Grisham is going to interview Randy Orton and John Cena. <laughs> Easy for me to say. John Cena. <laughs> yeah steps in and cuts a promo on Randy. And that sets up our next match, which is John Cena and Booker T and they're doing a best of five series. Uh, yeah, this is for the U S title, which Booker T was holding at this time. Of course, Cena is going to win the series three to two with the last match taking place at no mercy. And with the series win, of course, Cena is now the United States champion. Chat me up though. Booker T had a best of seven with Chris Benoit and WCW, and now he's doing a best of five with John Cena. Is this just a way to sort of showcase some wrestling skills, try something different, a retread of something we've done before? Why does this make sense? A best of five series. Well, it was to be able to get John in the ring and have him work with someone that could get the best out of him. Um, John at this point was still kind of in his clumsy stage. Don't know if he ever got out of it. 
but this was to, to just show people that, hey, he can work. And Booker was the guy to get the most out of him. So Booker had done the stuff with Benoit before in WCW, and it was Booker's idea to say, hey, what if we, we did this and let me get him over? Let me get some good matches with him. Once we get into a rhythm and we get to, comfortable with each other, we'll, we'll get him ready to go. And and this was during the time that we had to build stars. We had We didn't have the Stone Colds, the Rocks, and all that right now. We had to build new guys, and we had to get somebody into that spotlight. So this was pedal to the metal on John Cena. You, know, you said uh, in this clumsy phase, I, I don't really consider Cena clumsy. It's probably more unorthodox, right? Un- it is unorthodox. I, I used to like to call it clumsy, but it is unorthodox. It's just different. Yeah, like the, the way he moves in the ring, it's not as fluid as some of the other guys, but the result, it's still there. Like he, yes. he's, he's, he's making it happen. It's just not quote unquote pretty. It's not Barry Windham doing it in 1986. It's a different thing. Exactly. Uh, clumsy. N- next up clumsy. <laughs> there we go. Hey, if you're listening, John, fuck you. Bruce says you're clumsy. Uh, probably not listening though. Uh, raw GM. Oh, he listens. <laughs> well, I'm going to get trust, a different tr- kind tr- of tr- trust. Man. Trust me. He listens and other, yeah. Love you, John. So you want to back up on the clumsy thing now? Cause he may stretch you. He could do it. You know what? This is one of my favorite John Cena things. I'm standing in the hallway one day. He comes by and just punches me in the chest against the wall. And he says, that's just to let you know I can. <laughs> what the fuck did I do to you? Um, is this since you've been back or is this back in the day? No, no, no. This was back in the day. I was going to say, this would be great if everybody was like, and fuck you for 99. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> I hated that shit in 05. Wham. Yeah. All right. Here we go. The raw GM, Eric Bischoff, which doesn't sound right. Uh, tells the SmackDown GM, Teddy long, which also doesn't sound right. Uh, that SmackDown GMs don't last. Mm. Boy, that's prophetic. So he figures he'll be gone next time they do a joint pay-per-view and long said if Bischoff gets rid of Eugene, he'll be glad to sign him to SmackDown. Of course, we know Eugene's going to have a match later today on this same show, which I can't believe is a thing. Next up, though, we've got uh, maybe the oddest three-way for the Intercontinental title ever. They go eight minutes and 16 seconds. And when I say they, how about this? It's Edge, Chris Jericho, and Batista. The crowd is booing Edge throughout the match, which is the story of the match. Of course, they're in uh, Toronto. But- Toronto! Yeah. Uh, Edge gives Jericho a spear after Jericho got sidetracked by dropkicking Batista and Lawler says they're in bizarro world because of this strange crowd reaction. It gets a star in three quarters. And with this win, I believe Edge becomes only the second intercontinental champion to retain the title at SummerSlam. The only other one was Shawn Michaels who defeated Razor Ramon at uh, SummerSlam 95 in a ladder match. So usually that belt's flip-flopping here, but that's not the case. And what a random group of guys. I mean, this feels like, you know, knowing what we know now, this is a world title three-way, but Batista, Jericho, Edge, talk about a styles clash, huh? Huh. A little bit, yeah. And definitely it's another spot that we're in where all three guys, you're attempting to move up on the car and you're attempting to move these guys into that spot where they can be top drawing hands. Edge wasn't there yet. And you had, you know, you had to get everybody moved up a little bit and 
and moved into that spot. So it was, but it was weird, you know, all night long, this audience was a little bit weird though. Um, we thought again, you go in to Canada. We thought that edge being from Toronto, that they would cheer the fuck out of him. Jericho being from Winnipeg, not so much. And again, we just thought edge would be the baby face. And it was, you had to point it out. So it was, it was a little weird. It was a little strange. Just when you think you got it all figured out, they, every time they'll throw you a swerve. Next up, we got a 13 minute and 36 second match between Kurt Angle and Eddie Guerrero. And if that gets your interest, it should two of the very best that ever did it. Uh, three stars is what Wade Keller would give it. He said it was a thrall, a goddamn, a strong three star match that was Matt based and focused on angle working over Guerrero's ankles. And he said it was a bit too one dimensional to rise above three stars, uh, but a good start to a 20 minute four star match, but it ended maybe a little too soon for him. And, uh, there's supposed to be, uh, a tap out win with an ankle lock. Uh, and that happens right after Guerrero has scored a near fall with a frog splash. So we see the finishes from both guys. Frog splash doesn't get it done. Ankle lock does. It's a rematch really of the WrestleMania 20 match. I still think I like the WrestleMania 20 match better. I don't know why that would be though. Do I like it better in your opinion? Because that was for the world title. That was at WrestleMania. It was the first time we'd seen it or did this one not click or was Eddie just hurt here? I think that you like the WrestleMania one better because it was the first time and it was new and it was such a beautiful story. However, to me, I thought this was a beautiful story. One dimensional working a body part and going in that that's just stupid to me. Uh, I thought they told a great story of getting to that body part, weakening it enough to where he can actually score the victory and the victory came out of nowhere. So I, to me, uh, 800 stars, Tokyo Dome, 9,000. As a reminder here, Guerrero lost the title to JBL in June. So a couple months prior to this, and then angle the then SmackDown general manager actually cheats Guerrero and declares JBL the winner. And on the July 15th episode of SmackDown, JBL would beat Guerrero in a cage match. And towards the end of the match, El grand luchador would interfere. And he would give JBL enough time to escape the cage and win the match. And after the match ended, Guerrero attacks the luchador, pulls his mask off and Scooby-Doo, wouldn't you know it? It's Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle was El Grande Luchador. Uh, El Grande Luchador. Say it like you did WrestleMania or Royal Rumble 97. El Grande Luchador. (laughs) No, you're like rolling R's and shit. Come on. El Grande Luchador. There you go. Thank you. I like, you're like my... My personal little voice box, you know, over on what happened when Tony has went out and got this awful gadget where he just presses buttons and there's like crowd applause and shit like that. I don't need that. I can just call spots and boom, you're there. El Grand Luchador. El Grand Luchador. That's the Alabama version. Oh yeah. Um, overall though, what do you think of their chemistry together? For whatever reason, as much as I enjoyed their work separately, I never thought Kurt Angle was one of Eddie Guerrero's best opponents. Not saying one of the best wrestlers he ever wrestled, but sometimes it just doesn't click. I think if I was to name like Kurt Angle's top five opponents or Eddie Guerrero's top five opponents, they wouldn't, they would not be on each other's list. They would be on mine. Yeah. Really? They, now they, they had, they had times where they clashed, 
but it felt real. And that's what I liked about it because there was an air of authenticity to it. And there was a realness to all their matches. There was a professional rivalry. And there was a little bit of a shooter rivalry in there too. Cause Eddie was an amateur and Kurt Angle's the best in the world. So you always want to, you know, try your luck with the best. So, but to me, that's what made their matches so magical because you felt that and, and it, and it gave a, a real air of authenticity. And that's, I think what you're feeling. I can't believe this is a real thing, but the next match really is a feud that starts back on the May 17th episode of raw or during an in-ring segment with the rock. Eugene reveals that his favorite wrestler is triple H and, uh, yeah, it's because Eugene loves playing games and he is the game. And after that, triple H begins to befriend Eugene, even making him an honorary member of evolution. And of course, later it's revealed that triple H is just utilizing Eugene to help him win back the world title from Chris Benoit. And at Vengeance, during the Triple H Benoit match, Eugene inadvertently hit Triple H with a steel cane or a steel chair, costing him the match and the championship. And the following night on Raw, Triple H beat up Eugene in the ring. And on the July 26th episode of Raw, Eugene would return to Raw and cost Triple H his rematch with Benoit in the Iron Man match. And that led to Triple H demanding a match with Eugene at SummerSlam, which the raw general manager, Eric Bischoff makes, oh man, one of the biggest stars in the history of the business, whether you like him or not, triple H and at SummerSlam Oh three, he's in the main event for an elimination chamber with guys like Goldberg, Chris Jericho, Kevin Nash, Randy Orton, Shawn Michaels. And at SummerSlam Oh two. He's taken on a returning Shawn Michaels in an unsanctioned street fight. But here in 2004, he's wrestling fucking Eugene. Okay. And you'd be bitching if he is in the main event. Well, Triple H is in the main event year before, year before that, year before that. You'd be bitching if he was in the main event. Feel better? No. Well, tell me hurts a little bit. <laughs> Triple H. No, this is, you know what? I mean, this was a hell of a story, but it was a hell of a story that had gone on for a while in raw. And, but, and I'll even go back and, and say that I believe story will be the title every time. Anyway, so. I, I'm not arguing that. Listen, I'm for the story, but God damn triple H and Eugene on pay-per-view. This is a raw main event at best. Now it's on fucking pay-per-view. Yeah. Well, they go 14 minutes and seven seconds. Is that a surprise? Triple H had the longest match on the show so far. Probably not two and three quarter stars surprise beats his ass with a pedigree. Uh, William Regal's there. Ric Flair's there. Lots of interference. Uh, Regal is going to console a pouting Eugene as Hunter drags an unconscious flair to the back by his feet. It's a fun match. Two and three quarter stars. What'd you think? Well, again, you know, the story kind of took it. And when you look at the two guys involved and behind it with, with Triple H and with Eugene, Nick Densmore, uh, two great workers. And, and I thought that, again, Densmore did that Eugene gimmick tremendously and brought now, him to life. Let's mention that 
it's serious business. You should go watch this because I think a lot of people just sort of look back at Eugene and say, oh, and don't get me wrong. I'm with it. But that's what Nick Dinsmore was asked to do. And man, when he like, uh, flips off triple H in this match, it gets a huge pop. He's imitating other people's finisher, including doing the Hulk Hogan leg drop and, and going for the, the pin right away. There's some really fun stuff that Nick Dinsmore was able to do here. Of course, the Eugene character probably didn't age that well. Uh, maybe not the best idea, but it is a big opportunity for the man behind the character, Nick Dinsmore, uh, uh, against a really top star. So if you really want to see what this Eugene character was able to do and the man who performed as that character, this is a fine match to go see. But still, it is a little like, oh, man. I mean, like, at this point, you're not asking me to pay nine ninety nine, and I get to see everything that ever happened. You're asking me to come out of pocket 30 or $35. Fuck, there ain't no way Eugene's winning this. He's just going to get squashed. I thought he was going to win. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Well, we all win with the next one. The Raw Diva candidates beat the Raw Divas <laughs> in a quick pre-taped Diva dodgeball game. Uh, the, uh, believe you want to hear about this one? I do. But before I do, I want to tell you this. The Divas dodgeball match was actually the second highest rated match on the show in a WWE.com poll. It took 22% of the vote. The only thing that beat it was the main event with Randy Orton and Chris Benoit. So process that. Even though these Diva contests maybe were, uh, fans wanted to see it. And we can probably guess why. Because it was a shoot. The dodgeball was? Yeah. It was a shoot. We just let them go out and play dodgeball. It's hilarious. And our, the, the, the girls that got beat by the contestants were pissed. Fucking hilarious. Loved it. All righty. Yeah. Why not? Um, <laughs> did, I don't know what to say here. Did you produce that segment? Did anybody say, uh, if you can dodge a ball, you can, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball or. Hey, play dodgeball. Go. I didn't produce it. I watched it. I'm sure you did. I mean, this diva segment, I mean, I know we're at the tail end of what's acceptable here, but I mean, really, this is just another way to get T and A on the show. Is it not gorgeous women? That's what I'm saying. And, and listen, back then you said it, you said it in a lowbrow way. Oh no, I can't believe, you know what? That's not something we do here on the show. Everybody knows that this is a real classy show. We would never stoop to that level. Oh shit. Next up JBL with or, <laughs> my eyes are water. I can't see. Well, hang on now to be clear. Blue chew does not cause blindness. Bruce couldn't <laughs> no, see shit before. <laughs> The only time Bruce can't see when he's taking blue chew is when his dick is in the way of the TV. That's it. That's hey. Well, okay. All right. Let's move along. If we can, let's get things together here. We're a high brow, classy outfit. Yeah. We're high brow, classy and brow high. Yes. JBL and Orlando Jordan are going to beat the undertaker in 17 minutes and 38 seconds by DQ to retain the WWE heavyweight title. The crowd is booing Taker's offense and chanting Spanish table, Spanish table. Taker dominates early. JBL comes back about 10 minutes with some offense. They go back and forth and the ref goes down. 
So Jordan throws the title belt to JBL. He nails Taker with it. And with the ref out, Jordan counts the two, but stops when the Undertaker lifts his shoulder. Honesty somehow overtook him. Taker then knocks out Jordan with the belt. The ref comes to in time to see Taker hit JBL with it and calls for the DQ and the entire crowd boos the finish. And then Taker rammed JBL into the limo windshield and then slammed him through the roof of the limo. Two and three quarter stars. Um, this is one of the, even though this match is just sort of there for me because there's a smash finish. I still remember to this day, slamming him through the roof of the limo, which I want to shit on, but I remember it. So clearly you guys did something right. What'd you think of the match? Fucking a. And I thought that the match was damn good too. The crowd was a little weird. Yes. I'm going to give them that, but I thought that the match was damn good. And again, it was another step, Uh, man. JBL, the character was new. This heel getting him over and it was a way to take that next step with the heel champion and, and building that character. So this was an investment. But again, going back and watching all these years later, I thought, son of a bitch. They beat the shit out of each other. And I thought they had a damn good match. Like you say, you remember that last, the last bit. Going through the roof of the limo. How can you forget it? So uh, I thought it was damn good shit. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Let's talk about something that happened here. Lots of people asked us about this during the match. A fan climbed onto the roof with a limo and the roof didn't give way. And JBL believes the only thing that saved that idiot from falling through, which I guess would have been a double whammy because you would have injured the fan and then you would have blown the post-match angle is that one of the people coordinating the stunt had patched the breakaway roof a bit more firmly so it wouldn't noticeably sag before the choke slam spot but somehow when the kid runs across it it doesn't ruin it do you remember seeing that or hearing that and how bad were you guys flipping out in the back oh we were flipping out but also figured that well hell since it was designed to go through it that uh, probably won't happen so <laughs> we're safe it's all good but um yeah, a little bit of panic yes a little bit of panic at that point because there was a part of me that's thinking, oh, shit, man, do I have footsteps on the fucking thing now? But thank God it didn't get it didn't give way. Uh, JBL has said that that night Undertaker offered to put him over clean, but JBL declined the offer. What do you make of that assertion? Well, he did, and and Taker wanted again. It was contrary to a lot of popular belief, you know. There were guys, they wanted to get Layfield over. We needed to get a strong heel over. We needed to build new stars. And that's what Taker was looking to do. Taker was looking to build JBL and get that character over as much as he could. A clean win over The Undertaker would have done that. And we went with the heat finish just to, again, feeling that it would put more heat on the character with the disqualification. Hindsight, I think I would have still gone with the DQ. Next up, our main event, what everybody really remembers about this show. It's Randy Orton and Chris Benoit for the World Heavyweight title. They're going to go 20 minutes and nine seconds, and they begin a slow build and build the pace as they go. Benoit gets some near submissions throughout and scores six consecutive Germans, which was really, really cool to see in this time. 
Horton surprises Benoit with an RKO out of nowhere. I think we would see that a lot coming up. And that's the pin. Benoit leaves and then returns to shake hands with Orton. It's a four-star, very good match, according to Wade Keller. And it really cements Randy Orton as not only a top guy, but with one devastating finishing maneuver, probably the likes of which we haven't seen in a while here in WWE. What did you think of the match? And then we'll talk about sort of the behind the scenes. I thought it was excellent. I felt that the the match was absolutely excellent, and it's what Randy needed to have that credibility as a champion. So I don't know what else to say other than those guys busted their ass and Benoit made Randy Orton that night. Randy Orton was able to hang and say, fuck you. I'm here and I'm going to be a major player. I just, I thoroughly enjoyed the shit out of it. It is a really good match. If you can watch Benoit matches, I understand a lot of people don't want to. We're not here to talk about that today, but this is a really good one because you see him really make a young guy in Randy Orton. And at this point, Randy Orton had been a player on evolution and he, and he was definitely on the, you know, the, the uptake having feuds with, uh, Mick Foley and, and, and a lot of other wins over legends and, and big matches and moments and intercontinental title wins. But here he becomes the youngest WWE world champion in history at just 24 years and four months, which beats the previous record from Brock Lesnar which was 25 years and six weeks, two years prior to this at SummerSlam 02. Talk to me. Uh, I guess we should mention this too as a little footnote. I think this is the last time the world title would change hands at SummerSlam for the next five years. Uh, I think the next time it happened was SummerSlam 09 when Punk beat Jeff Hardy in a TLC match. But chat me up here. Is it even discussed? Did you guys know? Did anybody ask or put two and two together? That, hey, if uh, if Orton wins here, he'll be the youngest champ, not Brock. No. Never. Okay. I, I didn't even know that till you said it. Uh, well, it was talked about a lot on the show at the time. Orton got this title shot by winning a number one contender. That would be not after I watched it. I mean, fuck, come on. Yeah, I understand. You know what I mean. Yes. Uh, Orton gets this title shot by winning a number one contender's battle royal on Raw. And I think a lot of people assumed, you know, they're just, they're just trying this. He's not really going to win the world title because it was such a big moment at, at the end of WrestleMania 20, when you see Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit there and the big, you know, confetti, it was a really cool moment, a really cool treatment. And a couple of months after that, Guerrero loses his a couple months after that Benoit loses his and they lose them to JBL and Randy Orton, not to disparage either one of those talents, but that does feel like a deviation from an Eddie Guerrero and a Chris Benoit at this point had McMahon lost a little bit of confidence in this style of performer and felt like he needed more of a quote unquote WWE style performer. I don't think so. No. And it was a decision made first of all with Layfield because we needed to, we needed new characters and, and that was the goal there. And that was something that Eddie Guerrero actually suggested. What if I dropped the title to him? It's like, well, you know what? That would sure as fuck make him, um, on the raw side. You just said it, you couldn't predict it. This was a, this was uh you can't call it. Right. 
and it was shocking and it was one of those situations where you're looking at it and nobody I don't think anybody in the building could really call that match so that to me is the perfect attraction when you can't call it so again Randy being the future here was a kid coming up fresh and young looked the part was the part fit everything about it and it was time to go that way so let's let's try it and let's move the business is fluid and when you're when you're live every week and you're in that situation where well let's let's try something else you have that luxury when you have live tv and a pay-per-view every month so it was like what if let's try it with randy and see what we've got there let me ask this you know and i know you're gonna get real fired up when i ask but I just can't help myself. You know, when we're trying to make Chris Benoit, you, you told the story that we didn't necessarily think that it was the fact that Chris Benoit and triple H couldn't main event or wasn't enough star power. Benoit wasn't, wasn't enough to be a main eventer. We wanted to put him in a three way at WrestleMania with Shawn Michaels, just to make it even more impressive that we get Benoit over. We do a rematch. And it's more of the same. And then eventually we have singles matches with uh, Triple H and, and their Iron Man matches. And, and we've talked about that on this show. So we've really established Chris Benoit as a top guy. But now here is a surprise, something you couldn't call. The RKO out of nowhere. We're getting that finish over. But just like a month later, less than a month later, Triple H beats Randy Orton for the world title. Chat me up. Was Randy Orton a transitional champion? Because you didn't want to have Randy, or you didn't want to have Chris lose to Hunter. No, you had a story with Evolution. You had the whole story with Evolution where Randy wins the title. Does Randy get the big head? It was Triple H who you've got Flair and Triple H who are the big dominant dogs in that pack that feel that triple H should be the champion. That was the story it was about evolution. And you put that on Randy. Now it's, well, yeah, you know what kid good for you bringing the title back to evolution, but it really belongs around me. That was the story. It was all story driven. There's wasn't that story. You go back and beat Benoit. Okay. I beat Benoit an evolution guy beat Benoit but it was the wrong evolution guy in, in Hunter and Flair's mind. It feels very uh, throwback to when uh, Sting was supposed to have a title shot in the NWA and Flair was the world champ. And of course the rest of the horsemen just assumed, well, Sting was going to forfeit his title shot because it was against Flair, another member of the horsemen. And when he didn't want to, they kick him out. So that's, what's going to happen the next night on Raw. We're going to get there. But when did you guys decide Hey, this is the direction we want to go and we're going to break up evolution and Randy Orton's the guy. I, I really and truly don't remember. Um, I want to say it was, it was during the summer, obviously, but I, I don't remember that exact moment other than Randy Orton consistently going out and having the best matches on the, on the show and going, Hmm. We might have a baby face on our hand there. 
So no matter what he did, he's go, he goes out there and he's cool and evolution's cool and all this shit. And, and at the time, man, they're, they're liking what Randy's doing. He's young. He's good looking. Fucking they're liking what Batista's doing. It's like, oh shit. Um, are we going to have a cool group or do we need to have a heel group? And by doing this little flip flop in there with Randy, it gets Randy over to the baby face side and it's a story. So I just think it, it kind of came just natural progression. You start listening to the audience going, well, fuck. And you strike when you can, no pun intended, and get what you can out of it. Was Triple H reluctant to break up evolution? Uh, why did you guys think, hey, this has sort of run its course? Well, the audience the audience was letting us know. And the audience was, was again, finding Randy and Batista cool. They liked them. So I was like, well, are, there, are you going to be a heel faction or are you going to be a, a baby face faction? And we needed that heel faction there. So slide one of them out. You got four guys there to fuck with. Slide one of them out and you're good to go. It's worth mentioning Chris Benoit never won the belt again. Uh, what do you think of that? Don't think anything of it. A five, five month run, not a big deal. Not disparaging it. I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, it wasn't long enough, but Flair wasn't champ very long either. I'm just saying, I think when I think about Chris Benoit's world champion, I do kind of think it was longer than five months and it really wasn't like, I. I don't know why that moment uh, in time of him being champion really sticks out so much to me. Wasn't necessarily a hardcore diehard fan at this point, but uh, I still feel like it, it feels like he was champion longer than just a few months. Doesn't it to you? Yeah, it does. But it, it, at the same time, who who's to say how long is the right time when sure. it's time, it's time. And the same could be said with same could be said with Eddie, but yet people still remember Eddie is the champion in, in that whole the whole time people even go through the the jbl run and think that eddie was champion through more of that than he was so it's it's interesting when people say oh well they should have left him on it oh they left it on him too long right right it's it's all subjective and i think that you you did hit it on the head when people talk about it it does feel like it was a lot longer but it, it was time and it wasn't a wasn't an indictment of his work or anything else. It was, there was another story. We've got to move on and move everybody on to, to different shit. We should mention that, uh, the next night on raw Lillian Garcia would introduce Randy Orton as the new world heavyweight champion. And when the crowd cheered Orton, he told them he didn't have, they didn't have faith in him. So he didn't want their cheers. And he asked all the 24 year old men to stand up and take off their shirts to prove how much better he was than them. And a music video airs sort of highlighting Orton. And he says the Orton era has just begun. And Chris Benoit comes out and says he's getting his rematch and exercising his rematch clause tonight. And later in the show, Orton gets the win. 20 minutes and 10 seconds, he retains. And afterwards, Triple H, Flair, and Batista are celebrating with Orton. But when Batista has Orton on his shoulders, Hunter turns his thumbs up to a thumbs down. And Batista drops Orton on the map. Hunter beats him bloody and says you're nothing without evolution. So even though we tried our best to turn Randy Orton heel, this of course turns him a baby face and he's going to stay in that role going into 2005. 
what do you think of Randy as a baby face? I, I, I'm not going to shit on it, but I am going to say that I much prefer Randy Orton as a bad guy. Randy Orton is a bad guy. <laughs> well, Randy not, not is really. a natural heel. Yeah, he is a natural heel. He just, he looks like a guy where you're like, ah, oh, fuck that guy. I don't know why, but people, you know, people say that about Charlotte too. They say that, you know, she looks hateable and, and, and I prefer Charlotte as a heel to a baby face too, but Randy Orton, I just always prefer as a heel. And this sets up Randy Orton against Triple H at the next pay-per-view, Unforgiven. And as we said, Triple H is going to get the win there. That sort of brings us to a close here for SummerSlam 2004. We're going to get to some questions, but before we do, how did you rate SummerSlam 04? It doesn't feel like a show that's talked about very often, but there was certainly a lot of noteworthy stuff that happened here. There was, I, you know... Full disclosure here, I watched this a couple weeks ago when I thought we were going to do it, so I didn't rewatch it, went through the notes and everything. But I wasn't, it was one of those I wasn't blown away with going, fuck, man, that was a great show. It was a very good show. But it was not like a blow, blew my mind, great show. I thought it was very good, but it was, it wasn't blown my mind. Well, but we... It, it, we hope to blow your mind next week with SummerSlam 1999. Uh, put it on your, your must-watch list. It goes down August 22nd, 1999, so about 20 years ago next week. And on top, it's a three-way with Mankind, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and Triple H. The Rock and Billy Gunn are going to have a kiss-my-ass match. And there's lots more craziness on here, including a Lion's Den weapons match, a Greenwich Street Fight match, lots of fun stuff. Uh, so... Watch SummerSlam 99 this week to prepare for next week. But before you do, let's get to some of your questions. We posted on both Facebook and Twitter. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Pritchard Show or check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. We're going to rapid fire these, Bruce. Are you ready? I am ready. Uh, Jim wants to know if Flair was 55 in 2004 and still considered to be a high profile wrestler. With younger guys like Triple H and Cena now on the rise and being super popular themselves, it begs the question, how big was Batista's dick? Still thinking about it. Johnny great wants to know, why didn't you give Rhino and Tajiri the tag title since you were hyping it so long. And then you didn't even give them a shot after some corny horse shit with La resistance and Finner interfering in some beat the clock nonsense against some random jobbers. I don't fucking know. It's so great that old Johnny T great. <laughs> All these years later, I'm talking about 15 years later, he's fucking furious that Tajiri was robbed of his tag team title run. I don't know why that fucking tickled me, but it did. Uh, A great friend of the show, ADC, the Weird Al of Wrestling, Andrew David Cox, wants to know, given the Olympic theme of the SummerSlam artwork, how well does Bruce Pritchard think that Batista would have done in the pole vault? Did he have like a gymnastics background? I, I didn't know that. Some sort of track and field. Doesn't look like a runner. 
Ed Dead by Dawn wants to know, was there a wrestler's court punishment for the experienced divas being beaten by the new divas? Ivory has said this was punishment. I think they sh- that there should have been, yes. I think they all should have been punished severely. Jeff wants to know, Kane being Alita's baby daddy. <laughs> Who booked that shit? <laughs> that was great shit. Punt the baby. I love that shit. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Uh, Lots of questions about, and this one comes from Ron P. Hypothetically, what would it sound like if Jim Cornette was to sing Randy Orton's theme song? I have voices in my head every night, motherfucker. Sometimes when I'm just sitting here, thunder going off around me. He, uh, dreaming. He used the evolution theme song at this pay-per-view. Well, I know, but all I know is I hear voices in my fucking head. No, no, it was just one of the comments. They wanted me to say that to get you fired up again. Uh, Just Chris wants to know, did you expect edge to get booed in Toronto? No, not at all. What's up with that? I, you know, if you fucking put a baby face in there and he's not from Toronto and they cheer the, I don't, the Canadian. They eat poutine that I didn't get any of bastards. Well, here's something everybody can get some of. This is a Billy gun fact. This is a question from the Billy gun fact account. All right. And how about this? Uh, Bruce's house was legit. Just struck by lightning. So we're going to wrap things up, Bruce. Uh, some people will do anything to get out of work. Uh, let's see if Vince buys this shit. Holy fuck. Okay. Right. What shit? <laughs> are you okay is everybody all right yeah i think so i'm out in the office man i can't i'm, I'm afraid to go out over to the house well ladies man. and gentlemen this is it's ugly uh, it's ugly here folks those those that are in friendswood on when we're taping this they'll know well even if you're not we appreciate you braving the uh the lightning storm to join us here talk a little SummerSlam 2004 tune in next week for SummerSlam 99 if bruce is still alive we'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with shaka khan bruce pritchard hey hey it's conrad thompson and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard in his house on a real microphone. Can it be? It is. With with uh, uh, the internet stuff and phones and everything. Congratulations on being a real boy. You got power. You got internet. You got cable. You're on a microphone. You're not in a parking lot. We didn't have to try our connection 32 times before we got something that sounded remotely passable. It's a good day. You're welcome. <laughs> and shout out to Comcast or whoever the hell got you up and going again so we can sound like some of them real boys. Because today is maybe one of our most requested topics ever SummerSlam 2005. I'm fired up about this one, Bruce. This is one of our most requested topics ever. Eh. Is it, are you going to be like that on one of our biggest shows ever? Just eh. Eh. All right. I mean, well, you know, I'm I'm in an eh mood. Okay, let me ask you this. Am I allowed to be in an eh mood? You are, but can I ask you this? You could. 
Well, we'll be in a eh mood when we see the Thunderdome tonight, bitch. I'm fired up. Thunderdome? What a fucking cool name. Well, I'm extremely excited about that, yes. I mean, this is going to be, listen, nobody knows what to expect. Well, you know what to expect, but we don't know what to expect. And I'm kind of, I'm like low-key excited, I think for the first time ever, just to see a set. That's where we are in wrestling now. We get excited about sets, but this thing, I don't know, man. Me and Eric have been talking, not on the show, just in real life. This could be a game changer, and I'm really excited. So everybody tune in to SmackDown tonight and see what all the fuss is about. And by the way, we got a SummerSlam coming up this weekend, don't we, Bruce? Yeah, I can't wait. That's going to be extremely exciting as well. And, you know, we talked about the last few weeks of getting Paul Bosch's uh, a lot of the stuff from his library and going through and it. And guys, guys, it's you have no idea. I still haven't been able to go through all of it and go through things. But the little tidbits and nuggets of things that you get. Uh-oh. What'd you find? Well... I found notes from a phone call, uh, March 1st, 1987. Um, Wait, with one David Meltzer. Hang on. March 1st, 87. That's when you're like pulling double duty, right? With, with Vince and Paul, you're sort of being the liaison and working both places. Is that right? No, not yet. Okay. Not yet. Uh, I was just pretty much in the Houston office and, uh, let's just say, that the comments that Mr. Meltzer made about his, um, his fans that read his newsletter were quite interesting. Don't, don't do this. What are you, why are you doing this? Why? Well, because it's, <laughs> because it's in black and white. Yeah, but it's in black and white where you wrote it. Yeah. That's back when I used to think that, uh, that the guy actually did something. God. I just want to talk about SummerSlam. I'm putting over your bullshit Thunderdome. Can we just be happy? Oh, no. You want to talk about bullshit? No. We can talk about bullshit. No. We can talk, we can talk all about bullshit and, ah. and the thing and the uh, fraud that has taken place for umpteen years oh. by some people claiming to be more than what they are. So the build for SummerSlam on Raw starts on the July 4th episode, John Scaredy. Cena and Chris Jericho. Well, I'm not scared of shit, but what are we doing? I'm, I wanted to talk about SummerSlam 05 and you're jacking off over notes you wrote to yourself from 87. No, no, no. These were wrote, these were notes that were written for Paul. They were in Paul's, uh, file with letters from, uh, said person from California and notes that he took. From speaking to this person too. Yeah. Are we going to post them? Real, on real good guy. Real straight up arrow guy. Yeah. Can we just, can you like take a picture and us or scan them in and us just post them on adfreeshows.com and let's get to SummerSlam. We'll see. All right. Well, it's your show. What do you want to do? Let's do it. Or read us the note. No, I'm not gonna. Well, then why'd you bring the shit up? Guys, you're just, just you're just cantankerous. People always ask about the tidbits and different things that I'm finding in there, and I, and really interesting, just um, timeline and chronology of things that have happened from the time that 
when Paul sold to Bill Watts, when Paul uh, left Bill Watts and went to WWF and things of that nature. It's, it's fascinating in some ways, many ways. I don't know who the hell else would care, but uh, to me, it's fascinating. Well, I mean, our listeners care. You want to share with our listeners? I think our listeners do care. I think that uh, that uh, overall, the history of it and the mechanics of the business are are quite fascinating. Without question, she's still not going to tell us what it is. No, no, but I just found it found it interesting. Are we going to post it on adfreeshows.com? I don't know. Okay, he said that the he found. Uh, now I'm not even gonna say it because I don't want. I I just don't want to deal with the denials and everything else. Hang on now, hang on. When I tried to move on and talk about SummerSlam, you said scared. Yeah. Okay. So are you scared? No. What are we doing right now? Well. I'm actually sitting in my studio office and, um, we're, do, we're doing us a podcast here and, and by God, how many times did we reschedule this this week? So we, we had it set for Sunday night and you moved it to Monday and then, uh, you moved it to Tuesday, then you moved it to Wednesday and now it's Thursday. Well, and then, then we moved it to Thursday Yep. and you were upset about that because you wanted to get a table. No, 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 no. Here's what's happening Thursday. Google Fiber was supposed to be here, but they had trouble with the construction on the outside, so it got pushed off a week. So I literally couldn't have done it if I was sans internet. I, I didn't want to be talking to you. Oh, for so my now you can part. relate to being sans internet. Well, here's the thing. I had internet on Sunday when we scheduled it. I had internet on Monday when we scheduled it. I had internet on Tuesday when we scheduled it. I had internet on Wednesday when we scheduled it. But on Thursday morning, I was not supposed to have internet, but now I do have internet. So here we are. And you're telling us. You want to buy a table. Yes. Megan is making me drive to Nashville, Tennessee to buy a table today. To replace a table that still works. You've, You've sat at my kitchen table many times. Love your kitchen table. Many chicken wings have been consumed there by you and I over the years. And, uh, she no longer wants that table because it is rectangular in shape. She says, we need a round table. I don't get that. This table works fine, but apparently she's also promised Dave Silva and his wife that they can have our rectangle table. So I think I'm going to Nashville today because of Dave Silva, not really Megan. So basically you're buying a new table for Dave Silva. I'm buying a new table for Dave Silva today. And that, that was apparently a high priority where I'm going to miss part of a work day <laughs> to go get Dave Silva. Uh, you know how much I love Megan. Yes. But I got to strongly disagree with the round table. Yep. And that the table you have is, uh, it's a cool table. Megan, I know. Like just, I- just get, look, dude, go to Wayfair or something like that and just get uh, Dave a new table. Wayfair. I don't need. Human traffic. Let's keep. Let's go back to the show here. SummerSlam 2005 is our topic today. After a bunch of rambling mess at the top of the show, but we're going to start the build for SummerSlam on the July 4th episode. We got Cena and Chris Jericho brawling during a highlight reel, and that's going to start the WWE title program. We've also got Shawn Michaels and Hulk Hogan teaming up to defeat Kurt Angle and Carlito. But afterwards, at the celebration, Shawn Michaels super kicks Hulk Hogan. And we're off to the races. We've got a new program 
talk to me a little bit about what was the work that went into putting together Sean turning heel against Hogan and the whole program itself. Was there any hesitation from either guy on either side or did these two trust each other from the beginning and then it deteriorated? How does this all come together? And I assume that part of the lesson that we learned at WrestleMania 18 was if you're going to put Hogan with somebody, fans are going to cheer him. So he can't be the heel like we tried to make him against the rock. The fans wanted him babyface. So if somebody's going to turn heel in this scenario, it can't be Hulk. Do I have that right? Well, I think that in looking at it, there was an initial reaction that do you need to turn either guy? And the feeling being that in, in reality, I think there were just going to be, and there were Sean fans and there were Hulk fans. The overall feeling of this was taking the guy from the eighties and the guy from the nineties and putting them against one another because each had their own legion of followers and fans and what have you. So it was kind of a natural, but I don't think that, I don't think that really you had to turn anybody and Sean could do heelish things. Hogan did do heelish things and their fans forgave them. And the other person's fans despised them for that. So it was just kind of playing into both men's personalities and not making a full fledged. Oh my God, this guy's got to be a heel. Yeah, we got there, but uh, even as we got there, I think it was still divided somewhat. When when this is first proposed, whose idea is this? And do you remember both Hogan and Sean being receptive to it? In the beginning, yeah, both were were very receptive to it, and I, you know, it was a conglomeration of the writing team and getting to this match. And it might have been Michael Hayes even that first suggested the match, best of my recollection. But it was something that everybody was saying, if we could only get to this, shit, this could be good. Because, again, you have the two heroes from two different eras. What was the relationship like in 05 here, uh, you know, July, August 05, with Hogan and Vince? It feels like over the years they've sort of played hokey pokey. They've had their ups and downs. Were they on good terms here, or or did it feel like Hogan in this era still had one foot out the door at all times? I think especially during the times that Hulk came back that there was always that feeling of, you know, what's the trigger going to be this time? And for Hulk and Vince, look, they had, you know, like any relationship, they had good times and they had bad times. So throughout this, it was post-WrestleMania, so you're looking at, okay, is somebody going to be upset at payoffs or anything else, or is it time to take the summer off? So you had to weigh in all of that shit. And overall, I think that in the middle of this, in the meat of this, I think that Vince and, and Hulk had a pretty good relationship. It's just weird to know that, you know, he was here before during the, the whole rock thing. That was O two O three, but then he leaves. He winds up actually doing a show with New Japan. Teases like he's going to do some stuff with uh, with TNA in O three, and did the whole attack with Jared at the press conference. 
But then when he goes into the Hall of Fame in April of 05, it feels like, hey, man, we're, we're back in it. And we had that big WrestleMania moment with, it just feels like we're trying it again, but we're not, we're not really here for the long haul. Was that sort of the vibe you got as well? I think every time that you tried it, you were wishing you were. You were wishing that, man, this is it, and and we can take it to the house. You know what I mean? It's like, ah, finally, this is the one. Just things work out differently sometimes. It's it's interesting, too, because we've heard over the years, you know, and certainly Sean and Vince had their ups and downs, but it certainly feels like Sean and Vince have had a much tighter relationship as a whole than Vince and Hogan. And it feels like, I don't know, this has got to be a special match even for Vince. Yeah, I think so. Because, again, you look at the, the, the creations and what they meant to the company and overall the support of the different fan groups throughout the years. There were loyalists on every single side, which made it a natural. And Hulk had that overreaching just to, to to everyone knew who the hell Hulk Hogan was. I think probably to this day, most people still do. Um, so yeah, it was, this was one of those that you, you needed to get while well, you had both of them on the books. You know, we talked a little bit about Hogan turning or, or Sean turning heel. And you said you weren't sure that you had to turn anybody heel. Why did you ultimately decide on, Somebody does have to be the bad guy for us to tell this story, and it's going to be Sean. And, and is is there ever any consideration for it being Hogan? And was Sean, you know, just glad to be the heel? I think that again, just as I said before, as far as turning heel and what people would consider turning heel was to their to their audience and to their fans, they weren't turning heel. They were saying everything that was true and they were doing what they wanted them to do. So both sides, to me, both sides, both guys in a traditional sense turned heel. Well, yeah. And and to your point, and we've talked about this before, but the best like movie villains don't believe that they're bad guys. They believe in what they're doing. And yeah, they may have some interesting ways of, of getting the job done, but their motivation is their belief, which is something that they, that like, they're not waking up thinking I'm going to go do bad things today. No, they say, Hey, I'm going to rob a bank today and that sucks, but I'm not going to try to hurt anybody, but I'm doing that to take care of my wife or kids or whatever. But they believe that they they're doing, maybe they're doing bad things, but they're doing them for the right reason. If that makes sense. Or they don't even necessarily believe that what they're doing is bad as, right. as much as necessary. Right. Let's talk about some news and notes uh, outside of this angle. On the website, WWE.com, you guys announced that negotiations with Brock Lesnar are back on. Did you know anything about these talks in 05 and and how close or how how far away were they? They were just talks. And, yes, we definitely knew about them, but it it was talk. And that's all it was at this point. And you hear about that all the time. So you see something in the dirt sheets or that we, we release it ourselves because you know, it's going to get out there, but not to talk would be a sin. And there was always the feeling that there was something that could be worked out and just looking to absolutely get it done. 
on the uh, July 11th Raw, there's some pretty notable moments from the show. Kurt Angle's going to defeat Matt Stryker in his three-minute challenge. But beforehand, Stryker's portrayed as Matt Martell, and Angle cuts a promo on him stating he knows he's Matt Stryker because he's been in the news about missing days as a school teacher to begin a wrestling career. Did you guys just think when this news came out that this was this is too good of a story not to put on TV? Well, yeah, because it was especially in the Northeast, not just not just in New York, but all over the Northeast, the media picked it up and it was a interesting story that was all over the place. So why not capitalize on it? Why not tell that story because Matt had left his job as a school teacher because of this. And we thought, okay, good looking guy, good hand. And let's tell a story with him. Let's see if we can, we can get this and get some more media on the other side of it. Just made sense. Also on that raw, we see uh, Cena and Jericho announce that they're going to be facing off at SummerSlam. Eric Bischoff makes this title match and, Around the same time, the Torch would report that Jericho's contract had expired and he had been working on a short-term extension through SummerSlam. Do you remember, you know, how he was to deal with in, uh, as far as contract negotiations in this era? I mean, it seems like he's been here nonstop since 99, so we're six years or so with the company at this point. Was he looking to just take a break for a little bit and sort of get out of the race car? Uh, Chris was... Look, Chris has always been one that wanted to take time away, wanted to go do his Fozzie stuff and be a rock star and not necessarily go anywhere else, but he had had his time and and it'll come again. So this became the norm, but also Chris was just steadfast in his thinking. He knew what he wanted to do and he knew that he wanted to take a break, not necessarily go someplace else but just take a break and do something else for a while. And I think that from a business standpoint, you always hate to lose one of your top guys, but at the same time, you don't want to burn them out. And I think Chris was getting close to burnout. Let's talk about, um, the original plan. It's been said, I think even Jericho wrote in one of his books, maybe that the original plans were for him to work Carlito but he winds up making a pitch directly to Vince that he wants to work with Cena and put him over uh, at SummerSlam. Do you remember that being the case? Maybe the original creative was a program with Carlito, but campaigning directly to Vince does the trick, and he's in the title shot with with Cena? It may have been. I really don't remember what the original was. It may have very well been Carlito, because that seems like it would make sense. But the idea to put over Cena as he's on his way out made even more sense. So, of course, that's a, that's an easy decision to make. Roddy Piper's hosting a Piper's Pit with Shawn Michaels, discussing the Michaels super kick on Hogan. But it ends with Michaels hitting Piper with a super kick of his own. Was Roddy easy to put this promo together, or is it two guys that you knew didn't have to be scripted? Or what can you tell us about? you know, working with Piper and Hogan in this era. (laughs) Well, I don't think Roddy was ever easy to script. Roddy wasn't a script guy, but at the same time, he became, he became one that would look at what you had and try to make it his own. And 
did a damn good job of doing that. So you you had to bal- you had a balancing act with Robbie. You had to write something that you knew that he could tweak and that you knew that he could make his own and pray that he didn't go too far off into the woods. Um, Sean, you give Sean the points and Sean's going to, going to get it all in for you. The, the biggest thing here is, is that the, the view that Roddy had of himself and his outlook is okay. You know, where's my program? What, what am I going to be doing then on the other side of this? And, and this was during a time that we were really trying to, for Roddy's own health, get Roddy out of the ring. And I just don't, you know, it, there wasn't plans. Maybe you could have had something with Roddy and Sean, but it definitely wasn't in the cards at that point. Let's, uh, let's talk about Matt Hardy for a minute. Finally after months of fans chanting and Matt essentially doing his own independent promos online, he makes his first appearance back on WWE TV since he was released. And he's going to wind up attacking edge here, calling him a bastard on air. He's even going to call Lita a whore. He says WWE could kiss his ass. We did a whole episode on this four years ago, uh, which is in the archives. You should check it out. Something to wrestle.com. But you had to be feeling pretty confident that, this is going to be a story that's going to engage most of the WWE universe. Am I right? Well, yeah, because it's, it's real life and it's, it's a love triangle and it's real emotion that everyone feels it's sometime or another in their lifetime. So regardless of whether people knew the true story or just thought that, Oh, Hey, we're writing a storyline for this. Any way that you cut it, it was emotional and had reality based right smack dab in the middle of it that people could identify with. Let's, um, let's just refer everybody. If you want more on that story and what a topic it was to the archives, I'm sure we'll talk about the match here in a few moments, but, uh, man, what a story. A lot to that one. Um, let's follow up on the Lesnar updates. Wade would report that the, the company is unable to, put terms together for Brock Lesnar. Apparently Lesnar rejects a written offer. Uh, Wade would write Brock Lesnar and WWE were unable to come to terms on this go around in negotiations. Last month, the company publicized that Lesnar was meeting with Vince McMahon about a potential return. Uh, and they also reported that he had a contract in hand last week, but Lesnar and his attorney have given a written, uh, had been given a written offer roughly two weeks ago. And management grew impatient with how long it was taking him to sign it. Apparently, the major terms of the contract had been verbally agreed to. But then it comes out that, well, it's not going to happen. What's the reasoning in disclosing on the website we're in negotiations? That feels out of character for the company. Well, because other people, it was going to get out. It was definitely going to get out per you know, Brock's agents and what have you, we knew it was going to get out. So we wanted to be in front of it. There was, plus there was no reason to hide it. You know, what, who were you hiding it from? Well, the thing is, it feels it when it's reported like this, Oh, we're in negotiations. It feels like a storyline. It feels like an angle. You know what I mean? 
It does, and, and it blurs with reality, and this was reality that blurred with storyline. You, you can take it both ways, and the reasoning for it was one of, you just knew that it was going to be out there anyway, and we might as well be out in front of it and have our story out there as well, in a correct story versus rumor and innuendo. Raw the next week from Philadelphia has uh, Shawn Michaels and Hulk Hogan make their SummerSlam match official. I mean, there was never any consideration for anything else headlining, right? This was always going to be the main event? In our head, yes. I mean, that, that was... You look at that, and that's a damn attractive headliner. So, yes, in our head, it definitely was. Do you think you started to have that in mind, like WrestleMania? We've heard way back in the day, you know, early 90s, late 80s, you would try to look at, like, WrestleMania to WrestleMania. But as you start adding all these other pay-per-views, it feels like you start to think about your more major ones. Yes, we've got minor pay-per-views, sort of B-shows, if there is such a thing, along the way. But the big pillars of the company being, you know, WrestleMania and Survivor Series and Royal Rumble and SummerSlam. When he comes back and you see the reception and how well he's received and it seems like things are clicking along, do you sort of have Hogan, Sean, in your mind's eye as a main event for SummerSlam coming off of WrestleMania? Or do you think that's more of a May-June type thing? No, it was more of a June-July type thing. It definitely wasn't immediate. I think that with Hulk coming back at WrestleMania at that time was a feeling out period and to see a, how Hulk would be, how the audience would be and what we would have moving forward. Uh, let's talk about raw from Cleveland on July 25th. It's got some notable things. First of all, CM Punk is here doing a dark match. Uh, the Miz is going to team with Matt Capitelli in a dark match against the Highlanders. Uh, Rob Conway is going to debut a theme that is uh, well-remembered by WWE fans at the time. Johnny Swinger is going to debut as Johnny Parisi on Heat. Eugene is going to return after six months off, and he's going to defeat Kurt Angle in the Kurt Angle Invitational to win Angle's gold medals. My goodness, this is something else. Did you have any fear that the Eugene character at this point was, was dead and buried and Whose idea was it to have Eugene beat Kurt Angle after all of these Angle invitations? This feels like a a last-minute decision, or, I mean, this couldn't have been the payoff you originally envisioned. Talk to us about Eugene coming back here after a layoff and beating Kurt Angle. Well, this actually was one of the payoffs that we did envision with Eugene, and no matter what you want to say about the character, the gimmick, or anything like that, the gimmick was over, and the character of Eugene was an excellent worker. So you knew you were always going to get good matches with him and the character was unique and that the audience loved him and wanted to help him. And, and yeah, that was actually one of the payoffs that we finally got with Kurt. So yeah, it felt good. Let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, the decision. I mean, is, is angle, I mean, I know this sounds silly, but Kurt Angle is one of the all-time great entertainers beyond just being an all-time legitimate badass. He, he's probably in love with a storyline like this, right? I mean, he loves hamming it up. Yeah, Kurt was having a lot of fun, and you add to that, Eugene having an awful lot of fun, and the chemistry that Kurt Angle and Eugene had in the ring 
how, how could it not be? This is also a show where Viscera would team with a little person to defeat the heartthrobs and their little person was named pocket rocket. Bruce who booked this shit pocket rocket. I can't help, but what his mother named him. Oh, okay. So his birth certificate is rocket comma pocket. Well, no, no. I, okay. We just took his first and his middle name. Oh, I got you. So it's like pocket rocket Jones or something. Yeah. I I, actually, I think it was, um, Edwards. PRE Smith. <laughs> PRS. Edge and Kane continue their feud. Uh, Edge and Kane have a stretcher match, but Kane drives Lita off in an ambulance after the match. Is this the most Vince storyline ever? I mean, this is one of those Kane driving an ambulance. This is something else. What a red, what, the big red machine can't drive. Of course he can. It's just, I he's don't a, know. he's a, he's a mayor of a major County in Tennessee. <laughs> no, that's Glenn Jacobs. I'm talking about Kane. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, he can drive. Paul Bearer taught him how to drive. He used to drive the hearses all the time in the funeral parlor back when he was a little baby pyromaniac. That storyline is something else. Uh, on the SmackDown side of things, JBL is going to defeat The Undertaker with a little help from Randy Orton uh, for the number one contendership to face off against Batista at SummerSlam. Also on that same show, Eddie Guerrero is going to cut a promo on Rey Mysterio and his son Dominic that he's really Dominic's father because Ray and his wife couldn't have children and Eddie was separated from his wife. Dominic runs off through the crowd and Ray follows him. What the fuck, man? Greatest storyline ever. Oh my God. You don't mean that. You know, you yes, lo- I do mean that. One of the greatest storylines ever. And I will debate that till the end of time. Well, sell us on it. Well, I, again, I, what the fuck is there to sell? This was a beautiful story about, you know, Eddie Guerrero had put his book out. And in the book, there's a chapter about the time frame that Eddie and Vicky had been separated. And Vicky, I mean, Eddie had a child out of wedlock and not one of his proudest moments, but Eddie described it in his book and he never mentioned the name of the mother, never mentioned anything beyond that. So there's this gaping question in this really heartfelt book about Eddie Guerrero. And I thought, well, shit, we should just answer that question. What if Eddie being the loving, generous guy that he is, Oh God. Gave some love. Ah, to his best friend's wife that maybe Ray couldn't get the job done. Oh. But Eddie not wanting to let his friend know that it was his and make his friend feel that maybe he was manly enough to get this done, just kind of snuck in and made an arrangement with the wife and that, you know, the wife had been lying to Ray all this time that it was his that it was really Eddie's and it was a plot and that Eddie was the father of Dominic. 
And then he wanted to keep that secret until, by God, it just had to come out. Literally. Hey, yeah. uh, this is happening. This storyline is happening at the same time the whole Edge, Matt Hardy, Lita thing is. Too Once much? again, based in reality. That's what we're going with? Saying it wasn't based in reality? Yeah, I'm saying that I don't think Eddie um, had sex with, yeah, with, with Ray's Eddie wife. Eddie did have sex with a woman that had a child. <laughs> we just place names on those people. By the way, how wild is it? I mean, you want to talk about the circle of life. We're talking about Dominic's storyline from 15 years ago, and he's got a storyline at this year's SummerSlam, too. Is that not crazy? It is crazy. Runs in the family, man. It's real. He's got that Eddie gene in him that just. Oh, God. What? I, I thought you were going to say he's got the Latino heat or something. I was just going to hang up. Uh, we should also mention. God damn, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> I mean, serious business. He lies. He cheats. He cheats. He steals. Do you have to get everybody together and make sure they're on the same page? And I know this sounds silly because, I mean, most everybody listening to this, certainly I hope, is an adult. But the reality is kids can be cruel. And if this kid's going to be going to school and people are going to be saying very unkind things about his mama, that's not a cool thing. Well, he was also very young. No, this was um, put my old salesman hat on. (laughs) And I I went to, I got the guys together first because again, you've got two very emotional and passionate performers in Ray Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero and uh, Ray probably a little more (laughs) level-headed than Eddie could be at times. Um, But I had to sell them first to even take the next step. And then after you take the next step and, and you you allow them and had to pitch it to, to the wives and everything, um, now they've got to, to absorb that and, and let it sink in. And then they've got to get with each other and they've got to make sure that everybody's cool with it. Then after everybody thinks they're cool with it, you have to throw – all of that reality at him. And you have to explain to them that look, um, to Vicky and to Angie, you guys aren't in the business. Um, you're married to the business. I get it. It's been your life, but you're not performers that everybody knows. And this is going to be a real life story. And we are actually using the real life child of Ray and Angie. You know, one one, uh, stunt kid that we got at uh, Ray Mysterio Kids R Us or anything like that. And that they needed to be comfortable with that and the reality of, as you said, kids at school talking about his mom, his dad, and Eddie that they're watching on TV because kids don't understand. You know, I'm shooting shit right down the street (laughs) from, from where... Uh, Ray Mysterio lives with his son in a in a park. 
Hey, Dominic, man, you want some candy? Um, that was great shit. I'm just sad that I never got my Dominic on a pole match. Oh, my God. What? <laughs> I felt that was the best way to settle it. Is this Vince Russo? Bro. Please. Dominic on a pole. It <sighs> happened. No, thankfully it didn't. Let's uh, let's keep it moving here. Matt Hardy's going to be reintroduced officially on Raw by Vince McMahon. It's the August first Raw. Vince is going to bring him down and say it was controversial when he had been fired, but he's rehiring him and booking him against Edge at SummerSlam because he does what's best for business. And of course, Hardy walks to the ring, shakes Vince's hand, and then explains his situation to fans. And he even basically says, Hey, just so y'all know, Lita's marriage to Kane is just a TV storyline. She actually came home to me. Um, but he wishes that edge was dead for stealing his girlfriend. And he would be pleased if edge died in a car wreck before SummerSlam, but one of them will die at SummerSlam. Lord, this is some strong language here. If you had it to do over again, would you've done it this way, acknowledging, Hey, uh, what y'all are seeing on TV is bullshit. I'm going to tell you the real truth. That feels like that doesn't belong. But then I hope the guy dies in a car wreck. And if he doesn't, I'm going to kill him at SummerSlam. What the fuck? Yeah, not not good choice of story there to go. I hope someone dies in a car accident. No. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't sit well at all. But I mean, here's the thing. He's I'm not piling on Matt here. This is probably something that had to be approved or or perhaps even written for him, right? I'm sure it was approved somewhat, but again, it just doesn't. God forbid uh, that that creative then happened in real life. Uh, not, yeah, not good. You, that's that's one of those lines that we should never ever cross. Let's talk about a line that was crossed and happened on Larry King live, believe it or not. And this is going to yield one of my favorite parodies ever. Hulk Hogan is on the show and he's joined by his wife at the time, Linda, and their two at the time, teenage kids, Brooke and Nick. This is a pretty high profile interview because CNN's Larry King live was uh, a big deal for that program or that station. Rather it airs on July 28th. He's promoting his VH one reality series. Hogan knows best trying to get their ratings to stop their slide. Uh, after three weeks, they were down nearly 50% compared to their record-setting premiere. Let me take a timeout right there. This is all coming to us from the torch. This recap, by the way. How much of Hogan wanting to be on WWE programming did he think would sort of work hand-in-hand with Hogan Knows Best? Because it does feel like you know one can help the other. If you can get the wrestling fans re-engaged with him, Maybe they'll seek out Hogan knows best and that could become a whole new thing. Of course, we know in hindsight, it wound up being a disaster for the family, but at that time, it probably made sense as a way to sort of promote the new show, right? Yeah. It made sense for Hulk. Definitely. Because he was on this series and it had done very well in the beginning, but it also was a different audience than what the WWE audience was. Um, Believe it or not, it was it was family. It was a lot of a lot of new viewers that kind of knew who Hulk Hogan was, but they were more into you know the kids and the family drama of it all. 
So the synergy was was there, and it helped Hulk, it helped Hulk a lot more probably than it helped us. Let's uh, let's talk about what else he says in this interview with Larry King. He's talking about his feud with Shawn Michaels, and he's demeaning Shawn, saying, "Oh, he's just jealous for never reaching true main event stature." And he did a series of interviews during these couple of weeks, like there was a radio interview where he says, "Quote." There are a lot of things he'll never do at places I went that he's never been. This is like his one shot to even the score up his one shot to say, Sean Michaels is really the showstopper or whatever he thinks he is. And that it's kind of a jealousy thing. So at the end of the day, he can do all his personal stuff he wants and tell everyone how great of a person he is. But as far as the wrestling business goes, it was a straight up cheap shot. And that's where he's coming from the lower tier, a bottom feeder position. So at the end of the day, I have a feeling he's bit off more than he's ready for. So part of this feels like, you know, a pro wrestling angle, but Sean, I mean, anybody who's achieved as much as he has, I can see how he could take some of this as, mm, how much does Terry really believe of that? Did you guys, I mean, certainly you knew that Hogan's going to promote SummerSlam on there, but is there some sort of conversation about what we will or won't say like this heading into it? And I know that may sound silly, but I'm trying to add context while I'm asking the question. Once upon a time, him and Brett tried this and it did not go well. Well, yeah, because I think sometimes guys are like, Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's, let's do all these things that people are thinking and, and make them believe that, we're shooting and all this stuff. It's the same thing here. Yes. This, this was designed to say all of the things that the audience and fans on both sides were saying in feeling there, there was that sentiment. Ah, Shawn Michaels couldn't walk in Hulk Hogan's footsteps. There was the feeling Hulk Hogan couldn't work a Shawn Michaels match on his best day. Um, all both sides had valid points that they felt needed to be expressed. So yeah, this was all, it all was orchestrated. It all was put out there to cause controversy and to have people go, Oh, what's going to happen. Let's uh, shift gears. It also was reported in that same issue of the torch that James Gibson, AKA Jamie Noble would be re-signed by WWE. Uh, What did you think of this decision back then around the same time Spanky was re-signed? Was there a push in this era to bring back the the smaller, more work rate kind of guys in 05? I just think it's too great talent. Both, both Jamie Noble and, and Spanky, tremendous. Brian Kendrick, uh, they were both great talent. And regardless of their size, their talent was ginormous, still is. So always liked them both. And for whatever reason, they were gone and time for them to come back. The July 25th Raw is pretty memorable. It's got a spoof of Hulk Hogan being on Larry King Live, except it's Shawn Michaels doing his own. Uh, Wade would clarify. He says, for the record, Shawn Michaels comments on the July 25th raw raw and the pre-taped Larry King live spoof this week were all scripted and approved by Vince McMahon. There was no breaking from the agreed upon talking points. 
Michaels never planned to nor wanted to turn full-fledged heel as he entered the program with Hogan, uh, culminating at SummerSlam. In early discussions about the match, Hogan suggested that Michaels superkick Nick either at SummerSlam or as part of an angle on Raw before the pay-per-view, but Michaels resisted the angle in part because he didn't want to be that strong of a heel and also because he felt the match between them didn't need the extra stuff to get over. His attitude is that bells and whistles aren't necessary given their statures in the industry and it's their first time against each other. A lot to unpack here. Do you remember one of the ideas being kicked around that Nick could take a super kick? <laughs> I, I don't, but I'm sure it was. Uh, I, look, there were a lot of things, but you didn't need it. Right. You really didn't need it. The match, the first time, was enough. Right. It was as simple of a build as you could possibly get. Two icons coming together for the first time. Two different eras colliding for the first time. What's going to happen? What do you remember about the Shawn Michaels spoof on Larry King Live? Would you have been producing that or would someone else have? Maybe. Oh, God. Help me, Bruce. <laughs> uh, I had a hand in it. And the I think that the best part to me was the ungodly layers of spray tan that we put on Sean was just hilarious. And then I became jealous because it was just so dark and that fucking tan. God. Um, but no, it was a lot of fun. And, and everything that we, everything we did on it was 100% calculated and done for a reason. Tremendous. We're going to play the audio from it because I think it's just one of my favorite parodies ever. Uh, Tatanka also returns on this raw to face off against Eugene. Uh, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but where the fuck is Tatanka here? <laughs> I'm sure he's a nice guy, but I, I love Chris. I don't get nice it. Nice guy. Hell of a worker. Uh, all, checks the boxes. It's like a football bat in 05 though. Um, seriously, man, it, it would take, it, it would probably take an entire show to describe and, and it would probably be in poor taste. So I'm not going to go there, but to describe a lot of the, and it wasn't with Tatanka, it wasn't with Tatanka. It was, it was dealing with, um, other issues in the return of Tatanka and one day I'll, I'll get into it in a politically correct way. But, um, talking was a hell of a hand. Probably still is, man. The son of a bitch is in, last time I saw him was in incredible shape. Um, but timing's everything they say. Timing is everything they say. You're going to tell us why he's back here. Give me a cliff notes version. Because he, he because he came in and had a hell of a first night. That's simple. That's simple. He came back and had a great first night, and he came in as a one-off. And Vince looked at him and said, "God damn, he looks great." And, and he did. He did look great. Just um, hindsight would have liked to have approached it in a little different way. 
Oh man. It would take me four hours to, to I mean, seriously, it's, it's that when, when, whenever anybody want to get, wants to get me going, they just throw in a few jabs of this time period at me. And, All right. Here's another one. Chavo Guerrero is repackaged as Kerwin White. Why is this your favorite gimmick of all time? By the way, in the gimmick, Chavo denounces his Hispanic heritage and calls himself America's great white hope. You couldn't get away with this these days, of course, but how was this not thought of as a, as a bad idea even back then? I mean, I guess it worked out for Dolph. But nobody else. Well, I think that the the idea was was that that Chavo was probably one of the most Anglo Hispanics that you ever knew. Um, what does that even mean? Well, it just means that you know when you I grew up in in Houston, Texas. My best friend was Armando Canales. Armando's parents came from Monterey, Mexico. And Armando was, uh, as Eddie Guerrero used to say, a Mexican's Mexican. I never knew. <laughs> I never knew the difference. Like I didn't. All I knew was Armando was my friend. I, I didn't. I didn't understand prejudice. I didn't understand all these other things. It was just the only difference between Armin and my house was was that they spoke Spanish in his house, and. I loved him. He's, he's passed on. He passed on last year and, and, uh, just completely, you know, it was one of those, I've lost a lot of friends and, um, he was supposed to come to our last Chicago show and didn't make it, uh, missed the show, like missed us by 30 minutes and, and passed not, not long after. And I, I mean, I just, I, I was devastated. But anyway, I, I grew up in, a lot in that culture. I grew up in uh, just as much in his home as anybody's home. And they used to make comments about people that were Mexican, but that grew up in the United States and that tried to be more American and more white than being Mexican and tried to shun their heritage. And to Armin's family, that was so disrespectful and it was so, um, so wrong, but just so prevalent. And his uncle was someone that they thought was, was trying to do that, was trying to, to, to be a, a white man, as they would say. And I just didn't get it because it was just, they were just people and, and he was just trying to fit in. So anyway, getting back to Chavo, um, you know, Chavo is about, uh, you know, his heritage speaks for itself. Uh, best friends with his father, um, his uncles, and, Never, never got to meet his grandfather, but, but Chavo was raised in the business and it was just, you look at Chavo and Chavo was raised in the United States, um, with an American mother that Chavo didn't, didn't come across as 
someone from Mexico. He's extremely proud of his heritage. He's as Mexican as you're going to get. Um, but it, it was just a, a different way, and, and I, I looked at it kind of as a heel. Oh, of course to, it's got to be a heel to denounce yeah, your heritage. Because That's you're a heel. denouncing, you're, you're trying to walk away from your heritage. And Chavo got it. Chavo understood it. He's like going, yeah, I know people like that. And I know you know, he got it and embraced it. Um, I just don't, it didn't resonate. It really didn't resonate with people. And I think that most people were, were offended by it. So that was a bad call on our part as far as maybe the presentation of it, but it was meant to be half-assed tongue in cheek. Of course. But at the same time, portray something that is very real in our society. But I mean, the golf cart, the, the fucking sweater vests. I mean, this is silly. By the way, Kerwin, that's a nod to Kerwin Silfies, right? Yeah. I mean, can you think of a more uh, just whitey tight ass name than Kerwin? No. Well, if, if we've all. Either that Kerwin or Conrad. Oh, fuck off. What? Uh, or how about Bruce? Conrad Hilton? Bruce Valanche. No, see, Bruce is a cool name. Really? Bruce Jenner? Bruce Valanche? Bruce Pritchard? Three of them walk into a bar. Who books the Thunderdome? Hey, um, talk to me about White. White is just because he's a white guy, and Kerwin is a nod to Kerwin Silfies. How does Dolph wind up as a caddy in all this? Because he knew which clubs to pick. Oh, Jesus. We're not going to get any good show out of you today. <laughs> um, I bet, I bet in, his, in his college days, he did know what clubs to pick. This one till two. That one is the after yeah. hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a, it was a different way to introduce off. Just another way to, to get him. And I think we had moved on from the spirit squad at that point. Yeah. And uh, it's a different way to, to get Dolph involved. Can you imagine? Dolph has done all right. I mean, that's what I was going to say. He starts out as a goddamn cheerleader. Then he becomes a caddy for Kerwin Probably White. That. Who would have ever thought at the end of this, he'd be world champ. I mean, nobody would have predicted we're going. I mean, that's, that's humble beginnings. That's a success story, baby. Yes, it is. Uh, Smackdown on August 4th has JBL and Batista announced their match at SummerSlam. It's going to be a no holds barred match and Orton and Undertaker confirm their SummerSlam match. This episode also features Eddie surfing Ray with custody papers for Dominic. Who do you think drew those up? Would that have been uh, your boy Clarence Mason who drew those up? Dewey Cheatham and how? Oh, yeah. Who could forget them? Uh, during the same week, Bret Hart comes to terms with the WWE and Vince McMahon about working with the company to do a DVD regarding his career. This is a big deal because it's been a no-fly zone for a long time, a lot of hurt feelings after the, the screw job in 97, obviously it goes to another level after Owen's tragic death. So to hear that Brett was going to do something with the company again was really exciting for longtime Brett Hart fans. I was fired up about this and I think a lot of people were probably shocked that this even has an opportunity to be a thing, but it doesn't feel like anybody can keep grudges with the company forever. Were you surprised when they mended fences here and, and decided to work on a project together? Nothing surprises me. And it just was 
a matter of time before it actually was going to happen. I think everyone knew it was going to happen. So when it did, no, it wasn't a, a big surprise or shock or anything like that. It was two adults that got over their differences and realized that stakes were made on both sides and were able to move on. So that's, in a nutshell, what it came down to. I think that sometimes people believe what they see on TV, and yes, there, there were. Look, no doubt about it, there were hostilities there. But in the, in the end, we're all human. We all make mistakes, and, and we, we can all forgive. Uh, don't necessarily have to forget, but you can forgive and move on. And that's what happened here. So once Brett and Vince were able to meet and get, get over all of that other shit, things were at least moving in the right direction. Let me ask, you know, I don't know what you know or don't know. And that's a rule. We don't talk about current stuff, but I just saw a note the other day that this DVD has been removed from the network. Is this more Brett and Vince, you think, hokey pokey, or is that a network glitch? Or no, I have no idea. It's just real random. Somebody said all of a sudden, a lot of the Bret Hart stuff was off the network, and I was like, well, I don't know how that would even be, but let's talk about something we do know, and that's Dusty Rhodes is going to meet with Stephanie McMahon about signing with WWE, according to The Torch. He's going to come into the WWE headquarters, and the website would even quote Stephanie saying, Dusty is an incredible asset, both creatively and as a talent. We're exploring all possibilities of working with Dusty in the future. And Wade would write, former WCW booker Dusty Rhodes was most recently head booker for TNA. He and WWE had communicated earlier this year regarding the potential for him being a part of their Legends program, but Rhodes turned it down at the time due to his involvement with TNA. The meeting may have expanded to include discussion of Rhodes joining the creative team, providing an experienced traditional wrestling perspective, to largely inexperienced groups Stephanie has surrounded herself with. So let's set that last line aside a little bit. Dusty Rhodes coming back into the fold, is this something you would have been campaigning for, or what can you tell us about this meeting? Um, I, I was told about it in advance by Vince, and you know, Dusty had been inquiring about coming to work, and Dusty wanted to come in and be a part of the creative team, and uh, come in and help in some way. So he, they, I think Stephanie had asked, you know, for, I don't want to, she didn't ask for a resume, but she was like, you know, tell me, Dusty, tell me about yourself. Tell me what you want to do type thing. And I think Dusty sent her his book. You want to know what I've done? Here's what I, here's what I am, baby. This is what I've done. American Dream Dusty Rhodes. Stardust himself, baby. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like, okay. But then, you know, they met and just looking for Dusty to be possibly a part of the creative team. But the, the reason for the meeting was to get into Dusty's head as to what he was looking to do. Yeah. What, you know, what, what are your thoughts? What are your, what would your plans be? And what would you want to do if you could make, wave the magic wand and make it happen here? Lots to unpack there, but I do want to take an aside about the Stephanie thing. You know, I think Kevin Sullivan years ago talked about having a meeting with Stephanie and Stephanie asking Kevin, if he had a resume or something for her to review. 
And I know a lot of wrestling fans were just really, I don't know, put off by that with the insinuation that perhaps she didn't know what he had done. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I'm not saying that Stephanie was a, a student of the game, so to speak, or knew everything that happened outside of WWE, but the company had become more of a corporate animal. So even when guys like come to the headquarters to interview now, it's probably an expectation that you're wearing a suit and tie. This is a publicly traded company. It's a different ball game. So if you're going, either you're going to be a corporate business and have a corporate culture or you're not, so to speak. So if you're not dressed apart and you don't have professional, you know, resumes and things like that, then you might not fit as part of this system now. And maybe they didn't do that in Georgia or Florida back in the seventies, booking with Eddie or Oli or whatever. This company has evolved to where now there is a corporate culture. And I think Stephanie sort of gets shit on for asking guys, you know, for those professional things. I, I just don't well, think that's necessarily fair. No, it's not fair. And it's, it's completely unfair, actually. Look, I do the same thing. I will read as much as I can on potential candidates and, and different people. Uh, talent. When they come in, I may have followed their career. I may, you know, know something about them, but still, when I sit down to meet them, I want to hear it from them. Tell me about yourself. What have you done? What's your proudest moment? What's your least proud moment? Um, I, I want insight. I want to hear it from them. I don't want to, uh, a lot of times if, if a resume is more than two pages, I won't read it. If you can't hook me in one page, then, you know, I, you've lost my interest in a lot of respects. But the just so you still, know, Bruce, if you're there. Just so you know, you, if I wanted to hook you, you'd be hooked. Well, that's what they say. Um, the the interview process is, is a getting to know process. And I think that, well, I know um, that. Stephanie's not going to walk in to any meeting unprepared and not knowing she ain't going to let on that she knows, but I guarantee you she's not walking into any meeting unprepared and knowing about the subject that she's about to embark. Now she'll want to hear it from you. Let you tell the story versus reading something in a book or, or hearing hearsay because a lot of times you're going to hear shit, a lot of negative things about people that they may have an ax to grind or, or that our society tends to cling to the negative. Very little positive ever gets out. And we like to read about the negative and gossip about the negative. When the positive a lot of times will outweigh the negatives and the negative may not be exactly accurate. So... Yeah, it's it's. Tell me about yourself, Dream. I want you to tell me. Tell me about yourself, Kevin. I want you to tell me. Tell me what you've done. Tell me. Tell me about what it was like when you did it. To get the mindset and be able to get inside someone's head a little bit and find out what makes them tick. Let's talk about why he wanted to leave TNA. You know, I know he had tried his own promotion. I think it was turnbuckle championship wrestling or something like that, but he had like his own indie thing going. 
and he was working as a booker for TNA, but that's probably in this era. I mean, they're operating on a bit of a shoestring budget. It's probably just a day rate. So getting a, a cod locked real deal contract with WWE is a, is more substantial money and, and more of a safe bet, more guaranteed money, if you will. Right. That would be the motivation. I think so. It's just to be a part of something a lot bigger and to be a part of, of something that was that more people could see and that he could really sink his teeth into. I think that Dusty had fun in TNA because it was a lot of young, kind of rebellious group of talent. Um, but Dusty, Dusty has always strived to be the biggest and the best. That's why he wanted to be at the WWE. He wanted to be with the biggest and the best. He didn't want to be sitting in the back of a pickup truck on the Universal Studios lot. I don't even think they were there at this point. I mean, they may have been, but I think they were, uh, yeah, actually they had just started doing TV down there. So I guess they just left the, uh, the asylum or whatever, the fairgrounds. Well, yeah, because that was actually the analogy Dusty gave me. Oh, there you go. I was sitting in the back of a pickup truck on... On the lot there, you know, with the studio's pumpkin head, with being, a, being in the ninth office, you know, with people coming in. and You know what I'm talking about, pumpkin head. It's hard for me to imagine Dusty living in Connecticut. Um, were you excited about the idea that Dusty may be a part of creative, or did you think that, you know, he might not necessarily be a fit with this new way of doing wrestling TV the way it was done now with writing teams and scripts and revisions and things like that. If you had asked me 10 years earlier, I think that, uh, from this time I would have said dusty would not have been a fit. Uh, but I think that dusty had reached a point in his life and in his career that he didn't have to, you know, be the whole kit and caboodle. So I looked at it as an opportunity for, some of the younger members of the team that had never experienced anybody like that, a top guy that had been through the territories and had the experience that Dusty had, that that would be healthy for everybody. And plus, I like Dusty. I think part of what you're saying is you've got a sort of, uh, once upon a time, Dusty was the bull of the woods. He was the biggest draw in the country. He was the star. And then he was another time the head booker with the hot hand. But at this point, he can be neither of those in this corporate structure. He would have to just be a contributor and probably with most performers, you know, we've seen the way Ric Flair used to be the main event. You know, he was the it thing. And in more recent years, he's been a contributor, whether it was with Charlotte at ringside or Randy Orton at ringside. And that's true with, with any performer with age, they can't be the center of the spotlight. They've got to just contribute. And you felt like maybe by this point, Dusty was ready to embrace that. I do. I, I really do. I think that uh, even if he wasn't ready to embrace it, uh, I think that <laughs> for a lot of the people on the team, they could have sucked out what knowledge they could from him and still benefited, even if it didn't work out. On the August 8th edition of Raw, we've got a main event of Matt Hardy in his first WWE match back. He's going to defeat Gene Snitsky here. And uh, Edge is going to attack him afterwards to keep their program building. And it also features Chris Jericho defeating referee Chad Patton because Patton counted a pin on Carlito the week before in a match against John Cena. That's good shit, man. 
I like it, the idea of, of a wrestler versus a referee. That's pretty creative here. Well, thank you. You're welcome. That's probably Brian Gerwitz's idea. Yeah, I didn't think he came up with anything that Yeah, good. no. Uh, Kurt Angle is going to attack Eugene after a match to get his gold medals back. And Eugene saved, of course, and uh, we set up a new match uh, <laughs> between Hogan and Angle. Why would Hogan and Angle be put on free TV? Just because it was, you didn't see it as really a uh, a pay per view match, and it should just be a television attraction. No, it's again. I think that during this time, you're kind of looking at television and providing the best television that you can too. And it wasn't a twenty thirty minute big television match. I think Hogan would have asked the questions like. Why in the fuck am I ever in here with this guy? God damn, he hurts. Uh, <laughs> but it, it just made sense. And, and it was, again, it wasn't a a big, gigantic match. Well, the match, I mean. It was like, oh, hey, yes, it's a great attraction for one time. And we could have gotten to an angle and a story with them. But this was kind of a one-off nice step in the story. Let's um, let's keep it moving. Let's talk about uh, the, the the Randy Orton Legend Killer gimmick. He's going to continue it on SmackDown against Kamala. Kamala recently passed away. You got any good memories uh, that you can share with us about James Harris besides his penis falling out of his trunks that one time? <laughs> is that not enough? Well, it is one of the more classic something to wrestle bits, but. I'm sure there's more of a more fitting tribute we can pay to the man. Yeah, uh, James was just a hell of a hell of a worker, and it's funny that a you know a guy that broke into the business as Sugar Bear Harris is a you know just jovial baby face with a big smile on his face all the time, and um, I, I would liken him to the early bad bad Leroy Brown. Um, baby face, bad, bad, Leroy Brown. And James just was, he had the size, he had the temperament and Jerry Lawler turning him into Kamala, uh, turned it into a gimmick that lasted just forever. And, you know, you go back and you look back at some of the early, early Kamala stuff, and I'm I'm saying before he went to WWE, was the plastic Hawaiian lays around his arm. It was hokey as shit. But folks in Tennessee, the folks in Louisiana, man, they bought it. And James was a convincing monster heel that played that part to a T and everywhere that he went, he drew money and you believed it. Even if you doubted wrestling a little bit, you believed Kamala just had a wild kind of far off look in his eyes and his, his work was credible. So it was like, ah, I don't know about the rest of them, but this guy ain't fucking with. I got to tell you, it feels like everybody has a great Kamala story. Uh, Arn Anderson shared one and, uh, man, I think the, the coolest thing that I've read in a long time is Dave Meltzer's obituary, his tribute to Kamala this past week in the observer. Uh, if you can hear my voice and you're a wrestling fan, so you're listening to this, you will love that story. 
man, nobody has a story like this guy. Go check out the Kamala story inside the more recent observer. It's just phenomenal. I mean, seriously, great stuff. Let's get back to our show though. All right, let's keep it going. Let's talk about, uh, the go home raw. Cena's going to defeat Jericho and Carlito in a handicap match when Cena pins Carlito. In your opinion, I mean, Carlito had some steam and he's working in the main events, but it feels like whenever there's an opportunity, he's going to be the guy to take the pin. Were you guys just not sold on him as being a top guy? Did you think his character could survive it? Does it hurt him in the long run? Let's say you. I think that Carlito was definitely a top guy. And his work and everything about him said top guy. But uh, I, I don't subscribe to, oh, my God, he lost a match. He's dead. No, I'm with you on that. Let's talk about what we're really here for. Uh, this same show, we've got Hulk Hogan defeating Kurt Angle by DQ when Shawn Michaels interferes. But the bigger story is reported in The Torch. This is directly from Wade's writing here. A few weeks ago, the feud was limping along. Michaels was giving wishy-washy tweener promos. It felt as if Michaels was going to be a good trooper and play his role as the latest job to Hogan's leg drop. Then Hogan would move on to producing six more episodes of Hogan News Best for VH1, and Michaels would move on to another feud, able to redeem himself from the Hogan loss with a good match or promo and a strong opponent. Then something happened along the way. Hogan took some pot shots at Michaels during mainstream media interviews, Michaels got inspired and spoofed Hogan in a borderline heavy handed way on raw. It appeared things were going to be interesting. Come August 21st, they went face to face on raw for a major segment that closed out the August 8th episode. And it appeared things were back to the usual routine with Michaels cutting a more traditional heel promo Hogan cupping his ear and getting cheered. Michaels throwing a punch and Hogan blocking it and knocking him out of the ring. Michael showed signs of being the bump machine whose job was to make Hogan look good, do the job, and just be happy to be getting the minority share of the main event pot of gold that Hogan has so generously shared with his opponent over the years. But it turns out that may not have been a sign of what's to come. It may have been Michael showing Hogan what he can do for him, but at the same time, he can take it away. In a sense, he gave Hogan a sample of the drug that can make Hogan feel really good, but he doesn't have to give him any more. Michaels gets to negotiate whether Hogan gets any more of that addictive drug. He can either decide to bump for him and make him look great or not. It's dependent on how Hogan acts in the days leading up to SummerSlam as they negotiate the content of the match and the finish. Michaels and Hogan were well into the hype of this feud and no finish had been agreed to. Nothing even close to a finish had been agreed to. In fact, it's not unusual for Vince McMahon to allow that since whenever two top names are staring at each other down behind the scenes, It keeps them occupied and motivated. When push comes to shove, McMahon can insert himself into the situation and play peacemaker and reach a compromise that suits everyone, including himself, of course. That's fascinating to me. We'll take a break. There's lots more that he wrote here. But I'm I'm really, I don't know, shocked. Maybe I shouldn't be. That there wasn't a finish? Or maybe there was a finish, we just weren't telling anybody. Yeah, we had finish. We did have finish work telling anybody, and we had ideas of it going on and on. But you also wanted to see how it played out. And why does everybody need to know the finish? Right. I understand that. Meltzer would say, easy for me to say, Wade would say, sorry, force of habit, boys and girls. Hogan has done things along the way. What? Uh, Just said stupid idiot what's wrong with you 
Hogan has done enough things along the way to make, make Michaels feel anything but magnanimous about him. Uh, Hogan worked out with the rock in a practice ring in Florida before their match. Hogan turned down Michael's request for a similar dry run. Is that because Hogan is older and more broken down or he has more confidence in Michael's ability to wing it, or he feels this match with Michael's isn't worth the trouble. Hogan, after all, is entering this match as the designated babyface. He knows that formula. Well, no need for a dry run or practice. Michaels could simply pop in a Hogan versus Hercules match from 86 and memorize the pattern he's expected to follow. Michaels, though, is going to be around in three months and probably three years, but will Hogan? Probably not. Hogan's got his reality show to push and his daughter's career to fertilize and hoe. Meanwhile, Michaels is just getting rolling on his latest multi-year contract extension with WWE. Does he, whose only legacy is his wrestling track record, want to play by Hogan's rules and do what's best for Hogan? This is fascinating to me that he turned down the opportunity to sort of do a walkthrough of the match. Is that something Vince has a strong feeling about one way or another? How does this get out that that Hogan wanted or Hogan didn't want to do a run through with, with Sean? I, I have absolutely no idea how any of this shit gets out a lot of times. And a lot of it gets just compounded and convoluted and works off of rumor and innuendo. And that, you know, maybe Sean said, Hey, can we get together and do a run through on the match and Hulk not being available to do it? I have absolutely no idea, but that turns into, ah, Hulk doesn't want to do it. Just have Sean plug in his shit. And, and that's people, you know, talking back and forth. And then one person hears it. And that old game of you whisper in one person's ear, they whisper in another person's ear. And by the time it gets to the end, it's completely different than, what the original phrase or saying, whatever was. So I think that that was what was happening here a lot. And as far as, uh, you know, I don't think that anybody had, I don't think anyone had, didn't have confidence is what I'm trying to say, uh, in Sean being able to pull out a great match with, with Hulk even if Hulk couldn't do anything. So there's that too. Um, the next thing written here is, so insiders say Michaels began playing hardball regarding the finish of the match in recent days. He didn't want to be 0-1 against Hogan, and that's it. So now there's talk of Michaels actually beating Hogan at SummerSlam, and in exchange, Michaels does the leg drop job at Unforgiven in September. After all, if Ultimate Warrior got to score a three count against Hogan, why not Michaels? If anyone has earned a pinfall win over Hogan, it's Shawn Michaels, even more than The Rock, Steve Austin, or Triple H. Michaels is a worker and workhorse. He continues to work a near full schedule for WWE, and he plans to be around for years to come. Bret Hart, if healthy enough to work full-time, also deserves a pinfall win over Hogan. It all makes business sense, and it would be the right thing to do out of principle. Michael's skills as a worker is what will make the match even possible. His promo skills are what make the match big money. What do you take of that when a guy like Wade Keller says so-and-so deserves it? I don't think anybody deserves anything. Right. So it's business. You, you do, you don't always get what you deserve. You don't always get what you want, but you get what you get what you need. 
And who is he to say who deserves what? You do what's best for business and you do what's best for the story. You want to talk about a promo, man, go out of your way to see the 20 minute all out heel promo in Montreal, right before SummerSlam. Uh, Wade would say it's the best heel promo of Sean's entire career. Nobody wants to boo him more than Montreal and boy, he played into it in a big way. Uh, Wade would write, Michael played into that and seemed more comfortable in his skin behind the mic as a heel than at any time since becoming born again. Without being raunchy, Michaels was a cocky jerk again, unabashedly. And they even do a little tease where they they tease Bret Hart's music in Montreal. This is just great stuff. What do you remember about this promo in Montreal? Well, it was also the point where you looked at it and you said, okay, let's go stronger with this because in traditional media, if you will, out there, say Larry King or whatever else and anybody else that was doing publicity on this show, the guys are throwing jabs back and forth and we had been pretty careful on the television show how we handled that. And then it became, well, fuck, we just need to go there. Go. Go, go out and and to to me I didn't look at it as a heel promo I looked at it as the truth well and, and that's what's so great about it is the crowd hates him right so they're chanting the na 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 song at him when he's in the middle of a promo I mean they're basically saying okay we're done with you go away so he just lays down in the ring and does nothing and after about 30 seconds when they stop singing and start booing he jumps up and says now that you understand who's running this show i'll continue it's just really great stuff and he even says hulk hogan the same thing i despise about you is the same thing i despise about bret hart which you know that's going to get some heat here you stood for some moral fiber that in your real life did not exist yet you stood in judgment of me you hulk hogan will stand for just about anything there isn't a realistic bone in your body And Wade would say that comment was not only meant once again to point out the fact that Hogan may portray himself as pure and good, but he's a hypocrite in reality. That comment also harkened back to Michael's suggestive Sunny Days promo years prior at Bret Hart, which was getting under his skin, of course. He concluded, Hulk Hogan, you're the biggest star in WWE history, and at SummerSlam, I want you to bring your big star. I want you to wear your boa. I want you to have your sunglasses on, and I want you to have your chin high. You're one move from your star being snuffed out. Don't ask me. Don't believe me. Just ask Bret Hart. And of course, more heat here. Just really, really great stuff. At this point, how contentious is the real life Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Hulk Hogan? I mean, it feels like Shawn's firing off everywhere. Maybe some of this, since Bret is coming back into the fold for a DVD, is okay and approved. But it's adding a lot of fire to this Hogan Sean thing now. What's their relationship like as we get closer and closer to SummerSlam? Let's make money. You're in Montreal. You're you're in you're in a, a market that still remembers a finish from years and years and years ago. I mean, it was over ten years ago at that point, and you have a guy that came out after uh, his WrestleMania with rock in Montreal and they gave 
they gave a guy like a 12 minute standing ovation. Right. So why not use all of that in this market to, to bring it, bring it to the surface. It's what everybody wanted to hear. There, there, there's, there's an audience there. They, they want to hear that shit. And it's exactly what the Hogan faithful didn't want to hear. Let's talk about what's written. Uh, sources say Sean has been anything but a pushover so far in dealing with Hogan behind the scenes. Every time Hogan says no to an idea, Michaels keeps it even by rejecting a Hogan idea. So every time Hogan says, that's not right for me, brother. A few moments later, Michaels will fire back with that. Don't work for me either. Brother, uh, Hogan and Michaels don't getting this information from who I don't know, but you're saying they got along great. And this is all make believe. No, I'm not saying they got along great. I'm saying that that portion of it is make believe. And that's just somebody freestyling. Yes. But, but the point is you have to consider the source of my sources. Okay. I'm with you on all that, but is it fair to say they don't like or trust each other? I don't think they liked each other. Do you think they trusted each other? Yeah. To a, yeah. I th- anytime you've got to get in the ring with somebody, you've got to trust them. Let's talk about the, the rumor and innuendo that Sean is playing hardball about the finish because he doesn't want to be zero and one. I mean, do you remember Sean pushing back on losing or saying, I can't lose to Hogan? I think both, no, both guys were looking at trying to get three out of this thing. And I don't know that Vince was necessarily sold on three. It was, somebody's got to be 0-1 to start. Right. Was there the idea of, you said, oh, and one to start. Was there an idea of this being a three match series and this became so difficult? We backed off of it. There was an idea for it to be, yes, definitely for it to be a, a three match series. And I think we were going to get to a uh, survivor series with it, if I'm not mistaken, but is, is you got into it and it just became, what do you want to do? And then I think Vince looking at it going, God, do I, do I really want to do this three? And is it, is it going too far with all the real shots that we're taking back and forth? Um, and that's when he started questioning it. Well, here, here we are tomorrow. No, I'm sorry. Today is the 15 year anniversary of SummerSlam 2005. Whoever put this together was really smart in their scheduling. Uh, it's the MCI center in Washington, DC. It's a sellout crowd, 14,200 fans. We're going to get 650,000 buys, which is up from just 415,000 the year prior. This is the last sort of monster buy rate that a SummerSlam ever does. And this is a loaded card, and I'm sure it all helped. But a lot of the credit goes to Hogan and Sean on top, does it not? I think that they contributed, yes. Singularly, no. Um, this was a loaded card with tons of great shit. I, I think that Eddie Guerrero and Ray Mysterio with Dominic on a pole contributed just <laughs> as much as, as Hogan and, and Sean. I think that this was one of those really great cards. 
it is one of the all-time great cards. I watched it again last night, and I was blown away at how stacked it was. I want to mention this is the second most purchased SummerSlam in the history of pay-per-view, uh, just behind the 98 uh, Highway to Hell, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Undertaker main event. So rare air here. Uh, on commentary, it'll be JR, Jerry Lawler, and Coach for Raw, Michael Cole and Taz for SmackDown. Our first match is Chris Benoit beating Orlando Jordan in 24 seconds to capture the United States title. Uh, this is an early match, very, very short, probably not showcasing exactly what all Benoit could do, but my goodness, it made a statement. Benoit is legit, but we knew that since he's won the world title before. 24 seconds to put Orlando Jordan to bed. What do you think of this uh, creative decision to have Benoit go over so quickly? A quick way, an unexpected way to get the night started. And it's kind of an explosion. And just when you're all hyped up for it, and bam, you hit them with that type of a finish and they explode again. It's, it's a different presentation. It's a different way to start the night off. Backstage, we see Vicky Guerrero trying to talk some sense into Eddie. She doesn't want this ladder match with Rey Mysterio to happen. And she says, the man I'm married to is too caring and loving to hurt Ray or his family. And Eddie is fired up saying, so you don't think I can beat him? And then kicks her out of the dressing room. Uh, so our story is, is continuing to advance. And next up in the second match, we've got edge and Matt Hardy. They're going to go four minutes and 47 seconds. Uh, there's a big spot where Matt Hardy winds up hitting the ring post and he's busted wide open. It's a lot of blood here. Uh, Matt's on offense very, very early, but once the blood comes, it's not too long before the referee puts a stop to it. And it's only two and a quarter stars. Edge wins by referee stoppage thanks to blood. Um, Wade would write, the finish was odd and made Hardy look like a loser who got fairly defeated by Edge. And I do have to say, in hindsight, we did a whole episode on this, but it does seem weird that Matt's supposed to be the baby face who was wronged here and he's back for his revenge, but instead we beat him to a bloody pulp and it's over in less than five minutes. And it felt real. It does feel real, but it's like, why even bother re-signing him if we're just going to blow it off in four minutes and 47 seconds? Well, you didn't blow it off. It felt like it though. Did it not? No. I mean, it felt like that Matt still had five in him and that there's more to this story. It was one fight. Suppose the way it was presented that, you know, in this, in this one fight, that this unfortunate situation happened with getting his head busted wide open, that you got more fight in you or live to fight another day. Sort of a TKO finish is a little uncommon at the time, but I mean, I thought it added to realism. So if that's what you were going for, good on you, huh? There you go. It is in the torch, though. Matt Hardy said to be showing signs of frustration with how his push is going. He may not have realized the extent to which he was going to be considered a mid-card average talent by those in control of his push or how little he'd be allowed to uh, trip up before his push was reduced. He didn't get much of a chance to prove himself. as management believed his promo on Raw several weeks ago was mediocre and ample evidence that they were right all along. He lacks the verbal skills and is an average talent who someday may move up the card. Management believes more in edge and they're going to play out the feud where edge comes out strong. Top priority is on that aspect. A distant second priority is protecting Hardy. 
When Hardy re-signed with WWE, he told a few people he felt Vince McMahon believed in him and they were on the same page as how to best take advantage of his potential. He did not re-sign with WWE with the thought of being buried right off the bat. So either he misinterpreted his interaction with McMahon or they misrepresented their intentions in order to re-sign him. I know that's going to fire you up. What say you? Well, I think I think that when you when you read that and you listen to what what he's saying, that it's just absolutely stupid. Um, <laughs> well, it is. It's stupid. Well, we're gonna we're gonna invest and we're gonna re-sign someone because all we want to do is destroy him. Right. That's just fucking stupid. I, I don't disagree with that. That, I, that comes from someone that has never never been in business. Right. To actually make money and or to to actually. Oh, never had a staff, never had, uh, to hire and fire people that that's the astonishing, you know, that's idiotic. That's the day, the word of the day, idiot and idiotic. I'm with you. Help me understand. Do you think he lost a little bit of faith or confidence or steam or whatever sort of words you want to use with his in-ring promo? I mean, it's written here that management felt like he lacked the verbal skills to really be a star. Fair or no? I don't know that Matt was the best promo in the world by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that Matt did have authenticity and passion, and that came through. And that is the whole the whole reason that Matt was brought back and that Matt was rehired to continue this story. So while he may not have been the, the, the greatest promo in the world, you felt what he said, you, you believed in his matches and things. So to that, I think he was, I think he was there, but no, we just, we, we just hired him back just to squash him because we want, we want to invest a lot of fucking money in just destroying people's careers. That's what we do. That's idiotic. Okay, let's keep it going. Let's talk. That's about like that. a twelve-year-old sitting at their computer uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons. Next up, we've got a really long match: Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero in a ladder match to win Dominic. <laughs> Twenty minutes, sixteen seconds, uh, four and a quarter stars. Okay, let me explain something here. This was a way to exploit the ineptness of our court system because the courts would have them going back and forth over custody for years but whoever can climb Cut this ladder that bullshit you have a goddamn match with the custody hanging above the ring and you settle it once and for all the better man wins and only the true father can climb that ladder and get those custody papers so to be clear what we're suggesting is the guy who would make the best dad is the guy who could run up a ladder fastest. Yes. In which case, me nor you would ever have children. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least not children in question. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and if I, we did, we'd probably let someone else yeah. run up the ladder faster. I love you for that. Here's the deal. I don't think these guys are capable of having a bad match. You go back all the way to their stuff in WCW in 96 and especially 97, that Halloween Havoc match. God damn, just the best shit ever. This is a, a fantastic match. 
but there is a funny moment in it that has become legendary amongst wrestling fans where apparently the timing was off. There is a little bit of interference. Dominic tries to shake the ladder almost comically and Eddie waves his finger. No, but there is a big bump where both Ray and, uh, Eddie take a big tumble off the ladder and you can audibly hear Eddie hit the mat very hard and yell, where the fuck was Vicky? Just tremendous stuff. Vicky is going to come in right at the end of the match, shove Eddie off the ladder, just as he was about to grab the briefcase with Dominic's custody papers. And Vicky's move, of course, allows Ray to climb the ladder, retrieve those custody papers. But my goodness, what a match. But, you know, Eddie being the perfectionist that we, we all know him to be, and you know him better than anybody listening to this, I'm sure. He was fired up about apparently some miscommunication with Vicky here. What do you remember about that? <laughs> Shit happens. Uh, again, you've got people that are involved in the match that are not everyday uh, performers. So that shit's going to happen sometimes. But that was supposed to be the finish, right? And they had to just redone the whole finishing sequence. I mean, I think Ray has even said in the past that this is his favorite WWE match he ever had. So if you're a big fan of Ray Mysterio. Yeah, he won his son back. Oh, Jesus. This is your favorite angle right here, even above Kane and Undertaker, is it not? It ranks up there. I think, again... This was a great story, and I don't care what anybody says. Man, you watch soap opera, you watch dramas, this shit happens. And it was it was played out to perfection uh, to the wrestling purists. Like, oh, it doesn't belong in, in the business. Come on. It's, it's storyline, and it's story, and it's resolution. Um, so I... I thought this was absolutely wonderfully done, played out. And to this day, 15 years later, we're still talking about it. We are still talking about it. Go out of your way to watch it. You'll see the whole, where the fuck was Vicky? It's tremendous. Next up, we've got Kurt Angle beating Eugene in three minutes and 51 seconds to recapture his gold medal. The finish came when Angle hit the angle slam and forced Eugene to tap out. Uh, of course, he kicked out of Eugene Stone Cold Stoner, which is fun. But my favorite thing, one of my favorite things of the entire pay-per-view is after the match, he goes and gets a chair, he being Kurt Angle, pronouns pal, puts it in the center of the ring and stands on the chair so the referee can place his gold medal around his neck like he's in the Olympics. This is fucking tremendous shit, and the crowd appreciates it. They're going to start cheering Angle here, starring a quarter, I know in hindsight, you could say, oh man, what could him and Benoit have had if they had a really competitive match here? Cause they were both in sort of funny ha ha's or whatever, but goddamn, the whole putting the medal on him after the match was tremendous. That's entertainment. And nobody was better than Kurt Angle. Next up, we see a ton of WWE divas washing a limo that has the presidential seal on it. And it's like. Up close and personal, soapy, sudsy bikini shots, one after another, that you probably couldn't do now, but it was Roll Tide in 05. So um, we we pre taped that shot in the afternoon in the parking garage of the MCI Center that we had all blocked off and everything. And Ray Mysterio and Dominic. We're out there, and we were we were talking over things. And I was wearing a pinstripe suit and a light blue shirt. And Dominic 
was laughing so hard because he's out there watching me and I'm running all around producing and directing all over the place. And I have, I've sweat so much that the sweat is coming through my shirt and dripping. And to this day, Dominic and Ray still still talk about, remember that day that Bruce was sweating so much in the garage? And that was this day, producing that shot. So they get a tight shot of this presidential seal logo, and Vince McMahon rolls down the window. He's in the back of the limo, and he looks over at the camera and says, why not? And then they get a tight shot of the bumper sticker, and it says, McMahon for president. I mean, they are in D.C., but my goodness, who would have ever guessed that a WWE Hall of Famer would actually be our president? Man, sometimes real life is even stranger than wrestling. What do you remember about this this funny little Vince for president idea here? That it was fucking hot out there and that I was sweating my ass off and wanted to get it done. Any Anything about the creative besides you personally oh, telling I mean, us your perspiration story? That just was ha-ha. I mean, you're in Washington, D.C. Why the hell wouldn't you do it? Vince would probably get elected. Uh, it's pretty funny, though. Stranger things have happened. Maybe, maybe Vince is who we need in 2020. Can you imagine? Uh, so next up, we've got Randy Orton, the legend killer, taking on The Undertaker. They get plenty of time, 17 minutes and 11 seconds. Um, Wade would write, after a slow, methodical match, Undertaker appeared ready to finish Orton with the tombstone, but a fan ran in the ring and distracted The Undertaker. The distraction allowed Orton to hit the RKO on Undertaker to win the match. And after the match, the fan was revealed as Cowboy Bob Orton. Undertaker was noticeably upset after the match and limping two and a half stars. Man, a lot stood out to me in this. The build for this was really good. The whole Legend Killer stuff I was a big fan of. But to see Undertaker come out first and Randy Orton come out second sort of threw me off a little bit. And what a hell of an entrance Randy got. It's the old Christian treatment, but on steroids. It's just raining, you know, pyro behind him. A tremendous visual. And I kind of forgot that Bob Orton staggered into the ring in, in the gimmick because the way the referee wasn't just immediately taking him down and ultimately, you know, security wasn't either. And Undertaker had to push him down. I thought, man, this is a real deal. But when I saw how gracefully the guy got under the bottom rope, I was like, oh, wait a minute. So just for a minute, it even fooled me. And I'd seen this before, but I just forgot. I liked the finish. I like it was a distraction and it was good. Dear old dad helping him out. This entertained me. What'd you think? Very entertaining. I thought that the whole series of undertaker, Randy Orton matches was excellent. Um, good story. Good. Everything. I didn't think that this was as good as subsequent matches, but it was a good start. And to me, it was, just highly entertaining and being able to get cowboy Bob back in the mix was a lot of fun as well. Really good match. Two and a half stars. How did Randy feel about working with his father? Would it have been something he pushed for or who would have, you know, been pushing for this behind the scenes to involve him here? No creative push for it. Um, we, we pushed for it. I think Randy was just happy. It was a thrill to be able to do something with his dad. So that, that in and of itself was like, holy shit, I think that Randy could have been done at that moment and been happy. 
Uh, next up, we've got John Cena beating Chris Jericho in 14 minutes and 46 seconds to retain the WWE Championship. The finish came when Cena connected with the FU after reversing an attempted slam by Jericho, and the crowd was really split down the middle in their allegiance to Jericho and Cena. There's even dueling chants. Jericho appeared to have it won at about 12 and a half minutes when he put on the walls of Jericho, but Cena would struggle for the ropes and eventually break the hold after several anxious moments. Wade would say Jericho carried the match. The crowd's passionate response really made it feel like a major match. Three and three-quarter stars. I agree. Uh, Even though this wasn't the main event, it felt like the main event. And I think this might be one of the first times we saw fans really turning on Cena. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Watching it back for the first time in 15 years, I think this was great shit. What did you think? I thought, yeah, man. To me, it was a moment of just validation for Cena and being able to hang and have a great match with Jericho. Yes. The audience was, I don't know if they were, were pro Jericho, but you definitely, you got that divide there. You got that polarization there and they danced great together and had a hell of a showing in this regard. But again, Cena's reaction to everything and John's reaction to the to the crowd booing and cheering for Jericho um, told you right then, even though we would question it as years went on, uh, he had it, he being Cena. The next night on Raw, Cena defeated Jericho, and as a pre-match stipulation, Bischoff fired Jericho for not getting the job done. So this is Jericho's uh, swan song. He's going to be gone for two years before returning. How important do you think it is? And it feels like Jericho's kind of got this mastered or, or used to. If I it, think he just knows it's time to take a break, right? Creative needs a break from him too, right? To get a new fresh idea, a new sort of shuffle the deck, so to speak. Look, that that's if you have the ability to go away and come back and you've got something that, you can do during that time and recharge your batteries. It's, it's good for everybody involved. Sometimes it's not the most opportune time to do it, but, um, it's good. I think it's good for everybody. Now, not everybody can recover and come back and get over to the extent they were before. I think Jericho has been successful in that way in doing that when he's gone away, but whatever the body needs, whatever the head needs, that's good for the performer is, usually the best thing next up we've got batista beating jbl in nine minutes and eight seconds in a no holds barred match to retain the world heavyweight title they're going to brawl through the crowd early and all over the place the finish comes when batista follows up his first batista bomb with a second batista bomb onto the ring steps inside the ring and batista of course is the hometown boy so he gets a nice reaction and uh it's two and a half stars the biggest compliment Wade gives it is the match didn't overstay its welcome. In this era, you probably need short, powerful matches for a guy like Batista, almost like a Goldberg, except, you know, Batista can work. And JBL, my God, what a smug bastard great heel he made. Was the original plan for this show, though, supposed to be Muhammad Hassan, that he was going to defeat Batista for the world title here before, you know, Plans had to change for the Muhammad Hassan character. 
I don't think that we ever would have gotten that far. I don't think that we would have had Hassan beat Batista at all. Um, it, it was discussed, yes, but I don't think we, we ever would have actually done that. And this match was positively brutal. And it was during this that Batista, uh, I'm not Batista, that Bradshaw, I think, broke his back, uh, that shot on the steps. There was just no give, and it's brutal. And I, I remember the, that night watching it and going, oh, shit. Because there was just no give. There was a thud, and it hurt me watching it. Hurt me watching it again. Ugly, ugly, ugly. All right. Bradshaw was a heel. He was great. So much to unpack here as we start to wind this show down, but we've got to talk about the main event. And uh, Wade Keller would write, Shawn Michaels took a bad situation and made the best of it. With less than a week to go before the pay-per-view, sources say he was so frustrated with good faith negotiations with Hulk Hogan behind the scenes that he was considering insisting on a DQ finish to the match. He'd reached the point that he didn't want a job to Hogan under any circumstances. Hogan, though, apparently had creative control written into his deal, so he got to call the shots. He wanted to win with a leg drop clean, and that's the way it was going to be. Well, let's address that. That's not true. Okay. When Michaels accepted the match in the first place, he had never worked with Hogan before. France had warned him, saying Hogan was going to get what he wanted, and it was a mistake to not work out a finish ahead of time before agreeing to the match. Michaels figured he could play hardball, too. In the end, he couldn't. The details aren't known, but ultimately Michaels was convinced by Vince McMahon that he had to do the match Hogan's way. Michaels had proposed a second match the next month, and it was considered it would allow both men to get two big paydays. Michaels also figured that he would go away one-to-one against each other. However, when Hogan talked about a second match, he talked about winning that one too. The second match discussed was a cage match, the one with the big blue bars, and it was the first one to escape. And Hogan proposed he beat Shawn Michaels at SummerSlam and then beat him at the follow-up cage match by crawling out of the ring before Shawn could climb over the top and it would be a bloodbath. Of course, Michaels wouldn't go for that, so they went back to the original plan of just one match. Do you remember that being the case? Well, originally we talked about just uh, we, we talked about doing three matches, and a lot of things were discussed back and forth, and it, it got to you know Vince feeling, God, can we get three? Should we just do two, or do, do we just do the one big one and move on? So there was just a lot of uncertainty going into it. And that uncertainty then breeds the rumor mill and and people that start buzzing about shit. Here's what's unique about it. The match lasted more than 20 minutes, which is almost unheard of for a Hogan match. And Hogan bled heavily during it. Quote, "Uh, those may have been the two negotiating points. Michaels won. If he was going to do the job, he wanted the match to be special and he wanted to quote-unquote beat Hogan into a bloody oblivion before losing. After the match, Michael shoved Hogan from behind, then offered a handshake. He told Hogan he just needed to find out for himself. It wasn't clear what he meant, but in reality, it probably meant a lot of things. He wanted to find out what it was like to work with Hogan in the ring, what it was like to work with Hogan behind the scenes, and what it was like to lay down for the leg drop. The public may never know the extent to which these two butted heads behind the scenes during negotiations unless Michaels includes it in his upcoming biography. Uh, Michaels, though, got his revenge the next night. He came out with a smile on his face and accepted the cheers from the fans. 
And he says, as much as it hurt to admit it, Hogan was the better man the night before. And then the promo took a strange turn. He began to mock Hogan, sarcastically saying Hogan was cat-like and nimble, and he could never figure out his catch-as-catch-can style. Quote, I mean, his ring prowess was in so many ways and on so many levels superior to mine that I could not compete. When it was over, even I, the evil Shawn Michaels, found myself victim like so many before me to that vicious leg drop, one, two, three. And the crowd didn't know how to react. Some booed and some cheered, but most sat in silence. The crowd began a small chant of Hogan, Hogan. And Michaels continued, now back to our regularly scheduled programming and back to reality. The reality is this. Hogan is now on a jet back to Florida until you, the WWE fans, can give him what he wants. Uh, and then he signed a money signal by rubbing his thumb and finger together. I, Shawn Michaels, am here tonight to give you exactly what you want, the showstopper. My goodness. What can you tell us about the negotiation, the finish, and this promo the next night? Well, first of all, the, the negotiation, I, I, uh, I actually hit my mute button because I was, I was laughing so hard, and I probably shouldn't have because it's just so fucking ridiculous and speaks to the naivete of someone writing this crap that have never laid out a match, never sat in when someone has laid out a match and, and gone over things. Well, I'll agree to your things, but I've got to beat Hogan into a bloody oblivion before I lose. Right. That doesn't make sense. Well, it, 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 Kills the credibility of anything else that they say, which they have no credibility. Um, here's the match. Look, the match, the finish, everything about it was debated nine ways from Sunday before they ever got into the ring. And for weeks ahead of time, trying to get two out of it, trying to get three out of it. What, what do we do? What's the first finish? What's the second finish? And in the end, through all of the machinations of, and I truly believe that deep down inside, both guys wanted to do business. I just think that both guys wanted to do business in a little bit different way. The end result, um, you look at the match, the match was highly entertaining. It was highly entertaining because of Sean overselling shit and going fucking nuts and almost doing a parody of, of a Hulk match from 20 years ago. So to that, the entertainment value of it, it was, it was incredibly entertaining. That may have been Sean's nod to, Hey, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to make you remember it because of my antics. Could it have been different? Absolutely, it could have been different. Um, Was it the best thing? I don't know if it was the best thing or not. I think when Sean first started overselling things, the the reaction was one of, what the fuck is he doing? Then the more that he did it, the more that you saw the story Sean was telling. Sean was going to tell his own fucking story, which... Speaks to how good Sean is. I and mean, people may look at it as, oh, that's an expose. That's disrespectful. That's this. That's that. You disagree? I do. Oh, my gosh. He's like selling like a pinball. That one like yes. turnbuckle shot where he just slams yeah. it. 
And how about fucking the, kicks in the corner and all that shit? The leg drop. Um, he jumps up, runs around, and falls. Yeah. Which was, it, that was a parody of, of Hulk matches from 20 years before. And that's Sean's story. And that was Sean telling you that story when, just to get deeper into it. Some people look at it one way. Others look at it another way. I think Sean fans would see it as Sean doing what he had to do. Hogan fans would say, oh, my God, how could they disrespect him and not just sell all of his shit the, the way that they thought it should have been sold? Um, Hogan still did do all of his shit. Hogan still fucking got over in the end. And for me, from a creative standpoint, I would have liked to have gotten more than one out of it. I would have liked to, even if I just got to two and we had one and one and, and leave it at that. Yeah, that would have been good. The argument still still stands. There was that pitch. Um, what about the I still promo? wanted to go for three and... and and blow it out somehow. But through all the machinations, all the bullshit, that's where it ended up. And I think once again, it was a situation where people go, okay, Hey, we're going to quote work shoot and the work turns into a shoot. And then feelings get hurt and people misunderstand because they feed into all the other bullshit. Um, Let's, let's talk about the promo what the it next was. day. The promo the next day. God damn. Oh, the promo the next day. But again, to Sean's fans, that was dead nuts on. And it was dead nuts on. It took Sean to, to the next place, and motherfucker was right back being a baby face again. Me, to Sean's fans, that was the right thing and the, and the right right thing to say and do. Let me ask, though. When, when he's out here sort of, oh, I couldn't keep up with his catch-as-catch-can style, and he's on a plane, but I'm right here, and this is what he wants from you. I mean, as an old-school guy, are you not a little low-key offended when, when we're really just saying, ah, this is all bullshit, and you know it? It was during a time that we were trying to be a little edgier and and throw some of that real life rumor innuendo bullshit into it. You know what though? Feed into it. In fairness to your point, you know, we talked about it earlier. Why would you publicize the negotiations with Lesnar? And then they even publicized the negotiations and discussions that Stephanie had with Dusty. This is probably the era where you guys were like, you know what? Fuck the quote unquote dirt sheets. Let's control the narrative. We'll just report our inside shit and they'll have to come and, to us the- first. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, both guys, uh, Hulk and Sean, I think could have handled the situation better, uh, early on. Let's talk about and, that. I, I've got some quotes here. I know we're short on time, so I'm going to try to run through this. By the way, I want to give a shout out. We had hundreds of questions. There's no way we'll get to do it today. We're going to try to do some on ad free shows later. I'm, I'm already keeping Bruce way later. Uh, we're, he's missing a meeting to do this. So we got to hustle. Uh, but Michael's addressed this whole fiasco during a Q&A in England a few years ago. He says, quote, we were going to do a best of three, and in the last minute, he backed out. So that day, I'll admit this, I poked the bear all day. I already knew what I was going to do. I was going to go out there and do business, but I was going to make him earn it and just be a pain in his butt all day. And that was something I did for my own enjoyment. It wasn't right. It wasn't professional. 
The next year, Hogan had this to say about the match. If you really go behind the scenes on the Shawn Michaels thing, I just sat back. I mean, this is Vince's show, Vince's thing. When we went to the dressing room, Vince came in and said, okay, I want Hogan to go over. No big deal. Those are Vince's wishes. If he had told me to take the super kick and do the one, two, three, even though nobody says I've ever done a job. If you go back and look at my career, I've pretty much lost more matches than I've won trying to get guys over from triple H to the undertaker, to the rock, you name it. I don't win too many matches, but it's business. I'm trying to help these guys. So when Vince wanted Sean to do the job, we went out there and had a match and everybody said, Oh, Sean oversold. He was making fun of you. If Sean was really doing that, you have to ask him because I'd have to go take the turnbuckle. He jumps on the bottom rope and does a triple flip, which, you know, okay, whatever, but he's done it several times, not just with me. And the reason that we didn't go longer was because I shut it down. The next day I was expecting to, you know, return the favor and then, okay, now you beat me up and I beat you. Let's build to a third match and keep the cage match and keep it going. But he was such a great worker. I thought we were going to have a great run. It could be my fault. It could be my feelings were too much involved, but I thought the interview was going to be, you know, I got to give a Hogan. He was better than me on that one night, but it'll never happen again. You know, I was quicker and faster than him, but he just had that moment. He had the crowd with him. He had the momentum, but it'll never happen again. I'm asking you Hogan for another match. And I thought that's how we were going to do the business in this interview. But when he came out and said, oh, he was too fast. He was too young. I went, I'm out. I just told Vince, your boy, you know, it's not business. So I pulled the plug on that deal. And that's where we ended up. It wasn't a creative control thing. I said, I don't want to go on. If this is going to be a clown show from this point on. I thought if this guy really wanted to dig in and draw some money and on the Shawn Michaels DVD, he says, in my mind, I presented to him as just good guy versus good guy. And the thing where HBK was just like, man, I got to know if I can beat the immortal Hulk Hogan. And then the next week, you know, we find out it's classic babyface heel versus Hogan quote, like you're in 1998. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I'd tear him up. I'd go out there on that mic and I would tear him to shreds. Give us that then. That's what we want. So I just thought, you got to be kidding me. Are you sure he's okay with that? And Vince told me, Terry's business. And I asked him beforehand, are you sure he's okay with it? And Vince reiterated, Terry's business. So when I see Hogan the next week, I asked him, are you okay with all this? And he says, no problem, brother. And I got news for you. If he denies it, I'll tell it to his face. I asked you before. I asked you every time. And you know, work with me, brother. And I'm like, wow, some of the most successful people in this business are insecure. So there's two sides here. And I guess that's the old famous thing we break down on this podcast. The he said, she said, the my side, your side, and the truth somewhere in the middle or whatever. Where do you land on this? Do you remember Hogan being the one that pulled the plug after the Sean promo the night after on Raw? Or is it more of what Sean is saying here that Hogan's just insecure? Uh, they're both right. Uh, they're both right. I, as far as Hulk pulling the plug, uh, Vince pulled the plug and Vince was unsure even before the match, if he wanted any more matches, it was Vince's call and Sean did run everything by Hulk. And Sean was very concerned about the shoot stuff with Hulk and did ask every fucking time he did it. Um, make sure that it's okay. Are we good? And goddamn, you really want me to go that far? And the answer always was, you know, yes, that yes. And everybody did agree to it. 
And then I just think that it got into uh, feelings were hurt. And he said, she said, and it turned into what it turned into. But um, yeah, they're both right. And, and it's, it's a combination of all of the above. But the, they basically worked themselves into a shoot. I would have loved to have gotten three out of it. And, and I don't know what I would have done in the third match. I, I probably would have somehow thrown it out or ended up with them as a team. Who the hell knows? But regardless of that, um, the lead up to everything and where we got to, it just, um, yeah, could have been different. Could have been different. Man, I got to tell you, I was disappointed in the match only because I felt like the bar had set, been set so high by Hogan Rock at WrestleMania 18. And no disrespect to The Rock, we know one of the greatest sports entertainers of all time. But when it came time for the bell to ring, as you like to say, I don't know that there were many ever better than Shawn Michaels. So when when I see that and I see what, what Rock and Hogan were able to accomplish, it just feels so much bigger and better than what Shawn and Hogan did. And Shawn and Hogan certainly was a memorable match, and I'm not arguing that. But it doesn't feel like it had near the magic. And I can't help but wonder... How much of that is just ego, you know? I think a lot of it is on everybody's part. So it it just, um, it it boils down to you dealing with human beings and feelings get hurt. That's hard to stop sometimes. It's, it's, It's hard to turn off, turn it on and off. So that depends on the person. Well, next week, we're going to get to talk about happier times with Hulk Hogan. We're going all the way back to SummerSlam 1990. This is one of my favorite pay-per-views of all time. It happened on August 27th in Philadelphia. Uh, There was a famous little brother love card that was released around this time. Lots of good stuff to discuss here. We've got Power and Glory working with the Rockers. We've got Texas Tornado in there with Mr. Perfect. We've got Sherry and Sapphire together. We've got Warlord and Tito Santana. Heart Foundation versus Demolition. Jake the Snake working with Bad News Brown with Big Boss Man as a special referee. Uh, Duggan and Volkoff against the Orient Express. Randy Savage working with Dusty Rhodes. Hulk Hogan in there with Earthquake. And then in our main event for the world title in a steel cage, Rick Rude is going to challenge the Ultimate Warrior. Man, this was peak fandom for me as a kid, and we're talking about it next week. This is a totally different SummerSlam. You know, we went backwards 15 years today. Next week, we're going back 30 years. I'm looking forward to this, man. How about you? Can't wait. Can't wait. Let's go. I ain't scared. If you've got a question for us, hopefully we'll have a little more time this week. I went long on Bruce. Sorry for keeping you extra time, but this was such a great show. One of our most requested topics ever, SummerSlam 2005. If you've got a question for SummerSlam 90, ask it over at Pritchard Show on Twitter. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on adfreeshows.com early and ad free and of course something to wrestle with bruce pritchard rock on hey hey it's conrad thompson and you're listening to something to wrestle with bruce pritchard bruce are you there can you hear me is this real uh okay you survived SummerSlam weekend how excited are you that one of the major tentpole events the biggest summer slam ever 
is in the rearview mirror. That had to be a stressful week last week, Bubba. Uh, okay. Yeah. Right. You are. You know, this is what fans are tuning in for, man. All this powerful insight is we're wishing you well and congratulating you. And you just hit us with the, okay. Okay. I'm tired, Conrad. I'm tired. I'm well, wake the what, fuck what, up, what Bruce. Am what am I? You're Bruce Pritchard. No. Oh, no, you're I? tired. You're sleepy. You're stressed. Okay. Okay. Does <laughs> yeah, okay. that one work? 15 year anniversary of SummerSlam 06, which is what we're going to be covering today. Of course, last week the plan was to do SummerSlam 01, but 50, I was eight years old then. That would have been, that would be incorrect. How, how can that be? Get your facts straight. Did you get this from the observer? Wait, did I say 50? I meant to say 15th. Oh, never mind. Okay. Either way, last week we were supposed to do a one, but Bruce was stressed, sleepy, and tired somewhere in Las Vegas. Uh, and our recording schedule just didn't line up. So now he's well rested. And if you could see what I see, you would know I'm lying. Uh, it's an interesting year here in 2006. We're in the process of covering this time frame over on the Kurt Angle show and really how he was on his way out of the WWE. But this show is Hulk Hogan's return to the squared circle for the first time in forever since he beat Shawn Michaels back at SummerSlam 05. And uh, the Ric Flair Mick Foley match is the internet match that everyone had been clamoring for. And of course, DX versus the McMahons and oh yeah, edge versus Cena in the main event, pretty crazy summer of 06. Of course, the summer really gets kicked into high gear with ECW launching. And then almost immediately you lose Rob Van Dam and Sabu once they're pulled over and well, you have to change everything. Uh, angle is going to essentially try to force himself out of the company. Batista and Booker T get into a shoot fight backstage. It's almost like this is, uh, maybe one of the more controversial momentous summers in WWE history here. six, right? What's making everything go wacky and haywire. I think it was the hot summer sun that was beating down upon the United States of America. That was so hot, baby. And everybody was getting a little crazy getting run a little summer fever, if you will. And getting all funky, like a monkey, people slapping people, jumping people in catering other people coming up and say, Hey, you want to fight? I'll fight you. Let's go fight. Well, I don't want to fight. Me neither. I'm going to fight. Let's punch and slap around here a little bit. Crazy men, crazy women all over the place. Getting fucked up like monkeys, if you will. And then they all got to get it there, have a little weed, take a ride, give a belt back, do what you got to do. That's the summer. That's the summer of 06. Everybody knows it. Everybody was crazy. I remember your mama, your mama calling me and said, look, Connie, Look, Connie, he, he's what, 25 years old here? Yeah, you nailed it. See, I, because I, I do my math. I'm much better in my math in this, in this frame of mind. They said, she said, Connie, Connie, 25 years old. He wants to go all over the country. He wants to, he wants to watch this wrestling and, and look at this shit. I said, Connie, you stay in school. We got some vacuum cleaners to sell. Wait a minute. I was 25. I wasn't in school. I but mama wants you in school. Mama wants you in school. She wants to sell vacuum cleaners. She said, this is a family business. I was, I was doing mortgages. Anyway, it's yeah, 2000. She wanted you a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I know what you was doing. I know because that's what I do. I'm talking about the crazy summer of 06. It was crazy, baby. 
legitimately, is this one of the most tumultuous times in company history this summer? I mean, launching a third brand, there's a fight between two of your top guys, Batista and Booker angles in a bad way. We're trying to figure out what's best for him. He's thinking he needs to leave. You crown Rob Van Dam, not only ECW champ, but WWE champ. And now your champion's making the wrong kind of headlines, getting pulled over with Sabu for Rick some. Flair jumping Mick Foley in the cafeteria, in line for the for the brownies and the chocolate chip cookies and the little muffins at the end of the table. All kinds of shit going on. That whole uh, Foley Flair thing happened here in Huntsville. How about that? Ooh. I mean, I mean, you know, I miss both the Ricks, goddamn diatribes. You missed when you tried to meet up Eric. Was that Eric in St. Louis? Yeah. I missed Eric in St. Louis and Mick, uh, Mick there. Well, I got to Eric in St. Louis, like after it happened that, that evening, but, uh, the Mick one I missed, uh, by like just an hour or so. I think the, the whole Mick thing was Flair went in the ring and started like calling him out. Right. But, But before doors were open, like. I don't know. It was hilarious to me. He wants to have a fight in a ring and I kind of assume. No, I just heard he jumped him in the catering line or something. If that's real, I I heard he slammed the book down, you know, Foley's book, wanting him to comment on what he said or or however it worked, or maybe Foley brought it to him. Either way, there was a book involved. There's some hurt feelings. And, uh, looking back, you kind of assume if, if Eric Bischoff is going to get in a fight backstage, it would probably have to happen in catering. Right. Cause that's where everybody says he hangs out. Yeah. And Eric was in the dress room with the go PP. <laughs> uh, Eric was on the phone in the dressing room. Yep. It's taken on a life of its own is the phrase that pissed Rick off. I, I was there. Let me tell you, I thought the whole thing. <laughs> Look, if other people can talk about the goddamn Montreal screw job like they were fucking there, I can talk about goddamn Rick and Eric fight. Rick got in his Bruce Lee stance and went. <laughs> and Rick and Rick went woo, and Rick went to chop him, and Eric ducked it because he lightning fast because he's a karate man. He threw one of them hook kicks, came down, boom, bam, bing, and then Rick just said woo, and then Rick came in, but Rick was throwing them working peers lunches, so he was winning. Cause it's all about foam here at this point. And then Rick got him down, went for the figure four and on Anderson, on Anderson. I get it. It's a wrestling podcast, but he's saving us money on our mortgage. Do you really trust this process? The reviews don't lie. Five-star review after five-star review. We make it fast. We make it easy. And it's no cost or obligation. Give us a shot to earn your business. I'm telling you, you'll be glad you did. Especially if you like keeping more of your own money. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? Hurry to save with Conrad.com. Came in and was holding. He was holding, giving Rick the extra leverage. There was no escape. And Sergeant Slaughter came in and dropped the elbow. I would have dropped the elbow, but I was I was watching. I was too busy watching. So nobody would ever know I was there. Yeah, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> In hindsight, how much did Rob Van Dam's suspension change the plans, do you think? Well, it certainly changed plans for Rob. And and that was during a time that it was looking, you know, new and trying to do something different. And ECW, if it had a chance, it needed one of their stalwarts to be the flag bearer. 
for both. And I think Rob had a great opportunity. And unfortunately, yeah, it fucked up a lot of plans. I think that Rob had a chance at that point to, to really go on and possibly be the guy. And I think Rob had the ability to be the guy. Uh, we should sometimes, mention. Hey, sometimes, Conrad, you know what happens? Sometimes you just do stupid shit. It's true. Believe it or not. I know this is going to be hard for you to believe. It's going to be hard for our listeners to believe. Sometimes I've even been known to do stupid shit. I know. I don't even I believe very that. Hard. Really. I, know, I know that breaks your heart. I can see it breaking all the way from here. It's true. It's like, it's like, it's like this. I can't. Broke right half. You know this is an Just audio podcast. No one can hear you. Yeah, but they can they can't hear you. me, Conrad. They can't, they can't see you. You know what I mean. They could see through my through my uh, vocal interludes of that I that that was a heart made with my two hands and put wh- together. Okay, I got my four fingers together in the middle. I got my thumbs down, joined down below, and it's in the shape of a heart. And then it goes. That is the the fingers separating them from each other as the heart breaks. Boom, done. Is this the way you? That's exp- what you do to me every day. Is this the way you? Heart. Is this the way you explain creative backstage sometimes? Sometimes you got to man. <laughs> uh, it we, ain't easy. Pimping ain't easy, dog. We should also mention. I'm going to leave that one alone. Stephanie went into labor. Ooh, especially after the last conversation we had. The Raw oh, after Great American Bash. So you lose Vince and Triple H for Raw the very next night. And I'm assuming creative obviously knows that this is going to happen, but there's never a good time when you're fresh off of a pay-per-view to lose two of your top talents like Vince and triple H. But man, I think this is something fans sometimes miss is that sometimes real life gets in the way. So you probably had a raw written that it was heavily featuring triple H and Vince McMahon to to help set up this storyline of the McMahons versus DX. But now, uh, their chess pieces are off the table because Stephanie's making that baby happen. That's bullshit. They all jump in the plane. They like took off, left us all to go see little raw rose bone. And it hurt. It was crazy. It was fucking crazy. I remember, you know, going, to whatever, uh, I forget the, the town we were in. I just remember Michael Hayes and I walked around. Michael looked at me going, I'm in charge. Dude, 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 I'm in charge. And he said, dude, 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 that day. I'm pretty sure he said it that day. Cause he said, dude, 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 I'm in charge. And, and please, whenever people see Michael Hayes today, just look at him and go, Oh, dude, 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 you're the dude, 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 man. Please just for me. I'm begging you. Dude, dude, dude. He does love it. He does love it. No, you know what the thing is? Is he does love it. He does. Yeah. It's his favorite. Man. So let's talk about, uh, the other moving pieces here. Uh, Molina, Mick Foley, Ric Flair. It's all one big mess of an angle. Uh, we sort of addressed that they had some real life heat over what they wrote about each other in their respective books. And it's going to spill over here in Huntsville. And there's going to be you know, a threat of real life off camera violence. How do you guys get cooler heads to prevail? And these guys turn this, uh, backstage story into a real 
money drawing angle on TV. Well, because it, there, there was true animosity there. There was, you know, that real animosity, but you also have professionals that that are there to make money and they're there to do what they need to do. So you get people to uh, lighten up, Francis. Trash, trash, goddamn, you know, shit, ain't that goddamn hard. Just lighten the fuck up and work with each other. And, and that's what it really came down to. You know, you had some some tidbits of reality, and that's where we were. Well, let's uh, let's keep it going here. Uh, how did Molina come into play? You know, we we know we've got Foley and and we've got uh, Flair, but why is Molina chosen to to be in the mix here? But in real life, Molina and Mick were were close, and Molina, you know, would go to Mick for advice, and Mick really liked Molina and tried to help her out with her career as well. Um, nothing on any kind of a relationship other than they were friends, and it was kind of a mentor mentorship more than anything. Uh, Todd Grisham was going to announce on raw that Stephanie gave birth to a baby girl named Aurora Rose. Who made the call to announce that on raw? Is that something that, I mean, obviously Vince approved that, right? I mean, there's no way they're just arbitrarily spilling the beans, but is there a discussion to, to not do that and maybe keep it private? Because that is something that other families have chosen over the years. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was Vince's call that, you know, if she has a baby, we can announce it on TV and go from there. How did uh, Hulk Hogan come to be in terms of returning to face Randy Orton? Was this Hulk hoping to push his daughter Brooks album? Uh, is this, what's the angle here? Why, why is Hulkster looking to get back in the squared circle with you guys? I, well, I think that Hulk was looking to come back in general. And also, you know, during this, time it was randy was a legend killer hulk was a perfect opponent for randy and you add into that his daughter brooke who was looking to start you know doing her music and everything randy's young randy's that young good-looking guy that uh, any girl like brooke's age you know might find attractive and want to get to know better and Brooke being an attractive young lady on, on her way up, and that may be somebody that Randy would be attracted to in storyline. So um, it was pretty easy. You know, it was that forbidden love and daddy going, you know, uh-uh, you're not going to do anything with that damn legend killer guy because I'm a legend. He could kill me. It's just logic. It's, uh, listen, I, I like the legend killer thing. And I, I, I'm glad that Hulk came back, but I've just been fascinated forever by that sort of love, hate on again, off again, hokey pokey style relationship that Vince and Hogan had together. I mean, just a year prior, he had the big match with, with Sean at SummerSlam, which we've talked about in our archives, but of course, Sean was doing his best to be, uh, well, Sean, but maybe Sean of 97, 98, not exactly who we thought Sean was in 05. But then he's gone, and I think most of the time when there was a falling out with Vince and Hogan, I've heard that it usually was money. Hogan felt like he was more valuable to the program, and there was a disagreement over cash. Do you think that's the reason he maybe took a powder in 05, and maybe he is trying to push some of these outside projects in 06, and that's the motivation to take another stab? Absolutely. 
And I think that's always the motivation with Hulk. Is Hulk is always looking at it from a business standpoint and what he can do business-wise, whether or not, um, you know, creative. That that always seemed to be an after-fact with Hulk. And Hulk was very involved in the creative and wanted to, you know, talk about it and have input on it. But as far as disputes, they were almost always over money. I'm curious, was there any hesitation to bring Hulk back? Does anybody on the WWF side of things, Vince or anyone else say, God, do we really want to do this? We know how this is going to end. It's going to be short term. Or do you think, well, who cares? We can, we can get a big match at SummerSlam and have him work with some younger talent. He didn't have to be a lifer. We can, we, we still have value in Hulk Hogan. There, there were probably those that rolled their eyes, but I don't think anybody that came up and said, no, God damn it. Don't bring Hulk back. I think, you know, even to the contrary, I think there were some guys who wanted to work with him. Do you remember there being discussions with Hulk about the way things went with Sean back in 05, or is it just water on the bridge by that point? It's water under the bridge. There's a big shift in Canadian TV coverage. That's going to get a lot of news. The WWE is going to shift raw from TSN to the score. And it's being spun by the WWE that it'll be better for them because they won't be delayed or postponed for sporting events. But Meltzer would claim that the problems were really about the content of the show, noting that now infamous edge and Lita live sex show back in January. And then there was a uh, triple H and Candace, Michelle acting like they were receiving, um, oral attention. Uh, that's a real sentence on July 3rd. And supposedly that's the straw that broke the camel's back. Do you remember there being some discontent about the content of the program up in Canada? I think there was always discontent, you know, Canada having a lot stricter rules. When you look at international programming, God, when you get into the middle East, um, India, uh, places like that, China, uh, Japan, just there were everywhere pretty much, man. Everybody had different rules. While in the UK, you know, you can turn on television anywhere in the UK and you would see, you know, full nudity. Language was really not a, not an issue. And it was just based on the region. So Canada, Canada was a little bit more conservative, uh, definitely more so than the United States at that time. And it made it easier, it made it easier to get all of our content on and for them not to want to edit us. And it was, you know, it was a better move for us because we weren't in the preemption and we also weren't in a position where we were going to be in a, in a place where they could edit us or want to edit us. Uh, the Miz is going to announce on uh, raw that Maurice was eliminated from the diva search but she wasn't eliminated from his life. Did you see that one coming? Would you have predicted that? No, God, no. Wouldn't have seen it coming even when she started full time. No, not in a million years. You know, Maurice is one of these people from the, the diva search that worked her ass off, man. She wanted it so bad. And once she got in and around the business, that's what she wanted to do. And she wanted to, she wanted to work. She wanted to be in it. So, you know, when you look back and I know people love to knock Maurice and the Bellas and everything, but I couldn't tell you of three harder working talent that just wanted it really, really bad. And 
every single day would be sending you ideas, would always be the first ones there, last ones to leave in, in training camps. So, yeah, she we knew, I think, at that point that she was interested in coming to train, and we were interested in keeping her as well. Lily, go ahead. The, the Miz shit, I don't think anybody could have called. Uh, Lillian Garcia returns on July 24th as the, as the ring announcer. Why was Lily in the right move at this point? And, and was it time? Why did the company think, or did Fink think it's time for me to ease on out of ring announcing? I think it was just more a situation of time to move on and time to change things up and freshen it up a little bit. It happens. Uh, let's talk about, um, the, the whole Kurt angle thing. Um, he's having some, some problems at the time. Uh, in the ring, outside of the ring, he's got some injuries. He's probably over medicating. I think that's been well documented, but it's written that he was actively trying to get on the SummerSlam card. What was the, the nature of the Kurt angle situation here in 2006? I think that, you know, Kurt was, as Kurt has talked about, Kurt has had some, some demons and some issues at times. So sometimes it would be worse than others. And I think that it would go hand in hand with whatever injuries that Kurt had that he wouldn't tell anybody about that he would try to rehabilitate himself, whether it was self-medicating or some kind of a, a crazy different rehab that no one had ever heard of, that there was some guy in rural West Virginia in a cave somewhere that he heard could heal him. He would go and do all of this stuff. So, you know, with Kurt, it was a roller coaster. Um, and it was a lot of times very hard to tell because Kurt was a machine. I mean, man, it was Olympic gold medalist. He was a world-class athlete that was literally a machine. He was a cyborg. And, and Kurt could go, and you didn't really ever know how bad Kurt was hurt. I think Kurt has said that uh, he was sending some not-so-nice text messages when he was maybe over-medicated to Vince McMahon and really having no memory of sending those messages because he had overdone it to cope with the pain. But he even shared this maybe a legendary story where he had torn his groin and he was hurt and uh, he knew he needed time off. So he just interrupted a meeting and, uh, dropped trowel in front of the chairman to show him how bad the bruising was from this groin injury he had sustained. The result is he wrestles his last match on August 8th, which is for the ECW television show. It ends in a no contest against Sabu. And then he's released five days after this SummerSlam, August 25th, 2006. Uh, it was probably just time for, for Kurt to take a break fair to say i do i think that it was time for kurt to get healthy let's uh let's talk about trish and lita it's reported in the observer that the contract negotiations were going on and it didn't seem as if either were going to be renewed we've recently covered trish in the archives but this is going to leave a big old hole in your roster if you're really two of your top female talents, your two top at different times, baby faces on that side of things, merch movers, if you will, are looking to leave. What was the, uh, the WWE's position on trying to keep Trish and Lita in the machine, if you will. 
Well, I think we wanted them both in the mix, obviously. And I don't know if it was them wanting to leave as much as it was both of them maybe looking for some time off and just to rest up and take a break off the road. The, uh, the other thing we should mention is there's a raw on August 7th in Memphis, where we would see Jerry Lawler lose to Randy Orton in about two minutes with the RKO. We're really building up the whole legend killer, especially when you beat Jerry Lawler in Memphis. It's announced on the show that Hulk Hogan has a torn meniscus and there's doubt that Hogan may make his SummerSlam match against Randy. Was this part of the storyline or are you sort of hedging your bets in case Hulk pulls out? You know, Hulk was actually hurt. We didn't know whether or not he would actually be able to make it. So at that point, it was kind of like, okay, let's get him prepared. And prepared they were. Uh, Umaga's going to pin Triple H to close the show. Then Vince delivers a pedigree of his own to Triple H. Uh, and then Kurt Angle wrestles his last match for the WWE TV for 11 years, as we mentioned, going to that no contest with Sabu. We would get Undertaker and Kali to have a last man standing match announced for SummerSlam, but it's moved forward to SmackDown. Was this the type of match, especially with a talent like Greg Kali? with his size and experience probably just want that one on pay-per-view. I mean, on, on tape rather than on pay-per-view, would that be fair to say? Well, I would much rather have it on tape. <laughs> yeah. For damn sure. Yeah. So the other thing I want to mention is, you know, this is a SummerSlam where when you take a look at this, this lineup and it's quite the, the, the link of matches here or, or roster of matches here. Chavo and Rey Mysterio, Big Show and Sabu, Hogan and Randy Orton, Ric Flair and Mick Foley, Batista and King Booker, DX versus Mr. and Shane McMahon, Edge versus Cena. Notice who I didn't list. Undertaker's not on the show. This is not the network era. This is very much the pay-per-view era. And The Undertaker, being a a a tippy-top guy, seemingly losing his shot at a big pay-per-view payoff here based on creative had to be frustrating to the real life. Mark Calloway. Do you remember that situation? Yeah. But also at the same time, the real life undertaker wanted to some time off as well. I think that, you know, his body was banged up a lot. He was looking to just say, Hey man, (laughs) if you worked with the great colleague, Kind of night in and night out. Trust me, your body would want to break. Right. After a little while. And that's all it was. Not not the most, you know, advantageous or the, the best position for the company to be in or for creative to be in. And much rather have had him. Uh, Jeff Hardy is doing a promotional videos, uh, you know, being shown for his uh, his return to action. How is Jeff coming back into the fold here? What was his approach? Are you reaching out to him saying, Hey, let's put the band back together. Here's what we want to do creatively. Does he come with ideas? Just what was it like to work with Jeff Hardy in this era? Well, I'll tell you, you know, for me, it's always been pleasurable to to work with Jeff with very, very few exceptions. And during this time you had a clear headed Jeff Hardy who wanted to come back and wanted to be the guy. So um, a clear headed Jeff Hardy, ready to rock and roll is man. 
the best you could possibly get. So it was during that time, but you got to kind of baby step into those waters and make sure that Jeff's going to be able to swim. Were you watching his stuff on the other channel when he was with TNA? I did. Yeah. I kept up with Jeff. I've always been a big fan of Jeff. I, I mean, I go back to the days when he lied about his age, being a, an extra and, and an enhancement talent back in the day, making their own gear. I thought that Jeff was, there was something special about him from day one. Charlottesville, Virginia is the home of this go home raw for SummerSlam. It features the now infamous segment of edge at the home of John Cena's oh, father God. and edge smacks the shit out of him. You've got a story for this. Chat us up. Yeah. So many stories from that shoot. I know it was a lot of fun. At the, that was actually John Cena senior's house. Um, the, the best part was Lita had her dog and put her dog down in the house and the dog went and made a number two. I mean, like within 10 seconds of being let down, uh, in the house and the old man just didn't clean it up, just left it there. Um, it was, I, I don't know. It was a little surreal, but what you see is what you get. And, and John's dad is one of the, the coolest guys you'd ever want to meet. Um, I don't know how old he is, but you would swear that he's eternally 40 and living his best life every single day of it. And as we got there, we did, you know, we did these vignettes. We had some fun and that wasn't John senior being over the top. That was just John senior being John senior. Listen, spin ahead. Um, it was, it was just great stuff. And, and I, I was with Brian Gewertz on that. I think one of the, the fun things to come out of it was giving Brian his first BC powder and, uh, watching him take that <laughs> once he got it all in his mouth not really realizing what to do. And then it went up his nose and it was a fun experience. <laughs> and uh shout out to John Cena's father still making appearances. I saw over the weekend. Uh, Tabo bucks, baby. There was a, a podcast show at uh, Kowloon uh, with uh, our old pal, Zach Ryder and well, Matt Cardone, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, I saw, I don't know if you saw this, Kowloon made the the Wall Street Journal last week that they're going out of business. Yeah, I know. I talked to Andy a while back. And... Sad, man. It's a legendary place. We got to go back, maybe not to do a show, just to eat, right? I mean, golly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the wings and the uh, General Sos chicken are off the chart, and they have some best egg rolls as well. All their shit's good. I, uh, it's almost as good as the, uh, the story that Brian told us, uh, when he was at one of our live shows and he described John Cena's dad trying to do the acting here. Can you give us an an impression of John recreating John Cena seniors? Oh God. It it just was, it's just over the top. Everything was, Hey, we spin ahead and you chicky do, um, I'll send you to the moon. Yeah, and just as over-the-top and hokey as you could get. If you were writing hokey over-the-top, that's what you would have got. We didn't write any of that. That was just John Sr. being John Sr. And, you know, you try to – that's the thing, man. When, when 
when you encounter real characters and then you want the real character to not be that character, sometimes it's 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 tough because it's going to come out that way. I'm sorry. It's just going to come out that way. And that's the way that John Sr. is in real life, man. And he's a character. He's an over-the-top character that um, that's just – I would go out of my way uh, any and every time that he was even in a building to go say hello and pay my respects to him because he's just that much of a gentleman. But he's a character. Chickadoo. We uh, we see Lita defeat Mickey to become the women's champion on Raw. Is this like a, um, hey, Lita, we're not done with you. We still got big plans for you. We want to show you that with our creative. No, just wanting her to be champion. And we weren't done with her. Uh, listen to this lineup, Eugene and Jim Duggan defeat Mikey and Kenny of the spirit squad in a non-title match. When the Highlanders interfere 2006 in that sentence feels like a bad acid trip, Bruce, the Highlanders, as Rene Goulet would say, the Highlanders. Why don't you think they, uh, had a longer run in WWE? I think that more than anything, (sighs) They they wanted to focus more on the gimmick than actually working, and there has to be a happy medium. There has to be a happy medium in there where you work your ass off to get the gimmick over, then the gimmick's over, and you you just work. And they were trying so hard. Um, two nicer guys you couldn't find. Both those guys were tremendous. I think it was Robbie and Rory. Uh, super great guys, and, and they really just wanted it. I think they were just confused as how to get there. And if they got there, I doubt they would have remained there. Shannon Moore is uh, being promoted as debuting with a new look. Was Shannon and Hardy coming in like a package deal? I only ask because I know those guys have been friends forever. Well, it was coincidental, and I think that you know Shannon kind of coming in also to take care of Jeff a little bit and isn't going to hurt things. John Laurinaitis is going to travel to Atlanta and Louisville to meet with everyone to let them know that Tommy dreamer will now only be a talent. And Mike Bucci, your old friend is taking over as head of developmental. Uh, we've touched on it before, but, uh, what do you think of Mike's supposed heat with Bruce Pritchard? I think he's the one who famously said, what's that old catchphrase he used? I'd take yeah, I've, I've never been able to understand his heat with me because I I didn't really know who he was. I, yeah, I, I didn't really ever get a firm grasp of why he was sore with you either, unless it was just a funny line for a shoot interview. Because it is a funny line. Is is it, I'd take a bullet for Tom, but put one in Bruce or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it would be, he would probably be able to because I wouldn't know who he was. Okay. You know, I, mean, I, I, and I, I don't see, and I know that sounds mean, but I, um, they, they, I did one of those deals where you don't remember like, Simon oh, Dean, the guru. Huh? You don't remember Simon S- Dean. I know who he is. Yes. Well, that's Mike Bucci. I, I understand that. Okay. But hear me out for a second. 
So I did one of those word association things, and they said Nova. And the only thing that I could think of Nova was the female in the Planet of the Apes. Remember that? Her name was Nova. I never watched that. Oh, God damn. So what was, uh, here, look, I'm going to take a sidebar for a It second. came out in 1968. We're going to come back to this, okay? We're going to come back to Nova. came out in 1968. What was the first movie you ever remember seeing in a movie theater? Hmm. That's a great question. I'm going to think, I think it was Rocky Four, which would have been oh, 85. Jesus Christ. So I was four okay. years old, Rocky Four. So when you say Planet of the Apes, I was negative 13. So well, that was that was my second movie. My first movie was Born Free. Born Free about the lion. Yeah, that's that's from 1966. Yeah, that was my first movie I remember seeing. The second I was, movie I was negative 15. 19, yeah, second movie was uh, 1968, which was the original Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Okay. <sighs> Nova. They asked me about Nova, and I said, uh, "Who was they in this okay. scenario?" I don't know. I don't know. It was somebody in one of those like interview thingies. Hey, can we do word association? I said, sure, man. And they said, no, but not said the Planet of the Apes girl. So then it was explained that that was this guy. And I didn't know what he, I, I don't think I ever encountered him, dealt with him in any way, shape or form ever one time when he was working in the office in the company. So to, to say that I knew what he did there or anything else or had any encounters, good, bad, or indifferent, I didn't. I remember shooting vignettes with him in Houston on his little uh, moped thingy, going through a burger fast food restaurant thing and getting food to eat that night if he lost. That's that's it. That's all our, pretty much my interaction with him. Let's talk about a couple other fellows. Andrew Goldstein and Dave Kapoor were hired as writers around this time. Of course, Andrew's a friend of the show. Dave is still up there. What do you remember about Andrew and Dave coming into the company here? Ah, nice guys. You know, um, Andrew is, is in the television business somewhere. Um, well, I'm going to get an email text on that one. Um, and then, uh, Dave is, uh, down in Florida. Still very good friends. Sabu defeats Rob Van Dam in a ladder match to become the number one contender to face big show at SummerSlam. Why Sabu over Rob Van Dam here? Do you think? God, I have no idea unless it was just someone for big show to slough. It's about the best I can, I can come up with. Uh, Looking for Big Show to have a big, you know, be a giant. You know, I I don't I don't know I couldn't think of a way to ask it, but I just got to circle back. Can you remember an idea that Goldstein or Kapoor pitched that would be like, "Hey man, that that was a home run," or that was some silly shit? <laughs> Either way, no. Okay. I can I I can remember going back to to one of the writers pitching uh, Super Porky as a midget, that he was a, or a little person, a mini. Super Porky, the little short Porky from Luchador. 
great guy, super tough guy, but he's a grown ass man. He was a short grown ass man, but he was not a mini. He was not a little person. And one of the writers had pitched that, uh, oh yeah, no, he's a mini. I know he's a mini. He's a mini. And we brought him in as a mini. And I kept telling everybody, he's not a mini. Just short. Now I watched Super Porky Man in Mexico City knock two dudes out in the middle of a match that had stiffed him and he rolled them out to the outside of the ring and just knocked them the fuck out. Well, that taught him. Two huh? punches. Yeah. Huh? That taught him. Yeah, it sure did, man. And then came back and it was like all the American guys and they thought I was with the American guys and I was just there as an independent just kind of watching the, the show as a guest to Paco Alonso and, uh, and Porky takes me in a room. I think, okay, now I'm going to get killed. And he apologizes to me in his broken English and pulls out something. I didn't know what the hell. I'm like, oh my God, now he's going to kill me. He's got a knife. And it was a bottle of tequila. And he says, should I drink, amigo? And we drank this fucking bottle of tequila. And I do not do, first of all, I don't do well with just straight alcohol. Don't, don't do well. Especially don't do well brown liquor at all. Don't do brown liquor. This was gold tequila. I drank it with him because I was scared. Why were you scared he was going to stab you? Well, because it was a very heated situation. But what, I mean, it was really heated. It was it was guys grabbing shit and everything. Yeah, it was it was pretty heated. But you weren't involved in any of that. No, I wasn't. But I walked into it. I got you in the dressing room, and then Porky grabbed me right afterwards and had had something in this bag. And I, you had something in his hand. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck that is. And but he was couldn't have been sweeter. We became you know good friends after that. But but a class. Class guy. And I understood, man. I was with him for knocking the dude out during the match. I was I, like, yeah, you should knock that motherfucker out. I got to tell you, I'm a little surprised to hear you say that you're scared. No one at this point. You're I'm a four time. <laughs> at that time, I was only like a, uh, that time I was three time black belt hall of famer. That seems like something you wouldn't necessarily. But see, you, you, you feed off of your fear. I mean, I'd have killed him. Oh, just saying. You know, he just passed away. Phrasing. I words. do. I do. I Phrasing. was very sad about that too. Layla wins the diva search. Did you see star in Layla? No. Why not? Um, I don't know. I just didn't. What I saw in Layla was personality. Right. Um, and is I got to work with her after the fact. Then I was like going, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she had those star qualities. I just didn't think that she exhibited those star qualities in the diva search. Got it. After the fact, it, when I got to work with her one-on-one, man, she was, she was really good. Nope. Not that great in the ring, but she was really good as far as personality and star shit. Yes. You and I were talking about someone else the other day and you said boy that some bitch just oozes charisma uh but that's one of those deals where sometimes you got to actually meet them to know that right exactly and you got to get inside their head and talk to them whether they if they can captivate four or five people in a backstage environment or just in in talking to them in general then you know they can captivate an audience 
So MVP is uh, being shown as hanging in the sky boxes and he makes his decision on which brand to sign with. This really is a great way to introduce someone and MVP made the most of it. And he's still in a featured spot today. Whose idea was it to introduce MVP this way? A lot of that was his idea and, and you know, it was his idea for the MVP gimmick and, and how to introduce him and all of that. A lot of that came from him. Um, Taker is going to beat Kali on the SmackDown at the go home show. And Kali even uh, winds up bleeding here. Hypothetically, what do you think that conversation would have sounded like? Uh, yeah, he just got busted in the head and uh, <laughs> got busted open. So I don't think Taker, um, I, Taker wasn't really fond of Kali during this run and shit just happens. Well, we're finally here at the show. Uh, we get a mixed reaction from the readers of the wrestling. That Observer. wasn't the show. No, that was SmackDown. Oh God. 32.7% thumbs up 37.2% thumbs down and 30.2% thumbs in the middle 13,500 paid here for a gate of more than $800,000. Uh, it's only a seven match show though. You know, when, when you look back at like that, Oh, one show, they had several more matches. Um, but this is just a seven match show. Were you guys trying to maybe less is more? Let's give the guys more time. Tell a bigger story. Probably subconsciously. Yes. And you, you had guys that could go longer and make it entertaining, but I don't know that it was really this. Okay. Hey, let's make a conscious effort to do this. I think it was more of a, you have the, you have the card, you sit there, you go through, you time it. And that's what it shakes out to be. And you had people that could do it. It just feels like at times there's been different sort of edicts. You know, this is an eight match show here for Oh six. It was a nine match show in Oh five. Uh, but it feels like at different times, you know, you you've had, What's the old expression? 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. Did you feel like at times that the company maybe tried to cram too much into a show or is, yeah, is, go ahead. I, I do. I, I think that sometimes there's uh, the matter of you've got a lot of attractions that may be worthy of being on the show. And sometimes you have to show restraint in editing some of those matches and being able to either prolong them or put them somewhere else. That's just the reality of it. You go back to like the year 2000 and there's, there's 10 matches on the show and, uh, but it feels like most were just, I don't know. They had an extra match or two and this one didn't feel like it was overdone. And as a result, most of the matches got some time. Let's break it down. Out first is Chavo Guerrero pinning Rey Mysterio, 10 minutes, 59 seconds. Meltzer would say there was nothing wrong with the wrestling, but it was evident by the two minute mark in this match that it didn't have any heat. Uh, not near the heat it should have with the buildup it was given. JBL's doing commentary and said that he had to hire extra security at his wedding in case Eddie fell off the wagon. So, uh, some weird, weird commentary here. Um, supposedly JBL winds up getting a little bit of heat over that line. And he also maybe had a little bit of heat when he is talking about the Batista match saying he cried like a little bitch when he had to give up the title. But in fairness, JBL is really cutting his teeth on commentary. So 
he's thrown right into the fire and maybe as a result has a little bit of heat. Well, you know, you tell somebody to go out there and open up and they go out and they open up and they're going to make mistakes. And the only way to learn is to make mistakes. Right. And if, if you don't, then you're not trying hard enough. So could JVL have maybe not said some of the things? Sure. But then I don't know that you wouldn't have gotten JBL. The finish of the match sees Mysterio do a face buster off the top rope with Guerrero and then hit the six one nine and the hurricane Rana over the top rope. Bless you. And at that point, Vicky Guerrero came out. Uh, Meltzer would say to her credit, Vicky was animated as hell and came off as believably frantic for wanting the two to stop fighting, but it was way too obvious. This isn't what the people wanted to see. When Mysterio went to the top rope, he was being booed heavily. And at the same point, Vicky was climbing onto the apron and grabbed the top rope to pull herself off. This shaking the rope caused Mysterio to lose his balance. And he fell in the ring after crotching himself. Chavo put him away with a brain buster and a frog splash, two and a quarter stars. I got to tell you, I thought Vicky did a great job here. And I like the execution of this where it feels like she's just trying to help herself up, but she accidentally cost Ray the match. Of course, uh, the eventual Vicky heel turn is a few days later, but I think it's arguable. This is Chavo's biggest win of his career at this point, beating Rey Mysterio at SummerSlam is a big damn deal. what do you think of the match watching it back for the first time in all these years? Really? I thought it was excellent. Cause I could watch these guys work, you know, every day of the week, twice on Sunday, they did a great job. And this was, you know, just a little teaser setting everyone up for the Vicky turn. And I don't think anyone expected that at all. So, uh, the build, the execution, everything I thought was top notch. Uh, in the second match, big show is going to retain his ECW title pinning Sabu in eight and a half minutes. Meltzer would say it's a garbage style match that doesn't even fit. It wasn't even good in its style and the live crowd wasn't much into it. Sabu botched a spot and then show gave him a spine buster through one table and a choke slam through a second for the pin star and a half. This is a criticism that you hear a lot that the ECW style didn't really work on WWE TV. And a lot of ECW loyalists say, well, it's because they didn't let the guys put the match together. It was, it was WWE's interference. It just wasn't the same. They didn't have the same creative license. Is there something to that? Or do you think it was just a style that this audience didn't want to see? I think it's a style that overall people didn't want to see. Um, otherwise they would have remained in business. So it was, you know, you still try to incorporate pieces of it and it wasn't something the big show did and or did well. So it, it just was a clash. It was a clash of styles and a clash of crap that didn't work. Uh, we need to mention the, uh, the next match is Hulk Hogan and Randy Orton. This is on third, which is pretty crazy when you think about it, that Hulk Hogan is in the third match. He gets a huge reaction. Meltzer would say he didn't move much, but he usually doesn't. Orton had to come back and hit the RKO and the ref counted. You know why he doesn't? They didn't have to. Doesn't have to. Is right. Uh, so Orton hits the RKO. The ref counts three, but Hogan has his foot on the ropes. Hogan makes his usual comeback with three punches, the foot to the boot to the face and the leg drop. He plays to the crowd for a long time after the leg drop before getting the pin two and a quarter stars. 
And it's crazy to think this is Hulk Hogan's last ever match in a WWE ring. I mean, I'm glad it's at SummerSlam. I'm glad he, I'm glad he got a big win, but I don't know that I would have guessed that that would be the answer to a trivia question. Randy Orton at SummerSlam in 06 as his last one. You know, uh, first of all, is is we discussed before. Nobody kicks out of the leg drop. Well established. Randy didn't kick out of that damn leg drop. Hulk beat his ass because it's Hulk Hogan, goddammit. So, but, you know, also at the same time, I think, you know, uh, the, the back issues and, and all the other issues that, that Hulk had between his knee, his back, and everything else, it was time for him to be out of the ring. And if you were to ask Hulk today, I think Hulk would tell you, I still got one more in me, brother. And in his head, he does. I just wouldn't for his for his health. Um, I don't want to see that, man. I, I want to remember Hulk Hogan as Hulk Hogan and the way he, the way he was, and for him to come back and do some nostalgia stuff and and be Hulk today, always entertaining, always great. I just, man, he was he's Hulk Hogan. You don't want to see Hulk Hogan, you know, gimping around the ring. I don't want to see that. I want to see my guy. Right. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it was his last match, at least in WWE. He would go on to have more elsewhere, but, um, I, I don't think that that was the best thing for his just longevity and for his body in general. Uh, how excited was Randy to be working with Hulk? I mean, you go back and you look at just their family history, the main event of that very first WrestleMania, Randy's dad is there standing across the ring from Hulk Hogan. And now here we are, one of the biggest events of the year, SummerSlam, and Randy Orton finds himself standing across from Hulk Hogan. It's pretty cool. It is real cool. I mean, and, and I think that Randy enjoyed that and wasn't lost on Randy. Randy looked at this as a hell of an opportunity and a, and a opportunity to work with somebody that his dad did and biggest name in the business. It's, uh, it's super cool to, to just have that context. Um, Orton has no issues with this. I'm sure, you know, he's getting to work with the biggest star and the guy who worked with his dad and blah, blah, blah. But there's a story that's come out. Marty Elias was the referee that Hogan was adamant about doing this whole foot on the rope, false finish concept. And, uh, I don't know. I found that interesting that Hogan wanted to have that little thing in the match. And I really like that he still got to pose with the fans, but do you think there was any quote unquote heat about him doing all the hot dogging before the pin, as opposed to after? No, I don't. Cause that's Hulk Hogan. You know what you get when you book it. Um, in hindsight, do you wish you would have had Hulk Hogan participate in the whole legend killer thing? And Randy got him too, like he did so many others. Yeah, I do. And I, I think, you know, to a point, some people will say Randy did get him, but, uh, yes, I do. I wish we could have had him for more. I, um, I do want to bring up the, the match itself. We got two and a quarter stars. Hogan's on third. Um, I don't know. It just feels a little weird that he's on third and the Meltzer didn't totally shit on it, but what a cool moment it is to, to be a footnote in history for Randy Orton that, Hey, I got Hulk Hogan's last match here. 
Uh, let's talk about the next match. Boy, this one is going to be something else. Rick flair and Mick Foley are going to be in an I quit match. And unbelievably Rick flair wins. They go 12 minutes and 47 seconds. Foley goes for Mr. Sacco right away, but then he puts barbed wire around it. Flair uses a low blow, but puts the barbed wire sock on his hand and starts chopping Foley, which of course opens up his chest. Foley brings a barbed wire board out. And before long, Flair is bleeding everywhere. By six minutes in Foley's already brought out the thumbtacks and Flair winds up in the thumbtacks. Next comes the barbed wire baseball bat. Foley drove that into Flair's face. Flair's refusing to quit. Flair knocks Foley off the apron where he takes the old nesty plunge bump with his head hitting a garbage can. And they send out trainers and agents and they wave off the match and the bell rang. Flair was furious saying Foley never said I quit. So in his mind, the match wasn't over. He kept rubbing the barbed wire bat in Foley's face, but Foley wouldn't quit. And Flair acts like he's going after the eye and Molina throws in the towel for Foley. Flair stated he didn't accept that as a win and started to threaten to mess up Molina's face with the barbed wire bat. And then Foley quit. Meltzer said it was a good match. Gave it three and a half stars. Interesting booking, especially to see this much violence, barbed wire bats, barbed wire boards, thumbtacks, uh, and now a baby face, which I guess is what Flair is here, threatening to disfigure a woman in order to make a heel quit. Woo. Some crazy booking. Walk me through it. Not a fan, not a fan of it. Didn't like it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. It, you're the, the guy that's critiquing this match that you're reading from says what a great match this is when they talk about, you know, Oh gosh, what a great match. Uh, Saruta and Baba had back in 1973 or whatever. Um, it's, 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 it's not, it's a, it's a hardcore garbage match, uh, with a lot of gimmicks. um, the story of, of Mick saying I quit is a good story. I'm getting old, man. I'm getting old and crotchety. I'm not a fan of this stuff. I, I don't I just I don't think you need that much gore and, and crap. I really don't. I, I'm not a not a big fan of it. And wasn't a fan of it at this point. Didn't need all that. No, I get that. I, uh, I know a lot of fans are turned off by the violence that's here, but it is, um, I mean, I don't know that you could really do this Foley style story without some of this violence. Could you, I mean, what would you have done differently? I, I, I think you could have. Yeah. I, I think you definitely could have. It's just in how you tell the story and there's other ways to do it. Um, without all the gore, it's a matter of taste. It, it's a matter of taste and it's a matter of, of what, what you like. And I think that more people were probably turned off by it than going, Oh, Hey, yeah, gosh, I want to see more thumbtacks and barbed wire in the face. Uh, again, some people like, you know, chocolate ice cream. Some people like, uh, strawberry shortcake. How was Flair with this violence, you know, in terms of, you know, the barbed wire and the thumbtacks, this is not what most people associate with the nature boy style, but here he is. Was he hesitant to, to do something like this? I don't think Rick was hesitant. Rick did it. Um, but I, I, again, I've just sit there dumbfounded that, oh, this was a great match and this was excellent. 
probably because it had two of his favorite people that call him all the time and tell him how great they are. Um, that that's why he liked the match because when you look at what made Ric Flair great was Ric Flair's matches and his work, his in ring work, not his his gore and and the use of other things to dress it up. And you know, two of my favorite people in Mick Foley and Ric Flair. And I've I've told Mick this before. It's like, hey man, I get it. And I think Mick Foley's one of the greatest workers ever, one of the greatest talents this business has ever had. And an extremely intelligent, bright guy. Mick Mick likes one thing. I like something else. So to each his own. For me, not crazy about it. How was Rick after the match? Were Rick and Foley on good terms? Did they let by? I mean, I know these days they're fine. They're but... professional. Yeah. Professional is what they were. Do you remember who would have been the agent or who would have helped come up with the only way that we're going to get Foley to quit is if he threatens to hurt Melina? Oh, I have no idea. None at all. What do you think about that creative in and of itself? That that's what gets it done. That Foley can't be beat and he won't quit, but that's, that's the line. I think it was kind of low class. I, I didn't like it. Okay. To take it, to take it to that extreme. I, I didn't think you needed to do that. What did Vince think of a match like that with all the violence? I, I would have to believe that he would probably err on err on the side of pretty much what I just what I just aired on. Yeah. Um, maybe he liked it, but I, I don't see him looking at that going, "Oh yeah, that's that's awesome." Was there a concern amongst any of the locker room that even though this isn't technically an ECW match? Was there a concern that perhaps, oh, this is what they're going to expect us to do on that side? Um, I don't think so. I just, you know, it was unnecessary, I guess is the best way to put it. In my opinion. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next match. It's Batista and King Booker, uh, set the backstory for this. I, I think as the story goes, they were. Um, shooting a commercial for this very show, right? Or was it Royal Rumble when something broke out in real life? Do you remember the details? I I wasn't there. All I remember, you know, hearing about is that, uh, you know, there there had been some tension between Booker and Batista for quite some time, and for whatever reason, and they got to a commercial shoot, and words were exchanged back and forth. And knowing, you know, Booker the way that I know him, I, I think uh, as Booker says, he'd rather fight than do pretty much anything else. Um, and Dave, you know, being a guy that you know also at the time kind of, you know, fancied himself that he he liked to fight. And from those that were there, it was kind of words exchanged. They walked out to the side of the house and, um went to start a fight and either locked up at some point before people were in between them. But, uh, you know, both guys came back. I don't remember marks on anybody. So it just was one of the, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those silly, stupid things of, you know, Hey, fuck you. Fuck you. Oh yeah. Let's go. Yeah. And you go and then everybody's in between you. And then you realize, God damn, 
thank God everybody was in between us. I didn't want to fight this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, and in fairness, it's probably less about the other guy and more about, uh, I'm sleepy. I'm stressed. I'm tired. Right. I mean, the, the travel is no joke. Which remind it's- me to tell you a story about what happened yesterday too. Just in general, of to 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 give you that that example of I did something that I probably shouldn't have done, but I was just so pissed that I was like, okay, you know what, man, fine. And you're saying that's an example you can't give on the air. I mean, I, I no, don't get yourself so, in trouble. Well, no, I, I I spent a lot of money on on some suits to oh, have them made. I know this story. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And I, you know, better than anyone, the amount of time that I have none, to do none. anything for myself. None. Okay. So I actually had a window of time last night during the window of time that you told me you couldn't record. Yes. Okay. So I'm like going, Hmm, I'm going to go get my shit and get the final fitting. So I go to get the final fitting. Now, imagine this. Imagine ordering seven custom-made suits. Yep. And imagine going to put on the first one. Looks beautiful, man. Fucking was gorgeous. And I put it on. He made those kind of fast, too, by the way. Oh, yeah, man. They made them in like uh, three and a half weeks, four weeks. That's pretty good. Yeah, made, them, made them real fast, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, man, the jacket was like Kane's jacket. It's like, I was tiny. Oh man. And I'm like getting in. I'm like, what the fuck? I show the guy. I said, Hey man. I said, this isn't even close to fitting. He goes, Oh wow. He goes, well, let me, where does it not fit, sir? And I'm just looking at him like his arms and everything and the shoulders and chest is like all just clinging to me. I was like, it doesn't fit anywhere. And he starts like, look, he goes, oh, shit. He goes, I, 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 I don't even think we can fix this. We would have to just do a complete new suit. Yeah, no shit. And I'm like, yeah. So now I'm thinking, you know what? You could fuck up a suit. Yeah, we'll go to it the happens. next one. We'll go to the next yeah. one. Yeah, go to the next one. So I'll go to the next one. Same, didn't fit. Same cut as the first one. And now you went from half height says, to three quarters. Oh yeah. So then he says to me, he goes, but he goes, do the pants fit? Okay. I said, the waist does the rest of this shit. I don't like this fucking narrow leg and the fucking leg cut is all wrong and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what the fuck? I said, I, this was just like a reorder off of, I just got new fabrics and new stuff. All no need to remeasure. I'm still wearing the suits from the last time that you made them for I'm me. I'm in the system. Just do what you did yeah. last time. Yeah. Right. So something had to change because that shit still fits me perfectly. So I go to the third one. Doesn't fit. Now I'm pissed. Now I'm fucking taking them and I'm throwing them down and I'm putting the other ones on and trying them on and throwing them down. And I'm like, uh, this is, I'm, I'm livid. And Three more people come in the store and this guy's going off and helping them too. So I'm clear too. You've already paid this uh, outfit. I've already paid this. Yes. Up front millions of dollars, right? Yeah. 
So I'm I'm livid. And so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm standing out there. I'm waiting to talk to him. And he's waiting on other people. And so finally I walk up. I said, hey, man. Oh, and he tells me that that they have to be, man, we got to start from scratch. And he says, maybe we should remeasure you. I said, no, maybe you should follow the measurements from the stuff that I got last time. And that was made off of measurements I got the time before that. All the shit that still fits me well. Um, so he's, he's sitting there and there's, uh, two customers he's waiting on and a third waiting there. And I just, I went up and I said, Hey man, your suits are in the back. You call me when you get this shit straight. And then I've got to thinking about it. I'm like, why do I want to go through this again? Yeah. Why? And so I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was a little pissed off. So I just called the the credit card company. I said, Hey man, I paid for this. I get it. It's custom, custom clothing. If there's nothing you can do about it, then, you know, nothing we can do about it, but, um, I don't want to deal with them. So fuck them. So I'm pissed. So I was sleepy. <laughs> I was tired and I was stressed and I was irritable and I just, took seven brand new suits that didn't fit <laughs> and left them on the floor and in, in the changing room. And you got How your, do you do that? And you got your money back. Not yet, but I've, I've made the claim. Yes. And no one, and no one has called me yet. Taylor hadn't called me yet, but I'm like, no, you don't need to make new ones. I just, Let's cut our losses here, kid. Yeah, I'll go I'm sign. not gonna, these the ones you made are useless. Yeah, to everyone. Yes. Throw them on the rack, and maybe somebody will buy it. But it'll maybe be somebody, a, some fat guy, you know, gorgeous shoulders will come in and well, fit. they'd have to be a little less fat than you because he said it was Kane's jacket. Actually, see, that's a goddamn good point, Conrad. So this is for a skinny guy with skinny legs too. Yeah, but he's got he's got a bigger waist, but skinny legs. And, yeah. and he needs to have an upper body like Kane. Actually, I wonder if Kane's shoulders would have even fit in there. Kane's gotten big. That's he what works ha- out. That's what happens when you got to carry yeah. all that around. Yeah. So match number five, Batista and Booker T goes to a DQ, 10 and a half minutes. Booker's going to retain the world title because it's a DQ. Meltzer would say virtually everyone I spoke with after the match internally spoke pretty openly regarding Batista's work here. He was slow moving and tentative with none of the explosiveness he used to have. The finish saw Booker use a missile drop kick and a bookend, but the missed axe kick Batista used a jackhammer and a full Nelson drop until Charmel jumped on him for the title saving DQ fans. Didn't like the match and hated the finish worse half a star. Did you feel like returning from his surgery that Batista had lost a step or was it just something with him and Booker who just, they just didn't click. No, I think that Dave was a little tentative, you know, coming back and getting his ring legs under him again. So I didn't think the match was good at all. I think both guys were trying to, you know, make sure they took care of Dave and that's what it was. Sometimes it happens. And sometimes, you know, guys just don't necessarily click. And I don't think the Booker and Batista clicked on this night at all. Ah, it's, um, 
it's weird to look at these and think about the real life issues playing out on camera. You know, you got Flair and Foley and then Batista and King Booker, but contrast with what we've got coming up next, Sean and Hunter are going to take on Vince and Shane McMahon. This feels like Vince and his three sons. Now, if you don't like this, you're crazy. 13 minutes and two seconds. Meltzer would say the whole thing took a lot longer. Vince and Shane sent the spirit squad to the ring. They were beaten down in seconds, complete with triple H giving Johnny a pedigree. Let's time out right there. In hindsight, was spirit squad, a good idea. I think that it would have been a great idea, frankly, if the guys had embraced it more and really gotten into it from day one. I think that, um, Jeter and Doan were probably the two that, that were most into it. That's all. I don't know. I know that, you know, Nick kind of did his thing and Nick was great and was looking at it as an opportunity to it worked do out. something else. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and, um, would you, would you Mondo was Mondo, but I don't know that Mondo was ever going to be a top guy. Was it a bad idea or was it worth a try? Oh, I think it was definitely worth a try. I think that having a cheerleader group that could kick ass. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I would hate them. I hate the fucking cheerleaders on the fucking side of the, when the guys do the girls cheers. Why? I, it just drives me nuts. I don't know. They're incredible athletes. Better athletes than some of the guys on the field. I don't know why. I just don't like it. You know what? Actually, I do know why, because they're probably getting all the girls. That pisses me off. They're better looking than me. They're athletic. And they get all the girls. I hate them. By that same metric, you hate all wrestlers then too, right? Because they're better looking than you and they get all the girls. Not all of them are better looking than me. Name some that aren't. Oh, God. Ric Flair, uh, Mick Foley, um, Edge, Johnson. None of them are better looking than me. I'm better looking than all of them. You think you're better looking than Edge and Ric Flair? Oh, yeah. Okay. Just wanted to know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You telling me that Ric Flair is better looking than me? I feel like. Yeah, give me a break. I feel like Ric Flair. Look at this nose. Oh, we're comparing noses now? Well, looks. You're going to compare looks. I'm just saying, look at this nose. I see it. Yeah. Pretty, isn't it? Straight. Well, I wouldn't go so far as say all that. Straight? Yeah, I guess it's a straight nose. Yeah. Okay. A lot of money to get that nose straight. We might need to. Uh, is that the one that Brock fucked up for you? Was that another nose? It's the same nose. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Vince. <laughs> the fuck are we talking about? Just trying to get you engaged. I'm engaged. Oh, really? Yes. What you got? You're going to wait till I come down there to pop the question, aren't you? You're going to find out when you're here. I do have something pretty awesome for you. Yeah. I've had it for months and it's been in safekeeping. Okay. Anyway, uh, Vince then sent Kennedy and Regal and Finley out, but Triple H lays out all three of them. Then Vince sends in Big Show. Show does the Cobra Clutch backbreaker on Michaels, then gave Triple H a choke slam through the ECW announce table. At this point, Vince and Shane hit the ring and the bell sounds to start the match. Vince and Shane do the demolition finish on Shawn Michaels, followed by the heart attack, complete with Vince and Shane walking around the ring like they're Bret Hart. 
And finally, they do the Road Warriors Doomsday device. Uh, Ross said he could, <laughs> he knew that Hawk would be turning over in his grave. Michaels kicks out anyway, makes a small comeback, and then hot tags a now recovered Triple H back in. But that brings Umaga out, and he gives Triple H the Samoan spike. But Kane chases Umaga away, and Triple, out, Triple H kicks out of the pin. Shane goes up to the top and puts a garbage can in front of Triple H's face. He's teasing that he's going to do the Van, Taminer, Van Terminator, but as he comes off, Sean hits him with a super kick in midair. Then Triple H hits Vince with a garbage can. Sean super kicks Vince. Triple H hits the uh, pedigree and the pin. And Meltzer would say, good match for what it was. Three and a quarter stars. A lot of gaga. Lots of gaga. So much. But listen, right in the middle of this, where they start breaking out demolition and the heart attack and the road warriors doomsday device, that shit was awesome, dude. Yeah, it was fun. And I, again, for what it was, it was, this was a gaga match. So for what it was, it was, it was fun. It was fine. Now, again, I'm not a big fan of garbage cans and shit like that, but the rest of it was good. How is Vince on a show like this, where he's got to wear two hats, he's going to quote unquote, run the show and be backstage and, you know, do all of his stuff, but he's also performing. I think, you know, more than anything, it's, it's kind of the opposite. He's, he's doing all of his stuff and he's concentrating on his match and he lets us run everything else. He's still involved, but not, not to the extent that he would be if he wasn't. And that's usually what bothered him. He likes to be involved in everything. Let's jump into it. Uh, we've got one more match, I guess, before we get to it. Um, is there any, is anybody raising their hand and saying, Hey, are we doing too much here when we've got Umaga and we've got, you know, big show, we've got Kennedy and Regal and Finley and. I mean, it's DX versus the world. It feels a little bit like uncensored back in the day where Hogan and Savage wrestled every heel on the WCW side of things. Yeah. Well, I, I do think, I do think that there was, um, a lot of Gaga and too much. And, and, and sometimes when you, you give them Gaga, that's what they expect after a while. And so they were ready for this, and, but I'm asking from the, the other guys in the locker room, is there a concern that, Hey, we're, we're getting DX over, but they're already over They're Hunter and Sean, but it's at the expense of, I don't know, a dozen other motherfuckers. Yeah. I don't know if it's at the expense of them, but yeah, I, I don't think that you needed all of that. It it was, you know, just Gaga to, to stack the deck and in, in this particular situation, I don't know that you needed to stack the deck. Let's, uh, let's talk about the main event. It's time. We're finally here. John Cena and edge. Did you feel like this was the rightful main event? I mean, at this time, obviously John Cena is the man in WWE, but was it his time or did this feel like we had other big stars on the card and blah, blah, blah. Without a doubt, it was John's time. It was, it was, this show was, was all about him. So it, it made a lot of sense and absolutely. 
let's talk. What do you think of the match? You know, the match it's, um, how long? 15 minutes, 41 seconds. The rules of the story here are that edge would win the title. Um, or edge would lose the title rather if he gets disqualified. So edge is coming in as the champ. John Cena is still chasing, but the story is seen as booed. And this may be one of the first times that we saw some of the regurgitation of John Cena from the fan base. What do you remember thinking when this is going down? I think, you know, John was being booed in a lot of places. And this was around the time that a lot of people. I feel strongly that saving money is important. You know, if it's not something we worry about now, boy, we are really going to worry about it later. And I want to help you get out of debt faster and do it with cheaper monthly payments. I'm talking to you if you're in a 30-year loan. Now is the time to take years off of your loan. We're routinely helping our listeners cut 5, 10, even 15 years off their loan. And you can do this without perfect credit, with no money out of pocket. You've just got to start at SaveWithConrad.com. People were suggesting turning John Heal. And I, I don't know that that was necessarily, obviously it wasn't something that we did, but it was something that people felt we needed to do. And in his hometown, I just found it interesting. That kind of solidified, but booed or cheered. They cared about Cena. No argument for me. They're caring about Cena. The match has a story here. Uh, Lita is going to keep trying to interfere. Edge is going to scream for her not to because he doesn't want to be cost the title. Meltzer would say it was the best match on the show. Edge is going to use the education. Cena comes back, hits the STFU, but Edge makes the ropes. Uh, Lita hands Edge the knucks, but Cena ducks the shot and gets right up. And uh, hits Edge for the FU. This time, Lita does interfere. She ran into Cena, who gets on his shoulders. Uh, he threw uh, Lita off. She took the FU bump. Edge escaped. The ref was looking at Lita. Edge used the knucks on Cena and uh, pins him to keep the title. So a lot of interference, but it is a good story because of the whole DQ angle. What do you think of that? That if he tries to cheat and he gets disqualified, even that can cost him the title. Yeah, I thought it was excellent. Nice and little I layer. I thought that the match was used, the, the, everything about it was used excellent. So it was it was a pretty good story, and, and they got all the way through it and told a great story and a tremendous finish. Uh, what do you think of the show overall? I mean, I think a lot of people were probably asking, Cause I think this is maybe the first evidence of a crowd turning on Cena, at least that I could find. But I, th- I think a lot of people probably assumed Cena was going to win. And then maybe edge would win in Toronto the next month since they're sort of in each other's hometowns, but him being booed here. I don't know. Does this throw everybody off backstage? No, not really. I think that you were feeling it. There was a groundswell everywhere. We went live events and TV. You were feeling it. The audiences all over the country had the same reaction and were really kind of getting behind booing John. So we knew it was coming. Thought in Boston that, you know, hey, man, they, they, uh, <laughs> not so much. So it was, it was crazy. But at the same time, I think we were ready for it. 
Let's get to some questions. Instagram, a wrestling historian says John Cena should have won the title back here and then lost it back to edge and unforgiven instead. Can you change my mind? I think in a conventional booking sense, that's probably right. You want to send the fans home at SummerSlam and let John win in his hometown and then let edge cheat to win it back in his hometown, but you win a different way. Can you explain why that was a better way? Because it was the best way to go at the time for the story. John not being successful and John having to chase the title a little more. Michael McClanahan says, given John Cena's popularity, has WWE ever considered running a pay-per-view at Gillette Stadium? Yeah, we actually spoke to Joe Kraft about that at one point, and uh, not WrestleMania, but um, I think you know doing a a show in the middle of the summer, like a July event. Um, it just, you know, it didn't work out and would have been great because with all the Northeast fans, it's a hell of a facility. I don't know Joe Kraft. Did you mean Robert Kraft? I meant Robert Kraft. Joe, you know who Joe Kraft is? No. Joe Kraft is, a, is an old salesman that I used to work with many, many years ago at a movie company. and Oh, yeah, I knew him. How could I okay. forget him, the salesman at the moving him? company? Yeah. 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 Duh. Silly Duh. me. Stupid. John Canton says, uh, there was a huge fan or there was a fan with a huge Hogan tattoo on his back. And after Hulk's match, he slapped it. My question is if the guy had a brother love tattoo like that, would Bruce have slapped it? Hard hitting question, brother journalism, this fan who had this big full back tat of Hulk Hogan did go a little viral for a minute back before that was probably even a word. Did you see that tattoo up close? what do you think of that? Yeah, it was tremendous. Remember, we had the guy that has our tattoo on the back. Yep. Something to wrestle with, so I slapped that. <laughs> uh, we'll do- All right, what are we doing next week, Connie? I got to go. I got people waiting on me. I, I ain't got time for this. I got to go. I got I got things to do. I told you I had exactly. Oh, wait, anyway, now I'm taking up time. No, we're, we're done. We're finishing up. Don't get hot. Why are you firing up here? Up next, and you know what's coming. Um, what? Oh, you want to guess? No, I don't. Buddy, we have like a whole schedule that's shared. You can just look at it anytime. You know that, right? Yeah, but I would have to find it. And you... then it goes into my junk felt folder. Next week, it's Bam Bam Bigelow. What do you think we might be talking about when we talk about the Bammer next week? Bam Bam. Uh, what? We're going to talk about the... Uh quest for a manager for bam bam and how we came across Oliver Humperdinck for one after that and then Lawrence Taylor of course Lawrence Taylor after that we'll be talking about Greg the Hammer Valentine on the 17th we'll be hitting all things unforgiven 2006 and maybe the show I'm looking forward to the most in September in your house 10 mind games one of the more underrated pay-per-view main events from the in your house era would you agree I wholeheartedly would well, great. We appreciate all of your insight. Uh, thanks for carving off a few minutes for us. Uh, get back to agreeing with everything, and we'll see you next week, Bruce. You rock on. See you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Mm, okay. <laughs> see you next week, dude. I got to run. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Thanks for checking out the podcast here on YouTube. Be sure to hit the subscribe button and the notifications bell so you get a notice anytime we upload some new content. And go save yourself some money right now. If you're in a 30-year loan or you have credit card debt, it's not a matter of if I can save you money. It's a matter of how much. 
Find out right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. You are so obsessed with betting. I don't need to bet. <laughs> you're adamant that you're going to win, and I'm what adamant that you're not like, going to win. Why does, why does money have to be you're, exchanged? You're a realist. Like, he believes it, you believe it. Why is that? Well, that's no fun in that. It's a conversation that you can have, and then Monday, it's just like, I told you so. I mean, that's <laughs> verbal currency. There's nothing fun there. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.